that time of the year when the days between Thanksgiving and the new year feels like one giant blur. But it's also time to think about the things you want to get done in 2024. So what better way to get a handle on what to be thinking about than a mega episode of this year's best shows. In this episode, we're covering the trucking segment with heavy hitters who don't shy away from opinions on topics like health, driver recruiting, technology, and what carriers can learn from the yellow bankruptcy. These episodes are going to play in order of how I think they will be the most valuable to you, the listener. But if you want to jump to a specific part, I've got each episode time stamped as well as the link back to the original episode, which has some further, you know, show links and ways to get in touch with the guest or topic from that particular episode. Lastly, thank you so much for the support you've given this show during our first year of going fully independent. While these best of compilations are airing, I'll be finalizing the first part of 2024's content plan for the podcast with tons of new content on the way, not only on the podcast, but over on our YouTube channel as well. Until then, enjoy, and I hope you find this episode helpful. Before we get into the the yellow situation, give folks a little bit of an understanding of, of your career background. So I started off as a driver. You know, I started off as a company driver. As soon as I was uh, old enough to get my CDL, I went to Schneider and I went to a training school and I got my CDL license to drive a tractor trailer. I was always intrigued by it. I always loved it. I was, you know, it's kind of was like one of those things that was my long going passion was to always be in in the industry. And um, a couple of years later, I, you know, purchased my first truck, became an owner operator. And then I really you know, that's when the light bulb came on and the eyes opened up a lot wider that, you know, the industry has a lot of components in it. And, you know, a young kid, you know, behind the wheel of a truck and, uh, you know, just kind of getting out there and understanding that I didn't realize how much business was involved to it at that time. Um, so that really, really kind of fueled my fire to, to make sure that I, I get out there and, and help folks to understand it and help folks navigate through it. So that was kind of just the foundational start and principle behind it. Then as years go by and my fleet grew and I start learning more and more about the business and I start seeing other people's fail, uh, it really was a pain point for me, you know, because of my passion is to make sure that people are successful, especially in trucking, because I love it so much. And, um, you know, what I wanted to do is put a compelling program together, put a compelling team together. I just really focused on helping folks navigate the right way through it with all of the the stuff that's going on and all of the directions that are out there. So that kind of gives them a little background of, uh, of me and just a really, really small nutshell. And so what was the, I guess, the moment that you decided that you were going to, because you're not a driver anymore, correct? You're, you're just yeah. you're solely yeah. a, you know, a business owner and educating others within the industry, right? Yeah, I retired. I retired from behind the wheel a long time ago, but I did put a million miles on the highway. So, I, you know, I, that was a, that was a lot of experience, a lot of blue collar experience. And I always told myself I wanted to learn from the inside out. I wanted to start a trucking company from the inside out. I didn't want to get into it without knowing the intricacies and I didn't want to get into it without, um, you know, navigating through the adaptive, the, the adaptions that needed to happen. But, but, but when I came outside of the truck and I really started seeing it more of an executive level and supporting executive level companies, I saw how much opportunity that I left out on the table, even within my own fleet. And I'm able to take those things now and install them into companies as well. And what, what were some of those things that you noticed that you didn't realize as a driver? Man, just just the, the the power of networking and relationships that was just so impactful. Because even as a driver, you know, it's kind of like I I, I kind of like make it as a parallel to a corn maze. Like if you've ever done Halloween, you know, you get into a corn, you know, a little corn maze where you got to navigate through and get to the end of it. But you know, as a driver, you're in that corn maze. You're just trying to figure it out. You know, you're going by the ebbs and the flows of the road. And when you do have that much time to really think, 
you know, you really don't see it from a big picture. However, if I'm in a deer stand and I'm trying to help you navigate through a corn maze, I can say, hey, Blythe, no, don't turn left here. Turn right. Now keep going straight. Take two more steps. Go right. And that's where I started seeing things more of an enterprise level and seeing it as, a, as an enterprise level. I'm wanting to help people see things at a higher level, too. I want to see people help think people to see through from a scalability perspective. So just looking at it from a big picture, establishing better relationships, going out to different events, even though it might not be trucking related events, those business networking events. I started to notice how that was a big connector for me, because you may be introducing yourself to someone who, you know, for instance, I, I met a local city councilman one time. And we were just out in a networking event and he was just talking about this huge billion dollar project that they were working on in the city and they needed logistics support. And they were looking for a consultancy or services or logistics companies that can help support that. Well, I wouldn't have known that if I was just sitting in a truck stop and just kind of chatting back and forth about, you know, this broker doing this or this person doing that. So it opened up my eyes, most importantly, in the power of people, the power of networking with people. That was the number one thing that I identified. And obviously the whole tech side, really getting involved with tech on, on on that side and showing how important that is to separate yourself from other carriers because it's such a competitive landscape. And when you're able to identify those niches that you can specialize in and the differentiators that you can provide, it makes you a step ahead of the rest. And I didn't, I didn't see that. I'm just going to be honest. I didn't see that until I really stepped out and looked at it from a higher lens. And then there was no one that was talking about it at that time. There was no direction then. I mean, ha to be honest with you, we didn't have GPSs. Right? We had Randy McNally atlases. So we didn't have I mean, you got to think about that time. But now that we are in the area of technology and technology is becoming so much of a part of what we do, using the power of that technology and leveraging it in our own businesses is something that I'm really, 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 really hell bent on that right now. What about the drivers, I guess, that say that it's, it's too much technology? You're taking away the skill set of the, the driver when they have to pay attention to all of these different tools that some drivers are very good that they don't necessarily, they feel like they don't necessarily need those tools. What is sort of the balance, I guess, between using the tools and ultimately just always relying on them? There's a there's always over leverage, you know, and, and there's over leverage in everything. You know, there's over leverage of technology, there's over leverage in financing, and just like you said, there's some that, you know, that can get out there and they can manage and adapt. But when you have, for instance, when you have insurance companies, and I've seen several insurance companies that require technology in the cab, they require in facing cabs, they require safety monitoring. So they were requiring on those things to help lower their risk. You know, it's all about really kind of kind of communicating the why. And really, when it comes down to technology and the speed of technology, the most important thing that we're doing is we're really trying to just help people understand the speed that it's coming and explaining the why behind it and really trying to get them to get that buy in. But they're, they're, you, you, we run into it all the time. You know, you got, you know, you, there was a mega carrier that made an announcement last week that they were installing, you know, dash cams as a primary uh, focus in their fleet. And they were moving 30, 40, 50 percent of their fleet is going to be all in face and dash cams by the end of the year. So it's moving very quickly. And they're doing that because of the risks that are associated and involved with it. And they're trying to just get this thing more in line with being a really true federally mandated industry. And safety is really, really important. Yeah, it's almost like one of those things where I, I think 
for a lot of folks, they're fearing the anxiety of like tech and robots and AI, like all taking over. And I think it all plays into like that sort of larger fear set when, when you break it down a little bit more, it's like, well, you know, especially when it comes to like marketing and sales and like, you know, chat GPT, things like that. When I, I definitely want to ask you about that later on, but it's one of those things where it's like, uh, you can either use the tools and use them to your advantage or, you know, it's, it's the, the, the cat is out of the bag. Like it's, it's not, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. It's uh, one of those things where you have to, you have to adapt to these certain situations um, and these certain requirements and these, uh, I guess, evolutions uh, of technology and where innovation is, is headed. And I think, you know, with that being said, it's, uh, you know, going into one of the bigger companies, the largest trucking company that has, you know, ever gone bankrupt. That was yellow. Um, they officially mm-hmm. filed for bankruptcy this week. Um, it's kind of been in the works for, you know, a few weeks now, maybe months for folks who may not be aware of the entire yellow situation. How did we get here? You know, I think that really kind of boils back. It starts over. You want to go back to deregulation in the 80s. And, you know, yellow was around for a very, very long time. I think they were about to hit 100 years this year. Mm -hmm. 99 years. So when you go back to deregulation, that causes a lot of increased competition that yellow may not have seen before. And, you know, as they kind of adapted to that and they adapted to their overall competition, um, that became a major part of it. And then when you dropped in COVID, and you dropped in the relief that they received from COVID, that $700 million relief that they received from COVID, um, and the inability to really kind of go back. And, and num- number one, when you have the uh, the government saying, hey, oops, you know, we weren't supposed to give you guys that money, which could tell you that they may not were necessarily qualified for a variety of reasons. Um, and now you become over leveraged in financial ability. Now you over leverage your available capital. And that was one. And then you also got to look at it, too. Labor issues are always are going to be a major component of, of, of the industry. You know, whether any blue collar industry is going to have labor issues. But when you have a company that is managing their labor through a union, it becomes it becomes much more complex. And in some cases, it becomes much more convoluted. So now you've got a third party that's saying, hey, listen, you know, we want this now. And instead of having those independent relationships, that internal human resource process, uh, that kind of leaves it into a third party's hand. And I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say I'm for or against unions, but you have to understand what happens when you bring a workers union into an organization. You got to look at the pros and the cons and the things that can happen out of it. So you, you, you add that onto that and then you look at their overall debt load, right? So you got to think about all of the acquisitions that they took over the last several years. They acquired a lot of companies, and they acquired some some big companies over the, the you know over that period, and when you acquire companies and you're not leveraging that, you're not able to do that. I think all of that kind of came down into a, I hate to say a perfect storm, but man, we were some somewhat some north of thirty thousand people that were affected, and we're talking about fourteen thousand tractors and forty thousand trailers and twenty two thousand drivers, and these are just you know obviously these are you know not not official numbers, but from what I've what I've seen, uh, it's impacted a lot of people. And I think that when you had all of these things working uh, and then on top of the lower demand that we're seeing and, you know, and now you've got customers that when I talked about the competition poor part, when you hear customers saying something about bankruptcy, you know, now you got customers say, hey, I might want to move my freight somewhere else. And, you know, even though they were given a 30 day extension on 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 a default, uh, when you have that and you have your customers running, you know, from that perspective, I think that, that that's usually a recipe, but no, there's no way to come back from that. And I think that that's how they got to that point. 
Was it was it really just the customers that was the final like nail in the coffin for them that leaving? I mean, if you look at it from that perspective, they lost an incredible amount of freight. You know, the when they when they made the announcements, when the you know, when the teamsters were saying, Hey, this is what's gonna happen if we don't tighten up and now your customers like, Whoa, you know, when that happened, um, part of yellow, one of yellow's statements that they released to the public was a catastrophic loss in customers. Hmm. And when you think about that word catastrophic, you know, when you think about demand and volumes, uh, especially in this particular, the angst, in order for me to pay back a loan, I have to have receivables to do so. And if my customers are leaving and I, you know, I'm talking about catastrophic and we use the word catastrophic um, to describe any type of circumstance, we're talking about a major, major dominating effect. And when you don't have those customers in place to be able to go back and make a uh, you know, make a repayment on something like that. You can see where that would cause that to 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 almost be a paid place of no return. So at that point, the, the executive team made the decision and say, you know what, there's no way we're going to be able to come back from this. You know, here's the best thing that we can do at this point, and I think that that's where we got to. Why do you think that they played this? I mean, I, I guess it, it just felt like such a public battle. It was like almost looking at like your parents getting divorced and yeah. you have like a front row seat of every personal detail. That's go- Why did it play out so publicly? Man, you know, I'll tell you, Blythe, and I'll be honest with you, social media is a gift and a curse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people over leverage their power on social media. At the the back and forth, and when you look at some of the posts and some of the rhetoric that was taking place, it was some really really aggressive rhetoric. And I and I understand that part of it was perhaps for them to be able to go in and get a little bit more leverage. But it was it was it was it, it was quite a battle, and it was quite a very very public situation. And I hate that sometimes social media provides a platform in that in that realm to where it's kind of like gloves off, and people forget about handling things like that amicably behind closed doors. It just got messy. It really did. And that's, uh, so I, I worked at an asset base, um, three PL, you know, about 12 years ago and it went out of business after five years and a very similar, you know, uh, not very similar, but a lot of the, the situations that happened publicly, it very much reminded me of what was going on back then where you executives were having a lot of closed door meetings, you know, an entire intermodal department got laid off. We had outside financing that came in to try to save the company. There were a lot of moments that it felt like a disaster, but there were also like moments of hope, moments of, okay, this company can actually be saved. My, you know, I, I don't have to switch jobs. I don't have to worry about finding a new job. And it felt like it was a lot of that was happening here with the yellow situation where the the final couple weeks, you know, I've, I've seen a couple posts from, a, you know, a few executives that, that are, you know, essentially trying to hire, you know, some of the top talent that, that worked at yellow. And they said, you know, basically the last couple of weeks, it was a lot of confusion and a lot of hope. And it felt very similar to, to, to my situation, except for social media was very much in its infancy. This was like, you know, very, very early on. So we didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of that playing out in public. And I wonder if yellow maybe could have been saved if it wasn't for social media and a lot of, you know, a a lot of people acting as sources, a lot of people acting as reporters. Do you get a a sense of that feeling or do you think that this was just eventually going to happen? 
So it just kind of reminds me of being on an airplane. You know, a pilot is going to go through, you know, in a, through the, the worst turbulence and he knows it's going to happen, but he's not going to say, all right, everybody, it's time for you to get scared. All right, everybody, it's going to be a terrible ride. And, oh, you might feel a few bumps here and there. Uh, you know, it's going to be a, a little choppy. So they try to do what they do is they try to lower that angst. And, I, you know, to, to be honest with you, I don't think that social media was necessarily kind of like the, you know, kind of like the nail in a coffin. But I do feel like the rhetoric and I do feel like, like you said, you got so many people reporting and you got so many people putting pressure. You got so many people posting drivers upset. And then you, it, it does it does weigh in. It does weigh in because of the reach that social media has put out there. But I think the demise of, of, of Yellow, whether public or private, um, was was inevitable just because of some of the decisions that were made at the executive level and the executive level uh, decisions that were made, they're people too, you know, at the end of the day. And I, and I, and I know that, and I feel, you know, I feel, I feel, I feel very, very, you know, sorry that they had to make those decisions because now you're talking about, you know, affecting in so many people and it was so many hardworking people that got affected. We talked about pensions that were lost. You know, I looked at the severance package and I was like, wow, you know, you're working in 27 years and you only get a two week paid, uh, a severance package. It was just, it was just a nightmare for folks. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't feel like social media was the the nail in the coffin. But it, it, it certainly wasn't. Uh, it certainly wasn't helpful. Yeah, I, I, I like that you brought that up because that was exactly what happened. And in my situation, where we, it, but it wasn't social media related. It was one person from another company telling me. Hey, I, you know, we're, we're hearing that you're running out of runway and you need to start looking for another job. And I told my brother who also worked at the company. And then, you know, of course, like that starts going around to, to everyone and it creates a, a, a form of panic and fear. My boss had to pull me aside and tell me, you can't tell people stuff like this because it's going to incite fear among the employees. And, you know, eventually it was the nail in the coffin for, for that situation where the executives, the executive leadership team choosing to leave and to go somewhere else. And that was that was sort of the, the end of the, the line for us. And it just felt so very similar. And I could not imagine being one mm. of those employees and seeing the different social media messages, seeing my job, my career, my livelihood being turned into to memes, which, you know, that's another mm. social media aspect of it, too, where it's like, oh, God, that would just kill me if I was in their position and I would mm. see people making, I mean, it is the internet. So, you know, to, to each their own, but that was one thing that I was very consciously like, I'm, I'm not going to make fun of this situation because the people mostly affected are the ones that have nothing to do with the decisions that were being made. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I, I saw a tweet that you, you said recently, and it said to this day, the most disturbing thing that I come across in the industry is the amount of company owners, large and small, that don't have an idea on the cost of operating a truck. The single truck owners concern me the most because everything is on the line with one truck. Now, because of that, that statement, what, and because of yellow, what can other, you know, sort of smaller carriers, even owner operators, what can they learn from the situation? You know, I think that the yellow freight situation has opened a lot of people's eyes up to the, you know, to the overall, hey, you know what? Nobody is exempt from the cause and effect of poor just oversight within the market and particularly with your own company. And I, I you know, that that tweet is really it's it's alive and well in conversations that have been taking place with with with, with clients and other folks for 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 decades now. And one of the things that 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 disturbed me the most and I even had a conversation with a recent um, a recent person who 
was saying, you know, I was just making sure that every load that I got was paying at least 202 a mile. But then we go into the break-even analysis and take a look at exactly what it costs to operate all of the equipment. And their break-even analysis had them come in at 227. So if you're running in at 227 in order for your truck to make money and in your mind, you're thinking that you're doing well at two bucks, then that's a huge problem. And what's going to eventually happen is you're going to do those things like I talked about earlier. You're going to over leverage capital, right? Over leverage available capital because you're trying to have that capital continue to fund your business with the hope that rates turn around and not really understanding, hey, you know what, this whole time. I was running my trucking company at this operational point when it actually cost me to operate this company. My whole strategy was wrong. My whole focus and approach was wrong. And those are the decisions that can ultimately put you out of business very, very quickly. So I think that for me, why it's so it's it's so important that education and it's so important that our narrative is just really teaching people how to run a business. Hmm. And when I and and I say that with the utmost respect to anyone. But just because I can, you know, cook a cheeseburger or I can, you know, I can, you know, make a pizza doesn't mean that I can start up a successful franchise or for, for a successful restaurant. The business components have to be the overarching theme. And then everything else is just kind of the layer on the cake. And what we have to do is we have to get into the economical side from that perspective. We've got to look at the professional side and we got to get better at business acumen. And that tweet was really focused on really just opening up the awareness that the overarching acumen for business as from that perspective and the financial acumen that's required to run a trucking company is oversight to so many people. Because, again, like you said, what they do, a lot of education is I'm going to get on Facebook and I'm going to join a Facebook group and I'm going to say, hey, what do you guys think about this load here? And then you're going to have 100 people comment on it and say, hey, no, don't take that. You need to take it for $7 a mile or sit the truck down and shut it down. You got people getting information from so many di different directions that they really don't know where to go. And unfortunately, I see that all the time. Me and my team, we see those things happen. I'm talking about hundreds of times a day where people are misguided. And you got to look at the statistics at the end of the day. 80% of trucking companies that start within two years fail. 80%, 8 out of 10. We have 51,000 trucking companies go out of business this year, mm -hmm. right? So you're talking about that. These folks are not just going out of business because of, you know, this is the market. The market is part of it, right? Your overall spot market is part of it. But people are going out of business because they didn't know what to expect coming into. They weren't prepared for the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows. So that tweet was really, 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 really guided and directed to get people to wake up. And they'll start focusing on their business because without the business, none of this other stuff would take place. Are you in freight sales with a book of business looking for a new home? Or perhaps you're a freight agent in need of a better partnership. These are the kinds of conversations we're exploring in our podcast interview series called the Freight Agent Trenches, sponsored by SPI Logistics. Now, I can tell you all day that SPI is one of the most successful logistics firms in North America who helps their agents with back office operations, such as admin, finance, IT, and sales, but I would much rather you hear it directly from SPI's freight agents themselves. And what better way to do that than by listening to the experienced freight agents tell their stories behind the how and the why they joined SPI. Hit the freight agent link in our show notes to listen to these conversations, or if you're ready to make the jump, visit spi3pl.com. 
And I'm glad that you brought that up because during COVID and during, you know, sort of the, the 2020, 2021, we saw so much freight hitting the market, but we also saw a lot of, you know, sort of fly by night trucking experts mm-hmm. selling courses and creating, you know, informational products in order to sell people to get into the game and uh, mm-hmm. almost like a pyramid scheme for, for a lot of these folks. What were the lessons uh, that, or what are the lessons that, that you teach to sort of counteract that quick, easy money? What are, what are some of those line items, those break-even points that most people are missing from their business that they're not calculating for? So one of the things as a strategy, one of the things that we teach on any break-even is that every mile matters, right? Every mile matters. So when I say every mile matters, every mile that that truck rotates, every time that that tire makes one complete turn, it has to pay everything from an amortization standpoint. What I mean by that is that everything that you have, every expense that's associated with that truck, regardless of what that load pays, regardless of if you're moving in deadhead, every time a tire rotates, your costs are being paid for, right? So when I say that, I'm saying over that 12 months, you have everything from your fixed expenses, which is your truck payment, you know, trailer payment, insurance, those are your fixed, but then it's also paying for all your variable expenses. It's paying for things that people don't consider, like your factoring fees, right? Typically on a year on one truck, your factoring fees on average is about $7,000. But yet when an owner operator goes in and he's looking at that P&L and looking at that cost assessment, when you're looking at a load in this overall totality, usually what an owner operating a small fleet owner considers is fuel, driver pay, and maybe a couple other accessorials, and that's it. And they say, okay, here's the net. And I'm going to tell you, one of the things that aggravated me the most is when I saw these fly-by-night course creators and gurus on the internet and on social media during the pandemic, you would see them posting rate cons. And they would post a rate con from a C.H. Robinson or a TQL, and the rate con would be like 2600 bucks, And they would put $2,600 minus fuel, Minus drive pay, driver pay, total profit. And that is absolutely the wrong answer. There is so much more that is associated with an income item because with every income item, you have to associate the expense items with it as well. Net profit is net profit. It's at the bottom of the barrel. It's the last thing you as an owner, you as a business owner, you as an owner operator, you get paid last after everything is considered. So when we talk about a break-even analysis and we talk about the importance of understanding what that looks like, Everything has to be in consideration prior to you saying, okay, you know what? Here's my profit. So our message has always been, you know, the tire turns, every the tire turns is what causes the business to turn. And the thing that we really, really saw during the pandemic is we saw people take advantage of the market from, from that perspective. We saw people getting in to, to the business brand new, fresh. We saw people that were experts that just got in a truck in after a year, right? And one season doesn't make you an expert. One good season doesn't make you a good expert. And then one bad season doesn't make you a failure. And what we're wanting to make people understand is that you have to see the full scope. You've got to have some experience into it. And there's a difference when you speak from experience versus speaking from opinion. Facts. I, yeah, very, very well said. And, and I'm, I'm sure for a lot of these folks, you know, for a lot of these business owners, they're they're trying to find where those opportunities are to, to not only break even, but make a little bit extra during these hard times. Are there any sort of, you know, low hanging fruit opportunities that they could be looking for in their own financial statements? Is it or is it just as simple and as hard as just figuring out that break even point? 
I think one of the things is, and I and I don't, and when and we talk about the break even point, we're not we're not wanting to get that misconstrued. We're telling people they need to operate at the break even point. What we're doing is we're telling people to understand exactly what that is, and then you focus on the next item that we preach, which is your operational run rate. That operational run rate is like, say, if I say, hey, Blythe, you know, just from a forecasting or just from a long term perspective, what are your goals? Well, you know what, my profit goals are twenty percent, right? So if your profit goals are 20% and your break-even point is $2, then you know that your operational run rate would have to be 20% of $2. So that would be $240. So now Blythe knows that at the end of the day, every opportunity I have to secure freight at $240 or above will keep me on track with my goals and my visions for my company, for my independent, you know, my independent company, for my fleet, whatever that may look like. So we want to really teach the importance of the break-even. The break-even is your your base. It's your floor. It's your foundation. You know, your break-even is how you build your house. Your operational run rate is your your fixtures, your you know your dishes, your you know all that other great stuff that you put on the on the top of it. I want people to understand and respect both. I want people to understand the importance of understanding why the break-even point matters, but also from a business owner and your business owner as well. You understand, like, hey, we can't plan for tomorrow or, or or Friday. We're planning for, okay, all right, now we're in Q1 of 2024. What are our goals for Q1 of 2024? What are our goals for Q2? What are we looking at? What, what customer relationships are we setting ourselves up for? And I want small carriers to have a big carrier mindset when they're doing these things, when they're going out and they're building these relationships and they're focusing on that financial literacy and acumen within their business. So that's the reason why we're so, so strong on the break-even point. Because it's getting them to see where their foundation is. It's getting them to understand that their foundations change. But most importantly, it's giving them that floor that they can build their goals off of. And it's giving them that floor that they can establish their projection. Now, if I know where my break-even point is, now I know I can say, okay, cool. All right, you know what? I want to make a 15% profit in Q1. This is how we're going to do it. Okay, 15% profit in Q1. Now I've got a book at 230 a mile. I got to make sure that at the end of every week, I'm going to win some, I'm going to lose some, but at the average, I need to be at 2.30. And if I'm not at 2.30, then next week, that means I've got to book more, i got to book a higher rate so I can help bring myself up to that average. So it's all about teaching them that part. And I, I think that that's the most important thing is teaching them the business side of it. And then also, you know, to, 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 to be quite frank, it's teaching them to get off of spot market reliance mm. and starting to focus on building their own direct their own customers, their own uh, freight examples to where they don't have to focus so much on the ebbing and flows of the spot market. And so what, what I guess is, is uh, maybe some of the, the lessons learned, not just from yellow, but from everything that you just mentioned, the market is what it is. You know, there, there's, you know, predictions that it's going to be better in the Q4, that it's going to be better, especially in, in, in 2024. So are businesses going to be able to survive this, you know, sort of, I guess, economic turmoil until those things pick up? Or is it still very, very plausible that you can survive as a small carrier if you're doing everything that you, you said, you know, you have your operational costs and then you have your profit margins that, that you want to go after? Are those things realistic in a market? like this they're realistic they're not easy they're realistic but they're not easy um because you know we're we're at the mercy in a spot condition you're at the mercy of whatever happens so when yellow went out right so 
what that is going to do, obviously, it's going to increase demand on the LTL side, which is going to increase demand on truckload side. Just be, yeah, obviously, it's a cause and effect. And that was a, something that nobody predicted. So the spot market is so unpredictable. And when I when I think about that and I think about, you know, the small carrier and the plausibility of being able to survive these marketplaces, you can as long as you know where your floor is, as long as you know how to be able to control your variable costs, because the only thing that you can control are your variable expenses. Somewhat you're fixed. You can control that somewhat. But once you purchase that truck, your truck payment is what it is. Your trailer payment is what it is. Your insurance is already is what it is. But being able to know how to lower your variable expense footprint, because that's what you can control. I can't control the spot market. You know, I can control it. There's nobody that has a crystal ball. that can say, okay, guys, January 17th, it's on. It's, it's carry go season. Nobody's going to be able to tell you that because nobody knows when a yellow freight is going to file for bankruptcy, when a Celadon is going to file for bankruptcy, when COVID becomes a pandemic. Nobody knows that stuff. So you got to focus on the preparation and you got to focus on making sure that you demand control over your own business and become, I tell you, and I, and I, and I say this all the time. If you're going to be the CEO of your company, you need to act like it and you need to act like it with integrity. You need to act like it with an intention because there's things that you're going to be able to control within anything. But those things that you can't control, you got to be able to focus your attention on the things that you can. And I think that plausibility is, 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 is yes, it's absolutely a, a, there. We still have small carriers out there that's fighting and scrapping and still staying in the game. How long they're going to be able to do that? All determ- it, it all depends. We don't know what's happening out in you know in, in Ukraine and what that's going to do with fuel prices. We don't know if we're going to see a spike like we saw in November and December last year when diesel prices went through the roof. We don't know that. So the small carriers that are really trying to stay into it, we got to make sure that we stay in tune with every single line item, every single day, every mile per hour, every mile per gallon matters. And we've got to teach these small carriers out here to focus on that. Versus on, oh, my God, the brokers out here to screw us or, oh, my God, the government's out here to take us all out of business. Listen, we can say that all day long. You know, we can get back and forth with the opinions on that all day long. But the fact of the matter is you need to know your business and you need to run it like you're the CEO of the company. And you, you had mentioned just uh, just now about, you know, uh, these carriers getting off of the load boards, getting off of the spot yeah. market. Where are you seeing some, I guess, moments of success for, for, for businesses who are doing that? Who, how do you reach out to a customer? How do you develop a relationship with, uh, you know, a broker rep? What, are the, what do those steps look like? Yeah, I love it because, you know, here's first of all, you got to remember your brokers are your customers. At the end of the day, that's one of the things that I see a lot of small carriers don't approach the conversation like that, right? If Blythe's the broker and Blythe's providing me freight and I'm moving freight for her, Blythe is my customer. I have to nurture that relationship. Whether or not, and regardless of all the noise out here is, oh yeah, Blythe's the broker, the broker's out here to screw the small carriers. Well, in this instance, Blythe is my customer and I've got to provide Blythe with exceptional customer service. I got to make sure I pick up on time. I got to make sure I deliver on time. I got to make sure I over communicate and I got to make sure to ask for feedback. Right. So I got to ask her, how, how did I do? What can I do to get better? What can I do to make sure that I'm positioning and I'm at the top of your mind to be the one that if you came across a really, really good, good lane, I would be the first person that you call because I'm going to tell you this spot market freight is a broker's last option, period. That's the last shot. That's the bottom of the barrel. That's the, the dirtiest set of apples. It's just it's putting it on the low board and hoping a carrier with integrity takes it off the low board and gets it from point A to point B. That's the fact of it. 
right? And here's the thing. A broker is a third-party intermediary. Shippers rather work with brokers, especially because they have the fingertips on all the capacity. That's the way it is, right? So instead of getting caught up in the whole, uh, whether it's propaganda or whatever we want to think about it, like, well, just nurture a relationship. Blythe's a broker, but guess what? Blythe is still a person, and she's a cool person. I like talking to Blythe. Let's, you know, that, those are the things that, that we have to get, get through to, our, to, to, to folks' head. That's number one. Number two is, and from a success standpoint, I did a, an Instagram live, you know, about a month ago and I got on a live and I was just talking about things like making sure that you, you're, you're treating your brokers like customers, getting on there and focus on digital freight matching services like Emerge Technologies, getting out there and making sure that you're doing things such as going to networking events that might not be trucking related. Right. And I'm not talking about going out to these conferences. I'm talking about the networking events that in your area, in your cities, in your towns where you can go out. And if anybody is in this zip code, they know exactly what Adam does. And what you see and you realize a lot of times I talked about this on stage about a year ago is that you see folks that run trucking companies in these towns and these cities, but have no idea who the shippers and manufacturers and distributors. They have no idea, no clue who these people are. Hmm. Right. And you think about that, like, how can, you know, if, you know, if you, you come to Charlotte, you can't come to Charlotte and people don't know what I do because I'm getting out there. I'm going to networking events. And even before, and one of the things, even when I started, you know, really getting on the educational side of trucking, I was at every single networking event and I was the only person in trucking at these networking events. It was small business networking events. And I'm talking to people, letting them know exactly what I'm doing. So there's two things I'm doing. I'm bringing about awareness. So they're like, well, oh, well, I didn't realize that, that that's an option. And number two, I'm making connections because now these folks, when they have these conversations, these large scale environments, they're like, wait a minute. I talked to this guy the other day. I have his card and that's exactly what he does. Let me connect you with this person. So really focusing on connections. But, you know, one of the things, Blythe, that I, I, I see people struggle with is they struggle with, with basic communication. Hmm. I hate to say that. Um, it reminds me of my, my, my children. I love them to death. But when these cell phones and tablets and all these things became part of our norm, the new norm is not, you know, hey, hey, Blythe, how you doing? Let's meet for coffee and let's have a conversation. The norm now is just being on Twitter and seeing what everybody else is saying or being on threads or whatever they call it or being on Facebook and really not being able to go out and communicate. So I see a lot of people who feel entitled because I've got a truck and a trailer with 53 feet of space. I'm entitled and you should give me your dedicated freight. Well, I'm sorry, buddy. That's not how it works. You and a million other trucks out there, I have the option. You tell me why I need to choose you versus anybody else. The way that happens is I first I've got a nurtured relationship. It would be like if I would send you mentioned email marketing and how ChatGBT has helped email marketing. Could you imagine if I just just in one email just say, "Hey, buy this for me, y'all. You know, you need to buy it right now." That's not how it works. It, sometimes it's a four. You in sales sometimes four, sometimes five points, sometimes six, sometimes sometimes seven different contact points that you're making to nurture that relationship. And I'll never forget. You know, this is a this is a story that I will never forget. I was I was coaching a customer and she had nine trucks and she was in the Dallas area and she was you know, and, and, and she was on the spot market and we were trying to get her off the spot market. And one day I was just watching her. We were just talking on the Zoom and she was in her kitchen and in the back of the kitchen. She had the oven. She's just like, hold on for a second. I, I've got to pull this out of the oven. And so she goes to the oven and she pulls some cookies out of the oven. I'm joking. I was like, man, I can smell those cookies all the way over here. I was like, you should leverage that. So you know what she did? She went to the Pepsi place and it was like a, a Pepsi shipper that was in her area. 
And she started connecting and networking with the, the folks over at, at the Pepsi facility. Well, fast forward the story. So one Friday, she baked cookies and sent them over to the office. Guess what? That Monday, she was meeting and she cleared her dedicated lane through Pepsi because she just just became a human for a second. You're a human at first, right? Act like it. You know what I'm saying? Act like, act like this is not new to you to be able to communicate. And you know, the crazy thing is, is that at the end of the day, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know, right? But how do you get to who you know? How do I know? How did I know Blight? Well, I got to open my mouth and talk. Hey, how are you doing? What do you do? Hey, this is what I do. That element is missing. It's missing because I feel that the internet has put a lot of pressure on people. And I also feel that people just forgot their, you know, they, it's almost like that whole social social distancing that we've experienced over that year, COVID, became a, an ideology that we're now social distancing ourselves from each other. Hmm. And it's really getting in between us. It's getting in between our ability to be able to work together. That's kind of how I feel about that situation. I, I noticed when you were listing off the things that, you know, the, these carriers should be doing that you didn't really mention email marketing. You didn't really mention social media. Uh, you mentioned going out and networking, baking cookies, doing something nice and sending that over to a company. Those are the things that are going to make you stand out because everybody is, can email market, e- email, e- email and social media. Anybody can do that. But those little things that you're talking about, they take a, a time investment, but they also take, you know, I guess a, a a personality investment is maybe the phrase I'm I'm looking to use because you're right. When you go to some of these networking events and you're not a social person, it can feel a little awkward. But the only way you're going to get better at it is if you keep going and you keep practicing and you keep polishing up those social media skills, and, and not in a digital sense, but in the personal in person sense. You know, you mentioned something about polishing, and one of the other things that people are not doing these days, they're not developing themselves, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of times they, what they want to do is they'll buy a truck, buy a trailer, and they're focusing on, okay, hey, you know, how do I go get on this low board? I'm going to do whatever. But they don't start developing those things within themselves that they're not good at, right? If you're not good at networking or you're not, you, like CEOs have to talk. You have to talk, regardless if you're a CEO of, of one truck and one driver or a CEO of 30,000. You have to have that leadership development. You have to constantly develop yourself as a person. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that all I'm going to do is look at YouTube videos of motivational speeches. That means sometimes I might have to do things such as I might have to buy a book or I might have to enroll in a college course on communication or I might need to do, you know, join a a local thing that will help me speak like Toastmasters or whatever that may be. You have to continuously develop yourself. And as a small carrier, I don't care if you're the CEO of one truck or the CEO of 50,000, I'm going to come at you with the same exact message. And that message is, is that without that self-development and without professional development and progression, there's going to always be a byproduct of regression. And that regression could eventually cause the demise of your company. And that demise of your company can be the demise of your vision. And I don't want that to happen, but we have got to take the entitlement glasses off. We got to take the, the the entitlement feeling that, hey, just because I have this and just because everybody is saying that, like, I'm different. And you have to operate with that level of intention, integrity, and just focus. Yeah, because no one else is going to come do it for you. Nobody's going to save you. 
Exactly. And I, if you haven't learned that lesson over the last few years, I, you know, you, you better learn it quick. Um, so for, if you were to get your CDL today, what would you do differently, if anything, versus when you first got it? If I was going to get my CDL today, what would I doubt is, man, that's a great question. Well, I think for me, I think the, that for me, knowing what I know now, the only thing differently that I would possibly have done that I that I that I didn't do the first time is really really just appreciate those those moments that I was out there and appreciate them for the lessons that I learned. You know, there's a lot of I had a lot of mistakes, um, you know, a lot of heartaches and, and some things that you try to put on the you know the back mirror, but you got to understand it's not perfect. And I think that I still hold my CDL to this day is probably you know, one of my most prized possessions, because, you know, I look at that license every single day and I look at, you know, the things that I got as a, as, as, as a result of it, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't directly attribute my success solely to my CDL. Um, but my CDL opened up a door for me. And once I got into that door, I was able to, to grow and expand in a lot of different thoughts. Um, I just, one of the narratives that you see now also on social media is like, hey, everybody go get your CDL and make a lot of money. Well, I'm just going to tell you that's just not how it works. You know, it's it's hard work. It's sacrifice. Um, you know, it, it takes a mental toll on you. Um, but once you open the door, there's a lot of other rooms that you can go in once you get in the front door. And you don't have to just stand in the foyer like everybody else. I'm the one that didn't stand in the foyer. I got in there. I stood in the foyer. I was like, ah, hey. But then I went to the other room and I'm like, you know what? I like this room better. Um, and that would really, you know, that, that's really kind of accelerated me, but I, but you know, that they could go back on the question. I just felt like, you know, my decision, um, when I got my CDL was, was, was partially obviously because I always had the desire and commitment to want to be involved in the industry. Um, it was also a, a moment for me because I lost both my parents and I was struggling with depression and, and it was also a moment for me, um, to help focus on my mental health. And, and I, and I tell people, you know, all the time, you know, I have my CDL saved my life, you know, especially when you, when you think about, the, you know, just the thoughts that I had and the dark thoughts that I had and, and, and things like that. It really, really saved my life. It really allowed me to see the world for, for what I what I saw. It allowed me to really grow up. You know, it helped me grow up, become a man, become a decision maker. It helped me make uh, believe in myself, you know, and believe in the ability to accomplish things. And, and I just to this day, man, I, you know, I think that for me personally, it's, it was, it, you know, having my CDL changed my life, you know, it allowed me to, you know, live the life that I'm able to live. And, and, and I, I just, I just, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't imagine my life without it. I just couldn't imagine my life without a CDO. And it, it's led to some incredible opportunities as you kind of hinted to or towards, and you have a couple things. So you have the, the trucking meets train your train course, which train your, am I saying that right? Train you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you have that, a new course with them. You also have a partnership with the Carolina Panthers. How did these partnerships come about and, and what do you hope to gain from them? So I think that for me, you know, I, I built my business on and, and on just just mutual partnerships. Really, hey, Blythe, what are you doing? Okay, well, I do this, so we we should complement each other. And every every approach that I have is very strategic. I, I'm always consistently looking to improve the value that we provide for our clients through strategic partnerships. Because you know what, you may be great at this, but you may not be great at that. Let's find somebody that's great at that. With the end goal is to make sure that the customer, to make sure that the client gets the best experience possible. I am so passionate about our clients, and I want every client that touches innovative logistics to get the experience that they will get nowhere else. And the experience that I'm looking for 
is success, right? I want my clients to come to us regardless of where they're at, what stage they're at, and, and, and get success. And so, you know, when we got, you know, when the, when the Panthers reached out to us and the other partners reached out to us, you know, the alignment and the vision was just, just to help small businesses become successful. My heart is always small business focused. You know, I, I you know, I, when I go out to these little small business, you know, they might have like small business Saturdays. I'm that guy that walks the entire room and buys something from every single table. I don't care if they're selling this. I don't care if they're selling that. I'm buying it because I love small business. And, you know, when you support small business, you're supporting somebody that's trying to take care of their kids' college. If you're supporting somebody who's just trying to believe in themselves and trying to put you know, something out there that they had a deep passion and desire to do. So when I reached out and I focused and look at these partnerships, I appreciate partnerships that have small business at the top of their mind. I appreciate partnerships that are focusing on taking care of the small guy. This industry is dominated by small carriers. You know, if, if Schneider, J.B. Hunt, Swift, and all those um, larger entities decided today, you know what, we're not going to move any more freight today. We're taking the day off. You know who's going to come up and who's going to step up to the plate? ABC Trucking with two trucks down there in Ellery, South Carolina. Those are the companies that's going to stand up. And those are the companies that move our country forward. And I am so passionate about that. When I, I, I'll never forget, I was in a truck stop and, uh, you know, early on in my career. And I, I just remember just seeing the faces of folks and just seeing just the you know, they're on there. Back then, we didn't have, you know, the low boards on the app. We didn't have D18 truck stop and all that good stuff. We didn't have that. And they're standing on there at the washer and dryer, and they're looking at the, the screen. It's a, you know, a, a, a television screen with a load and a broker number on there. And just seeing them just get on there and they're rushing to the telephone and trying to get through the first. And then just looking at their face, you know, hey, I was just trying to get home to, to spend the weekend with, with, with my son because he's got his final baseball game. And, and just seeing their faces, you know, dis- disappointment, discouragement, man, it just, it just, I just love people and I love to see people successful. And the things that come out of my mouth when I'm talking about this business, I'm not going to tell you everything that you want to hear. You're going to hear some things coming out of my, my mouth that you're not going to agree with. But one of the things that I'm going to always tell you is I'm always going to tell you the, the, the blunt and honest truth. And the thing is, is that I want people to be successful, but in order to do that, I can't want it more than the next person. So our partnerships were, were, were very, very strategic for us to be able to provide the level of service and provide the expertise and guidance and the technology that's necessary to help our small carriers operate like large carriers. And that's where, that's where that came in. And so the, the, it's a course with Trainual that, that covers a lot of those things. And then I would imagine that the, it's kind of, kind of the same partnership with the Carolina Panthers. So with the, with, with Trainual, we have so many different courses. We have a profitability expert course is for coaches like dispatchers or, you know, you got brokers that are looking to be able to add a different level of, of service to their clients. We have a startup course, which tells people from A to Z how to start a trucking company, all the way from branding, all the way from, you know, logoing the whole nine. It, it covers this like 77 uh, modules in that particular course. And it's not even, and I don't like calling it a course because everybody is coursed out. They're freaking out about courses because people are just trying to get, get rich off courses. And I get it, but it's a hybrid educational experience. And when I think about it, of course, you know, we tab our, our experience as innovative university and it's like a college course. You have to submit assignments. You have to participate in discussion threads. You have to watch videos. You have to do research, right? So it's real 
courses. It's not a get rich course. It's not one of those, you know, hey, I'm just going to you know, put six modules in a course till you get started. Now everybody else still has questions afterwards. So we have a very, 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 very broad range of different courses that we offer. And, and, with, the, and with the Panthers partnership, it's really just that small business partner providing us with that platform to really partner with that. We'll be able to have visibility uh, and people to see, hey, you know what, this is, this is the trucking industry. But since the trucking industry is, 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 is mainly primarily small folks, these are the guys that you need to go see. These are, these are our guys right here. These are who we're going to put our say, hey, you know what? You guys are our guys. And I think that that's what we were looking for from that partnership. Very well said. And it's amazing to see, you know, your approach going from a, a worker who's in the trenches to educating those who are also in the trenches as well. So it really gives you that firsthand insight that, you know, for a lot of the course gurus that popped up and, you know, on TikTok in 2020, you know, a lot of them are probably... I mean, I don't want to guesstimate, you know, what they're going through right now, but this is that you, your education is an example of, you know, we're, no, we're going to take care. We're going to actually show you from experience, years of experience of what to do and most importantly, what not to do in order to avoid these, a lot of these catastrophic mistakes. Um, so, okay, we, we've talked about the yellow situation. We talked about the new opportunities um, that you guys are developing that are already here. Um, but what about some other, I guess, big industry issues? Is there anything else that you want to shine a light on? I think that compliance is another big industry issue. We're seeing a lot of folks, you know, really just try to fall under the radar when it comes down to that. Um, it's never been a small issue, but I think it's you see it more and more now. And, you know, when you think about fraud and freight fraud and combating freight fraud, you see a lot of brokers that are very, very gun shy when it comes to dealing with small carriers. And on the other side, on the flip side, we see small carriers not doing the foundational things that you should do as a business owner to ensure you establish your presence as a small business and you give them that comfort that, hey, you know what, I'm a new business owner, but you can trust me to give me a shot. I'm not going to double broker your freight. So I think that one of the biggest things that we've seen is a lot of small carriers are you know, getting told no, you know, more than ever. You know, you, you, they're getting told no because, hey, you don't have enough experience. You don't have enough inspections. Yeah, I don't trust you. And we're seeing that, that you know, that, that, that quite frequently now. So the whole narrative and the whole mindset was, you know, we've got to make sure that we avoid the way stations and scale, hopefully scale house closer. But, you know, when you're avoiding that, you're avoiding your opportunity to be out and be able to showcase that you are legitimate. And I think that that is becoming more and more an issue, especially for the small guys that focus so much on the spot market. And you see a lot of folks get stuck in places. You see a lot of folks that are not being able to uh, to even work with. I, I remember I was listening to my team explain to me with a new client who was just so frustrated. He was like six months in the business and he now he's just got his hands in the air. We were providing new services for him um, try to help get him move him along. But, you know, for every 10 calls that he's making, the brokers on freight, you know, he's getting told eight out of 10 times just because of not having enough inspections. So um, it's an issue. It's an issue because we're finding that a lot of 3PLs are limited in terms of their 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 outreach for mining their data correctly, um, and they're just given the you know the first right of refusal in their opinion is no, um, and and it's not giving the small carriers the opportunity, which I can understand. They're trying to protect themselves. They're trying to protect their freight, protect the customers' freight. Uh, but I think that we need to come to a meeting table and we need to be able to sit down with these folks and say, OK, well, if this is not it, then wh- what could we do? What could we what, what message can we get out to the small carriers that we can say, hey, do this, do this, do this. And then we'll, 
we can work together. But I feel like there's a wedge being driven. And my messaging this year is really to start to, hey, you know what? I'm getting ready to pull this wedge out. And we're going to have to get to the bargaining table and sit down and really kind of talk about solutions instead of continuously focusing on the problem. What do you think of some of those solutions are? I think that just looking at tech, we're in 2023. Why are we sitting there saying, hey, why, why, why are we saying, hey, a, a, a inspection from a third party um, CVSA officer on a random Tuesday is going to say, aha, that's not a double broker. We have to use technology, right? We are in the era of chat GPT, BAR, things like artificial intelligence and like real artificial intelligence. But again, this industry, as antiquated it may be, we just started using ELDs over the last 10 years. So we are so far behind the tech that it is just insane. We have got to get ahead of things. We've got to we've got to be next step up. We're so reliant. And I mean, Blythe, we're still signing BOLs with hand with, with your hand. Like, what are we doing? I can ship a Rolex through 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 the you know through the mail, and I have to you know have to sign for it. But these are the things that I'm 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 struggling with us understanding. We've got the smartest and brightest people that we've ever had in trucking, right? We've never had the brilliance in this area that we have because of the 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 ability to use the tools that we have to the access to information. We have the most brilliant people in technology ever, but we're operating just like we operated 20 years ago. We might as well just shut the low boys down and put them over the washing machine and then stop. <laughs> We've, we're, we're struggling with adapting technology and we're throwing things at the wall, hoping it sticks. And I'm tired of seeing that. Let's sit down together and hear both sides. And when I was at the mats, I remember there was a listening session. And in a listening session, if you can hear the passion that was in the voices of those owner operators out there. But you know what was not present there? The FMCSA was there, but brokers weren't there. Hmm. I would love to be able to take that same approach and go to a, a broker conference and bring 50, 100 owner operators and let's sit in one room and let's talk about it then. And I challenge folks to make it happen. What about on the broker side of things? If they want to find those reliable carriers that, you know, they, that they also won't get, you know, I guess, fall victim to, to fraud or, you know, double brokering. Wh what are some ways that they can find those really good carriers that just want a shot? Is, is there any hope for them right now? Or is it more like upper management that that's, you know, bringing the, the rules? It's more upper management. You know, I, you got a lot of brokers that just, hey, this is what our compliance team says. You know, our compliance team says we're not going to deal with it. It's, it's just give you an example uh, here in Kansas City, um, you know, I, I've, I've got a couple of clients with large, you know, with large fleets. And one of them has a has a significant size fleet. And I met with him um, yesterday when when I landed and the nicest him and his team, the nicest group of people you will ever, ever come across face to face, met with them. They're hungry. They're, they want to make things happen. But then when you look on from a broker perspective and how they view that carrier, it's just it, I'm going to I'm not going to you know disclose on the, 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 the sources that um, that they're rated upon. But it's it's it, 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 you can see that the wedge is there, that personality that they're saying, hey, you know what? There's an exception to the rule. Hey, let me escalate you to someone else on the team and let's give you another vetting, another part of the vetting process. You know, it's almost like they don't have the opportunity. Carriers don't have the opportunity to prove themselves like they did before. Hmm. How the heck am I as a carrier going to prove myself to you as a broker when you just use a system? Okay, well, the system says that I'm this. Okay, well, let me prove to you why you should be able to work with me. Let me give you, what do you need? What do I need to do? 
And a lot of times they don't have answers. They can't tell you. They're like, well, just get some inspections. Well, that's not, let me tell you something. Get an inspection. Number one, that's not part of the FMCSA's requirements. You know, when I'm talking about the CVSA inspection, right? But number two, it is 100% randomized. So you may, you may not. If I'm running a lane and I remember for a long time between South Carolina and Georgia, there was tons of construction. And the two ways, you know, the, the, there were several way stations that were along that construction line that were, were temporarily closed just as a, as a part of it. So if I'm running that for a couple of years and I got two years of experience in it in that particular lane and I reach out to, to Blythe and Blythe's like, yeah, I can't use you. You don't have enough inspections. You got to prove to me that you're, you're worthy. Well, Blythe, I've been running a dedicated lane between here and Georgia and the scale house has been closed. How am I supposed to get a CFESA inspection? Well, I don't know. Just tough deal with it. That's exactly the message that's out there right now. That is the message. We've got to get better at it. We've got to figure out a better solution. And that solution is we've got to provide them a platform to prove themselves. Give me a prove it platform. Show me a prove it platform. And then I'll say, you know what? I'll take that to the small carriers and we're going to make sure that, hey, you know what? We're going to get the business formed the right way. Now we're going to make the prove it platform done the right way. Now, okay, now let's sit down and let's talk about it. It almost feels like there, with all the data that is in this industry, I, I don't know why that's not able to be verified that, you know, a certain MC number has run this lane for this many years. Is that just not available or are the brokers just not looking for it? There's technology for that. If you plug into an ELD API now from a carrier and that carrier's been running this, you know, motive ELDs for the last two years, you know exactly where that truck has been going over the last two years. Pull a log history, pull it if the data, you can get all that information. But they choose not to. Either they choose not to or they just don't have someone in their ear saying, hey, look, you say he's not valid. Here, let me show you the if the data. Let me see you give you his last four quarter if the bills to show you how hard he's been running over the last four four quarters. Now, now tell me that But we don't you know, that's that's where I say that there's there's more conversation that needs to be had. Is there almost maybe like a. a a digital resume for some of these carriers kind of, you know, take ownership of, of this issue and almost make like an online resume, maybe, you know, using their website or something like that, where they can list all of their, you know, partnerships or accomplishments, or, you know, here's literally like my ELD data, you can download it uh, right here. Is, is there anything that they can do to take sort of ownership in their own hands? Right now, the only thing you really can do, like you say, you spoke about creating that brand appearance, right? Mm -hmm. Getting that website up, making sure you don't have a Gmail address, make sure you have your own private domain. You spend money on a website, you spend money in your presence, you got social media information showing that you're legitimate, you know, and then getting the, getting that part out the way. But as far as digital tools, there's no new digital tools that are carrier friendly that's going to say, hey, you know what? If they come with this digital tool here, guys, they're not they're not a double broker. They have legitimate trucks. They are actually running trucks. And so I just see so many, I see technology not carrier friendly. Hmm. I see a lot of, and I don't want to say broker friendly because that's not fair to, to, to the brokers either, either, but I just don't see a lot of carrier facing data that says, hey, you know what, if Adam's trucking, because you know the crazy thing about this, check this out, Blythe, if I start a trucking company, if I chose to say, I'm going to start Blythe's trucking today, me, Adam, 23 years of experience in this industry, been driven more miles in reverse than some people have pulled forward have seen success at every level. If I start a trucking company today called Blythe's Trucking and I go out and get my MC number and I start an MC, you know I'm going to get told no, that I'm not, I need to, I need to get more experience. That's how the software and that's how their technology today is pointed. Mm -hmm. it, it, is, it, is not, it, is, it is not mined to where it provides exceptions. And there is no prove it platform 
that's out there. Dang. It just feels like the, the, the deck is stacked against carriers and, and, mm-hmm. What can you do except for just take ownership of your own financials, take ownership of your own brand, especially in a digital atmosphere? And then it kind of sounds like, you know, get, get out. Once you do those things, get out there and start networking and making those connections yourself and just hope that they don't have, you know, sort of a compliance department that, that's going to, you know, bring the hammer down on carriers that don't meet the necessary, you know, sort of book requirements for. Is that a safe assumption? That's a safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, switching gears a little bit to uh, the final part of the show, because I have a few rapid fire questions for you. <laughs> um, okay, you kind of hinted at it earlier, you know, Twitter and threads. Do you have a, a favorite social media platform that you like to use to get your message out? You know, I, I, li- I like Twitter. I do. I like Twitter. Or X, um, yeah, or X. Yeah, X. I, I like I'm it because you know I, I I like that platform. Um, that's not where my primary following is at. You know, my primary following obviously is on Instagram, and um, I've got a pretty significant following on LinkedIn. But I love X because I'm able to connect with people from just so many different industries on a more relaxed level versus like I'm on LinkedIn and I'm like this and I'm sitting like this and I'm using proper words and I'm making sure I'm doing spell check and all that stuff. But on Twitter, I can just let it fly. Right. And it's no judgment zone. So I I, I like, I like, I like Twitter X, whatever you call it, but I I like that platform a lot. You know, it, it provides me the opportunity to do those things and, 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 and really get a really true, like full scope, of, of my day. Like, uh, you know, I might comment on, you know, uh, a catch that, you know, that, 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 you know, that was thrown from, from Bryce Young, or I might be able to, you know, look at who, who the Hornets just signed and make a comment on LaMelo. And then at the same time, I'm talking freight. So I can, I can talk, I, I can, I can be free on that platform. Yeah, for sure. I definitely think uh, when Threads launched, I was like, I don't know if the Instagram community is ready for the kind of Twitter energy that's about to be brought here. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think yeah, they I think, were. I don't think they. I don't think they were ready for it. It's just such a. It's such a. You know, kind of like a. You know, squirrel type energy that you know <laughs> that you get on Twitter. Twitter is absolutely a, is a, is a squirrel environment. One hundred percent. All right. What what platforms or digital media strategies should more freight companies be taking advantage of? LinkedIn, one hundred percent, one hundred percent LinkedIn. You'll find the the most most decision makers, the highest of the highs, the biggest voices, the biggest LinkedIn. Period. Like, if you really want to be heard, like like I said, you gotta sit up, you gotta button your shirt, you know, you gotta make sure you come correct. You, but but you know, one hundred percent. I don't see enough owner operators on LinkedIn. I don't see enough. Um, I tell you, there's one you know that I follow, Dan. He, you know, I know you probably follow him as well, but. Like he, 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 he's, he got it. He, he's got it right. You know, he, I, I, him and Ingrid, I love following their, their content on LinkedIn because they're so, so just charismatic. They're so unique. They're so intentional and they just, and, and they do such a good job of, of getting out there. And you got so many people, you know, whether it be three PLs, whether it be, you know, I saw one time, I think one of them, it was a broker that was like, you know, made a comment on, on like Dan's post. And he was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't do it because I've already got my dedicated customers. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy that so many others don't do the same thing. Hmm. I know it, it, with Dan in particular, I think he, uh, he, he's not a podcast listener. We, we've tried to get him to become a podcast <laughs> listener, but uh, he, he's not going to do it. So maybe we can convince him with, with this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, one of the the next to last question. Uh, favorite software tool you use every day that you can't live without? Slack. <laughs> Slack. <laughs> man, I swear to God, I can't live without Slack, man. Now, you know, shout out to Slack. <laughs> Slack. Shout out to Slack. What do you love about Slack? 
everything. <laughs> the fact that like I can communicate with my team, I can communicate with clients, I can do video shots, I can I can integrate everything with it. My emails, you depending on the title of the email, it sends them. It just makes everything one alert and one notification, and it allows me to make things so much easier for myself. But also, like a, from a communication tool, it allows me to communicate better. It allows me to communicate and touch my clients. It allows me to communicate, touch with my team, being able to provide direction and things like that, man. But like, like one hundred percent, couldn't live without Slack. All right, and then finally, I can't let you go without talking a little bit of AI. How are you using? You know, you mentioned uh, ChatGPT earlier. I think I, you know, I've seen a couple tweets about you using Claude, which I I really love. Um, how are you using different AI tools? So we're using it just, you know, just really now we're in a testing phase of being able to use it to make the client experience better. We use it to help the the efficiency and in, in operations and we're using it in bots. So we're allowing bots do um, do certain work for us that really kind of streamlines workflows, make things more efficient and let the decision makers focus on making decisions instead of focusing on tasks. So um, there are a couple of things, you know, I'm, I'm here at the uh, recruiting conference and um, I'm not going to tell them, but I've got a presentation tomorrow that I'm going to surprise them on how to really put chat GPT in the old recruiting experience and be able to write better driver ads, being able to communicate better with, with, uh, with, rec- with potential driver recruits, being able to actually recruit drivers because it's like email marketing, right? You got to, you got to nurture them. You got to recruit them. And, and, and I'm going to show them on how to use automations and things like that on how to do so. That's awesome. Is, is there going to be anywhere where we can catch that presentation maybe after the fact? So I'm going to have my cell phone and a tripod posted up in the back of that room nice. and I'm going to definitely make sure I'm going to live stream it or either, either, either that or I'm going to throw it on YouTube once I get done. Heck yeah. We'll be sure yeah. to link to it in the comments um, and in the show notes just to make sure that, that people are aware that they can watch oh, that kind of content. So um, I guess it, last question, um, anything that you feel was important to cover that we haven't talked about in this conversation? You know, when I think, you know, and I've said this, you know, in in my network before, I think that you do such a great job of organic conversations and I don't know how you do it. Being able to write, ask the right questions through the entire target. You're an amazing interviewer. And I'm not just saying that. I just want the public to really, 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 really see that. Um, you know, we can sit here and talk all day, right? Seriously. We can talk about, <laughs> I just looked you know, up can, and I was like, Oh, an can, hour and 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can talk all day. And, and, you know, when I'm, you know, you, they say that, you know, when you love what you do, you know, it's not work or, you know, when you're having fun, time flies and it's, and it's like that in this conversation. I really, and I really want people to go back and, and listen to versus me saying, what did we miss? Once you go back and hit rewind on this, mm-hmm. go back and listen to some of those points, especially my own operators and small carriers that are looking to get off the load board and really secure a dedicated freight. Don't skip over that part. Go back, listen to that. Go back and listen to my brokers. Go back and listen to the part where we talked about. Let's get down to the table. Let's do a better job of vetting carriers. Let's come up with more strategies. Let's, 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 let's take the gloves off for a second. Let's sit down and let's have conversations. Open our eyes, open our ears and look at it from a different lens and perspective. I want you to go back and listen to the fact that I've got 23 years of experience in this industry. If I got 23 years of experience in this industry and I start a trucking company tomorrow, you're going to tell me, no, I can't haul your freight. There's a problem and you need to come up with a solution so that way we can do a better job together at it. And so when you have the unique perspective of seeing transportation and shipping on, on both sides, so you kind of have that, that real world experience of being, of knowing where the, the gaps are with the way that drivers are, are being treated in this country and at shippers and warehouses all over the country. Um, what, I guess, lessons did you take from those days of working on the, on the receiving end of things into your, your role today? 
Well, it's funny because when I when I talk to those guys, I ask them how their jobs were because I would speak to local drivers and guys who came from over the road, and I would always ask them about how it is. And it, it's funny, even back then, they would bring up issues such as. Uh, uh, parking around the area and I, I would never think about it especially for the guys who drive the the day cabs because they wouldn't talk about it as much but guys who, who came in who did have sleepers and stuff they would always mention about how oh coming up here is really tough and stuff like that and I'd be like oh really you know and I wouldn't know much about it and it's it's funny I, I never even thought of about these things until you know I you know I'm asked to remember when I <laughs> when I worked at these places talking talking with these guys uh, but mainly like what people loved about the going to the warehouse that I was at was they were in and out. Mm-hmm. Like whenever they came to a warehouse like ours, which is like more of a smaller one, it wasn't like a big shipping and receiving place. This is like a plumbing and heating wholesaler. Like if drivers had to come there, they know that they're just bumping the dock, a couple things going in or a couple things coming out because we would be replenished by these uh, day cabs, regional drivers too out of a distribution center in New Hampshire that would come down to Connecticut. And this guy, I mean, he loved his job because he would just, he came and saw us twice a week, but every, like when he, like his type of job was, he was, when he showed up to work, he was already loaded. He would leave, drive down to New Haven, unload, and he'd be unloaded in 30 minutes and then he's gone. And then he'd get back home and he's home early and that, that was his shift. So like I got to see actually how, uh, you know, a good distribution center would run their trucks from, from that company. So it, especially on the local side of things, when it comes to scheduling time off, um, you know, his, his availability to find parking, what he was making money wise, upward mobility. So, and I got to see that from the receiving end before I even got in the truck myself. And so what, what was, I guess, the, so you moved to Texas and you decide to, you know, become a trucker. It, what, what was that process look, look like for you? Did you go to CDL school? Did you, I, I, what does that process look like? Yeah. So to, to get my CDL, well, I had to, you know, go through all the, you know, rudimentary processes of like changing my license over uh, to the state of Texas and stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I did was I looked for, I looked at companies who I would obviously like pay for your CDL because I didn't know. I had no idea about getting a CDL. In hindsight, if I had if I had did if I did know and if I can go back, I probably would have maybe taken out a student loan myself and picked a CDL school to go to, mm-hmm. uh, knowing full well that depending on whatever jobs you get into, a lot of companies will offer tuition reimbursement, which is actually just probably still taxpayer dollars. But what I did was I, you know, had looked online for companies. And I had found, I actually had to find a, and I don't, I don't mind saying this because I'm open and honest. I was looking for companies that specifically didn't hair test because uh, I probably still had some remnants of marijuana in my hair uh, from the time of when I wanted to get my CDL. Because I had, you know, marijuana could stay in your hair for, I don't know, up to three months. And I had stopped, you know, I had stopped smoking weed for a couple months. And I was like, well, I didn't want to risk it. So I found companies that didn't hair test. And, uh, and I, no, this is, it's got to be on the podcast. People need to know because this is important. Like the fact that there are hair tests for these companies, I mean, to test for lifestyle is just something I don't agree with. Like mm-hmm. you're not testing habit, like hair tests are testing lifestyle. And it's just, I think it's a huge invasion of privacy, especially mm-hmm. as states have legalized things me- medically, uh, you know, more than half the country. But that's a different conversation. So I found Pam Transport. Uh, they pay for your CDL school. And so I went through them, went through their application process. Um, which was, you know, done online. I, you know, I, I qualified for them. I didn't have any like tickets or DUIs and they paid for me to go to ATDS, 
which was in Colleen, Texas. So it was about 45 minutes away from where I was living. And I went to that school and there was a couple other people who were there who were also going to work for Pam that uh, I was there with. But there was also people at that school. There's three people I was in CDL school with who were sent there by Texas Workforce Unemployment. So these people were essentially told that if they didn't go to CDL school, they would ha- they would lose their benefits. So it's almost like the state of Texas, the state, the government fo- forced them to become truck drivers. Hmm. I, and I kind of found that a little weird, you know, and, and yeah, it's, that's interesting. And it's crazy. The road we've gone to, you know, I, the, so much I've learned since since meeting guys like Gord and having conversations on, you know, some of my show about like, you know, hiring practice and stuff. But yeah, so this guy is sent there right on employment. But, you know, I got my uh, CDL didn't get an automatic restriction, by the way, I can drive a 10 speed manual for the drivers listening. I'm not a phony. Um, and I started working with Pam and it was, you know, this is the CDL milling industrial complex. This is a company where you're 100% a number. Um, they don't, you know, I would talk to my driver manager on the phone and then I would have a question and I would call back in five minutes and they wouldn't know who I was. They would need my driver number to get me. And I'll never Mm -hmm. forget that. There's nothing, there's probably nothing more that'll make you feel more like alone like when you're like in the middle of nowhere, when, you know, when you're in Montebello, California, and you have a question about a certain trailer number, or say you do have an issue with a trailer, because whenever you come to trailers, like especially for dropping hooks, they could be damaged. And you talk to them on the phone, get off the phone, and they'd be like, ah, yeah, I forgot I had this question. And then you call them back. And then you're like, hey, so and so it's me, Mike Lombard again. And they'd be like, oh, what's your driver number? And it's like, wait, and it's just, not five minutes have passed before we spoke. And it's like, you don't know my name. And that's what it was always like. And they would always shuffle you around. Like I would switch driver managers, like uh, I don't, almost like quote, kind of regularly. Like at one point in time when I was at Pam, they put me on this dedicated run that went from, that was somewhere in Ohio and went between two cities, Huber Heights. And I, I forget the other city. And it was like this run for, uh, I was moving like Coca-Cola. And uh, I was doing it and I was told by my driver manager, hey, you're going to help on this lane. Uh, for a couple days. And I was like, okay. And I did it for probably a week and a half. And at one point I was like, Hey, you know, what's the deal here? When am I going to be taken off this? And like, I I was actually assigned a new driver manager, wasn't even told that I was. And they were like, Oh, you're, you're just on this lane now. I was like, well, this lane would be great if I lived in Ohio. Hmm. I was like, but I'm out here. Like, what do you, what are you guys trying to do? Like, I want to be, I'm making less money because I was restricted on the miles. So like my miles got cut because they put me on this lane that needed more trucks uh, to run. And it's like, well, well, my mileage was reduced because it was a dedicated lane. I was like, why didn't it? Nobody even had the conversation with me. They weren't like, hey, we've got this lane opening up. You'll get X amount of miles per day, per week. Like I wasn't just, I wasn't told that at all. They just threw me on that lane and were like, hey, you're going to, you're going to like, that was it. It wasn't until I was like, hey, why am I still here? You know, that I, that I'm on this. And it's just like that. So that's seeing like these, how these mega carriers work. Uh, as a whole, I eventually got myself on this Walmart dedicated run, which w- which wasn't bad. And the reason why it wasn't bad is because I was in theory working for Walmart at that point. I was just on their rules. Like I didn't talk to my driver manager at all. I just dealt with Walmart. Like when I showed up to work, it was the closest thing you can get to being a driver for Walmart. I would just show up to the DC, check in. They'd be like, hey, you're going to grab trailer one, two, three, four over here. It's going to go down to this store in uh, over in Comfort, Texas, and then you're going to grab an empty, and you're going to go to New Caney, and then that, and then you'll get your next trip from there. And it was awesome. 
because I was working because at that point I was on Walmart's <laughs> how Walmart runs their supply chain and not how Pam and the mega carriers do. But from there, I ended up meeting a kid who worked for a small carrier out of Northwest Arkansas, R&R Solutions. Phenomenal company. They're actually not just a trucking company. They have their own warehousing. They have their own warehousing. They do a lot of IT stuff. They almost have trucking almost as like a just another part of their business to serve customers in a way because they'll do IT disposition. So they had like 25 trucks, 25, 30 trucks, small, you know, small carrier. Um, they and This is when I saw the good side of how a company can treat somebody for a company driver. They would... They got me home whenever I wanted. I went to multiple weddings back in the Northeast. Uh, I would go visit friends in Phoenix. Like as things would come up, it was like it was very great, laid back. They, you know, they they never bothered you. Essentially, you know, you can run the miles you wanted as long as it worked. If you lived in Florida or something like that, it would be harder for them. But me living in Texas, it definitely matters. Where you live definitely uh, has a factor of you know what company you work for. But they were great. And then, came, you know, it kind of came to the decision, you know, where I was, I kind of, I wanted to get, at this point, I felt confident that I think I can get into business. And I have a business partner, good friend of mine, he's my accountant. And we, you know, at the beginning of 2022, made the decision, hey, yeah, let's do this. And so we started looking at buying a truck and it got really hectic, but we got the truck. But what's, what was awesome about getting the truck is, you know, I did a lot of research, get my own authority versus leasing on. Uh, and I did a lot, but I kind of saw... I saw what the lower risk was at that point. And the company I was working for as a company driver, when I told them I was buying a truck, this is how great they were. They were like, hey, we used to hire owner operators. We'd love to help you get started. And so I leased on with them at first and I used, you know, I was on every load board. They let me use every load board for free. Um, and, you know, they let me use a 53 foot drive in for free. We had a good contract set up, 80 20, um, minimal expenses. And that's where I kind of learned the game. And then towards the end of 2022, saw the writing on the wall with the spot market. Spot market was really teetering. Like there, there wasn't really a holiday peak, especially for dry van stuff. And I said, I kind of need to make changes. Like I definitely can't stay doing van. I had a guy over at Warren Transport, a friend of mine. Um, I talked with them about wanting to run flatbed. And they had, you know, I lobbied my case for it. You know, I had unloaded and loaded pipe trucks at a, at a previous job. I said, hey, I can do this. You know, give me the securement training. They brought me on. And that's what I've been doing since. So I've been with Warren for the past six months, moving agriculture, like John Deere, tractors, oversized loads, combines, conveyor belts, like all sorts of stuff. So that's kind of been the the trucking journey, you know, in a whole. Sorry if that was a little little winded, but that's that's where that's what's got me to now. No, you hit on a bunch of things that, that I'd, I'd I'd like to kind of expand on a little more. So so first of all, the the driver manager for folks who may not be familiar, your driver manager is what you're, you're essentially the. From what I understand, it's the first person that you're almost assigned to as soon as you complete CDL school. They're they're the ones responsible for you know making sure you're taken care of and you have everything that you need, and they're really like your point of contact, your your closest, I guess maybe like work friend in the office is your driver manager. Is that accurate? Oh yeah. Like with Pamela, you're not going to talk to anybody else. You, you, they do have, there's this one guy who I think is their boss who will call you like monthly. And I think that's like probably part of their, it's probably part of their employee retention. I, I'd imagine they do. Cause he would call like once a month and just be like, Hey, are you happy? 
like stuff like that. And they like, they'll do check, uh, you know, I remember they would do checkups, but yeah, like any questions you have when you send a Qualcomm message or when you send an e-log, yeah, they're, they're who you talk to. And so for switching up a manager on you and not telling you, is that a case of that driver manager probably just, you know, moved on to another job or they were just assigned to somebody else and you had no idea? Oh, they just, the the personnel staff would change so much, Mm. at least that I saw, because I remember towards the end of my time at Pram Transport, my original driver manager ended up, yeah, getting a promotion. And she worked, I think, on the maintenance side of things now. So if you had a breakdown, because I remember I had uh, something, I had a DPF sensor go on me. And I remember like having, like calling a breakdown or somebody, and it was her who picked up the phone. And I recognized her. She didn't recognize me. And it's like, so they'll have personnel that will move all the time. And then all of a sudden you'll get a call and be like, hey, so-and-so's, you know, over here now. I'm your driver manager. And it just hits you because, you know, you'll have home time coming up or you'll be doing X, Y, Z. And it's just so hard to, you know, it's hard to coordinate. It's, it's I don't, like I said, you, you can, the vibe I got and the vibe you get is, oh, I'm a number here. Like mm-hmm. they look at, the, I, I imagine they're looking at a board of, you know, and they have trucks, you know, truck numbers, and they just kind of move them around to different columns. Like here's Joe, Christina, so-and-so, whatever, you know, they'll have a list of names of DMs and they just like move the trucks over to name after name based on the demand of where they need trucks to go. And that, you know, I just, it's like, as if they don't realize like, oh, there's, there's a human operator in that truck. That's like the vibe, like I immediately got. And there's a lot of people, there's drivers who will probably share that sentiment because especially at these bigger companies, you know, the, the Werners, the Schneiders, like it's just these companies that run in the thousands of units. That's, that's just how they, it's how they operate. Have they always been like that with, with the way that, you know, treating drivers as a, a number per se, have they always been like that? Or is this just the nature of, you know, maybe the industry growing really fast and they can't keep up? What are your theories behind why they, they treat drivers as a number? What's crazy is, is I don't know, you know, based, you know, just off my experience, I don't know if that's the way it's always has been because, you know, you'll talk to older guys who say it used to be different. But in reality, what's crazy is, is pre, you know, pre ELD mandate and, and stuff, and even pre like cell phones, so to speak. So even if we go back early 2000s, 1990s, they, uh, who, like maybe they were less treat you like a number because you didn't talk to them as much. Now, there's all this surveillance technology on top of you where you feel is where they where they have all this access to all of your data, your location, where you are, your hours, where you're going. They have all this access to your data, yet they still there's still this disconnect of treating you like a number. Where back in the day, they barely would contact you and guys, you know, the turnover was still lower and it was, you know, it, it was probably a li- people describe it as a little bit better. So it's like I'm curious too if it was always like that, but I I think the data is in the turnover rates at some of these if for at some of these companies. You know, we're looking at these major companies with turnover into the, you know, into the triple digits at some point. So was it always was it like that 10, 15, 20 years ago? I'm not sure. And, and that kind of leads me in, into my next question because the, the upper echelon of of driving jobs, from what you know, anecdotally, from what I see on TikTok and you know other social media platforms, that Walmart is really the upper echelon as far as like everything that you could want out of a, out of a truck driving job, and that is the ultimate goal is is to drive for Walmart. Is, is that a, a safe assumption? Uh, I'd say it's definitely one of the safer assumptions now. Even on Twitter, I mean, we, we've been engaging in conversation with. 
uh, with more Walmart drivers. The Walmart drivers, and a lot of this information has gotten out there, and like how you said, Walmart being this upper echelon of what a company should be, it's all over. You know, TikTok has become the place for drivers, and Walmart drivers have been coming on there and telling people, hey, this is what we're getting. Like, Walmart's getting PTO. Like, this is our schedule. It, you know, how it is. It's regional. You know, they're, they're, they, it's crazy to think that of all companies, it's Walmart. Who's, yeah. Because Walmart's technically not a trucking company. When you right. think about it, Walmart is in the retail business. And, you know, they're the ones who are out there treating the drivers with, like, the most respect and uh, respecting their home time, giving them PTO, the benefits, the better pay. All that sort of stuff. I, I'd say personally, like if it comes to a, unless you love flatbed, unless you love a different type of niche freight, like if you're just in, into trucking because you like to truck, Walmart's def- become the job to be. They've become the the model of how a carrier should be. I, you know, I said it um, on a previous, I said it on a previous show that essentially they're, they're, they they became exactly what should have happened to carriers post deregulation, hmm. you know. But instead, it has become this spiraling, you know, race to the bottom. That you know, you know, it turned it yeah, it turned into this just you know race to the bottom as opposed to okay, let's you know let's maintain the standard of the standard of what the job was pre deregulation and Walmart. Walmart always had, I guess, the 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 best perception or the best reputation when it comes to treating drivers or is this something that they've grown into or evolved into i I think they definitely evolved into it because pre-walmart shining it was the you know it was the union outfits that were the better jobs because they came with you know they came with regular pay raises they came with seniority they came with um better you know scheduling the pay the benefits like the health insurance it was you know before walmart it was the it was the unions who were really you know, the, the better, better employers to work for, especially back in like the sixties and seventies. And, and I'm not sure if you, if you know the answer to, to this or not, but I, I would be curious to know how long Walmart has had company drivers or if they've used three PLs in the past, like, you know, some major other retailers. Um, so I, I would be curious to know how long that they've had company drivers versus, you know, I, just using like a three PL. I want to say it's been, like I said, I can't speak on this exactly because, because I think Sam Walton himself was a driver. Oh, wow. Like he, he, like he, he was, he was in a truck. And like, I think that that's where the respect for drivers comes from. Cause I remember when I was pulling Walmarts out of Seymour, Indiana, they had, they had a big picture on a wall of Sam Walton uh, outside one of their trucks. Uh, Like, and they gave, and like, you know, it was like this kind of like a motivating picture on the wall they had about basically how uh, crucial the job of being a trucker was. Like, you know, it was like a motivational picture of like how awesome you are to drive for Walmart. <laughs> and like it had a picture of Sam Walton and had it like some quote he said about how the business doesn't run without the trucks and about how they're the most integral part. So it's like they I think they've had company drivers essentially since the, the get go. Yeah, I, I just did a, a quick Google search, and this is you know about his his pickup truck, but it definitely has the impression that he has always cared about that. You know, Walmart founder Sam Walton has always cared about you know the drivers, and he said he continued to drive an old beat up you know F one fifty despite being able to afford any vehicle he wanted. Um, quoting, or he was quoted as saying, what am I supposed to haul my dogs around in a Rolls Royce um, when it comes to his vintage truck? And then there's other, you know, memorabilia about, you know, his his leadership and, you know, 
the Walmart Museum with drivers being a central focus. So that that's really cool to to hear the the ins and outs because I, I would I would have assumed that a big company like Walmart would have succumbed to the the other things that you know other big carriers some of the mega carriers as you said um, ha, you know have affected them that Walmart would be affected by that as well. But it, it seems like they they found a really nice niche for themselves and and just treating drivers with respect. Who would who would have thought um, in in that regard? So I guess my next question is because we kind of talked about a little bit about you know recruiting because recruiting and retention seem to be the hot button issues and maybe well maybe not hot button issues but recruiting drivers in particular you know the infamous uh, we have a driver shortage that has never ever really existed that's promoted by associations like the ATA um, but really it should be more of a stronger focus on retention because it sounds like the company that you worked for for a while if they would have treated treated you as a person instead of just a number, then you would have stayed with them, thus making their CDL investment and hiring investment in you worthwhile. Um, would you say that re- retention is something that that more companies should be focused on? Like undoubtedly, it's a retention issue. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the ATA and their false narrative uh, and their agenda of pushing this driver shortage narrative, something they've done for over a decade. And, it, and it's so funny. And the data proves time and time again that it's false. Yet, you know, there's all this stuff on the, you know, there's so much fact checking and, and uh, you know, you know, independent fact checkers out there who love to call out misinformation. And I'm curious why it's not on every tweet uh, of every news article that continues to, you know, be able to get away with posting about this 80,000. You know, where, I'd love to know. What, where the fact checkers are on that, because it's been proven time and time again that it's just not true. This is all related to retention. But, you know, the, the fact checking stuff, that's a whole other argument. I'll have to take it up with Elon on Twitter. Uh, but it, it, it is retention. And you could see this in the rest of the, the working world. You could see this in, you know, the tech industry is really big on their recruiting and retention and what they offer for employee benefits, what they offer on the job, the th- you know, the things they offer. Uh, you know, you see this at... Even the company uh, I worked at, uh, the the wholesaler I worked at, they offered things like profit sharing that you'd mm-hmm. get, and that you know, vest and invested in things into your retirement fund. Uh, there's so many, you know, other industries every everywhere, you know, whether it's working in, like I said, you know, the tech industry is big on it because they're all about recruiting top talent. Like if you want top talent, you need to be offering something at your business, at your business, at your company, or else why aren't they going to go work for the next guy? And we're seeing this happen now in the industry, except what's, what's really happening is what these companies are offering drivers is so bad. They either, they, a lot of them quit the industry altogether and there's your shortage. Your shortage comes from people just quitting the industry altogether because it's not worth it because what, you know, the hours worked and what they're putting in isn't worth not being home, the pay, you know, the, the disrespect being treated like a number. I mean, even down to, you know, and like even sometimes it's not so much the pay, but the benefits like being away from home. We're at this point now we're being away for long periods of time. Look, for some people, I get it. Some people want that life and to choose it. That's great. This isn't for them. We're talking about the standard. We have to look at things on a macro scale. Like I know drivers who live on the road. There's married couples who do that where they'll just, you know, kind of do the RV life where they'll buy a truck, husband and wife run as a team. You know, they live, they live on the road. There, there's people who do that, but that's not what's sustaining our economy. That's not the... You know, that's that's not how freight is moving at all times. Like, yes, there's a small 10 percent of people who will live on the road. But for the most part, as a career, these people are out for three weeks at a time 
you know, when it comes to retention, like I said, most major carriers, they're, uh, they don't offer PTO until after you've worked there for a year. Mind you, working there requires you to be out two to four weeks at a time. So you're not home on weekends. You're not like you have, you know, there's so many qualities of life you don't get. You know, you have to live on the road. Essentially, their home time is one week out for one day home. So it's like, so if you want four days at home, you essentially stay out for four weeks. And then so for doing that, for staying out possibly four to, you know, most people, like when I was with Pam, I would stay out four to six weeks at a clip. So you do that. You don't even get any PTO until after a year. And then the PTO you do get is one week. And it's not a week worth of what you'd get in driving because you can, you can hammer 3,000 miles in a week, even in a, a governed truck at PAM Transport. I've gotten 3,000 mile weeks before, you know, if you run out your clock and every day and do a reset. So they're not paying you what you can do for a week. They adjusted off this 40-hour scale paid at like $15 an hour or something or $18 an hour. So they pay you only for 40 hours. So they're not even paying you for actually a full week, full week worked. And this is the standard across so many uh, uh, of these companies. And, you know, they, they just, you know, and during this whole time, you're working where you're at, you know, you're at these shippers and receivers for sometimes two to six hours. You're not paid for that. You know, so that cuts into your miles. You're be ridden to the electronic log. You're be ridden to the surveillance technology, like new driver facing cameras. You have all this stuff that's put on the driver. And, you know, they wonder, you know, how come nobody's staying? Like, why, you know, why are they leaving? Well, you know, I could tell you for what, you know, companies like if you want top talent, you need to offer, you know, top benefits and pay. And that and that and what's happening is since the top talent or you're not retaining talent at trucking companies, that that's going to roll that 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 all has a cost that rolls out to your safety. So you're going to have less safe drivers on the road because they're all going to be newer. And this is just a cost that rolls onto the consumer because mm-hmm. that t- level of turnover eventually makes its way to the grocery store shelf, whether people like to admit it or not. And so when we talk about, you know, all of the, I guess, you know, the, the, the mass surveillance that's going on with drivers in particular, is there any kind of data and reporting for like, uh, you know, warehouse, like unloading time, loading time, or is there any kind of, I guess, uh, come to Jesus moment for those kind of employees that, because I would imagine that if they increase their efficiency of, of, uh, of loading and unloading trucks, that they would get more product in, they would become more efficient. The store would become more efficient. Like why aren't those same, I guess, surveillance technologies being placed on those workers as well? And I'm not advocating for any kind of surveillance technology, but if they're going to use data in one way, I, I'm just curious if, if you have any insight as to why they're not using that data and surveillance in other ways where it could be more impactful. Well, it all has to do with, it has to do with the stakeholders in that transaction. So the carrier's already been paid for the job done, and the shippers and receivers have all been paid. The person in the middle, the driver, is the, is the only one who suffers. So that one driver who had to wait for six hours, and the macro scale to these people, it doesn't really matter because the, ser- the, the goods are being sold and the services are being transported one way or another, and that transaction's already been made. So there, there's no incentive at, in place anywhere to uh, you know, to incentivize the shippers and receivers to either load or unload faster because it doesn't matter either way. Hmm. And so when it comes to so, I, do I think that implementing some sort of timers or ELD on shippers and receivers is the answer? But we're at I, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, if companies do, I'm sure there are companies that probably. I mean, I know when I worked for that wholesaler, that distribution center in New Hampshire, the the you know the VP of uh, of operations up at that DC. If trucks were at doors for like longer than 45 minutes, he would he would 
he would absolutely like blow his blow his head off. He'd be like, "Why? Why is this door you know still still you know why is this truck still at a door?" Like he he would hate it. And I'm sure that there are warehouses that do probably have timers on that stuff, and they time like how long trucks are at docks, and they probably have that data. What they do with it, I don't know. It's definitely not in the norm. But we've we're coming to the point now where hey. The government may need to actually step in, and I know people balk at that, and the and the libertarians of the world, you know, love, you know, oh, why do that? Keep the government out of it. Well, the government's got got into it. The government's in it either way. They're they're already here, and what it's doing is it's it's causing it's causing mass turnover. It's causing safety issues. It's completely unfair, to, you know, to to the largest stakeholder in the industry, the driver. And so, if you do something like pass legislation that's currently floating around the house, the guaranteeing overtime for truckers act. If you have to pay these drivers for their hours worked and hours sitting at these receivers, that's the incentive for shippers and receivers to then go, okay, we can't have these trucks sitting or else, you know, they're going to want to renegotiate rates because the carriers are then going to go, Hey, we're going to need, you know, you guys are going to need to pay us more money so we can pay these drivers more. And, that, and then the, that's so that's going to get the shippers and, rece- and the shippers and receivers are going to be like, OK, hey, what if we actually, you know, no matter what, if they're not out of here in an hour, then we'll we'll figure it out. It, that's the incentive they need. They need something. It's gotten to the point to where they need an actual kick in the butt for, from the government to do it. And all it really involves is just paying people for their time worked, which happens in every other industry, you know, at, at any like if you went to any other, you know, people consider trucking blue collar. If you try to tell a pipe fitter, a welder, uh, a plumber or somebody that they're going to have to be at a house or they're going to be there at a certain time and they're not going to get paid for it, but they have to be there. They'll absolutely throw, like they'll rip, they'll be ripping mad about that. But for yeah, drivers, you get charged for that somehow. Yeah. They're going to charge it for you. They're, they're 100% going to charge it for you. For, if you need a road call, if you have a truck breakdown and I had to get a road call once, cause I had a, I had a hose, go, a coolant hose go on me. That road call, you're, you start paying for that road call for that mechanic to come to you. The second from when that truck leaves his house, like that's when the timer starts. So th- that's for a road call mechanic. How come that doesn't happen? If I'm at a ship or a receiver, I'm not saying the second I bump the talk, like, oh, you have to pay me from that starting minute. That That's just unrealistic. But if once we're getting at the 90 minute mark and, you know, thing, and things aren't happening, if you're at a place, like I said, I've been at Grocery DCs, Elizabeth, New Jersey. I was there for six hours. And I was there for six hours because they unloaded me in 45 minutes, but then they needed to, they needed to, to count all the stuff. That transaction is between the shipper and the receiver. Hmm. You, number, you loaded that material. They sealed it themselves. They didn't want me to seal it. So that I carried the freight. The driver carries it. There's no, if there's a discrepancy in the quantity, has nothing to do with the motor carrier. That's between the shipper and receiver. You don't just get to freely keep a driver there and waste my time. You know, and I can't bill that back, even as an owner operator, I can't bill that back. Yeah, you could shake the broker down for detention if he's going to give it to you, but I, that's a losing battle. Like I've tried to shake brokers down for detention time and time again. They don't, they don't give a crap. I had this happen with a guy with Nolan Transport Group. This guy, I would, I, I blew his phone up for two weeks and this guy, and then he, and then he had the nerve once when I asked him for another load to I, I offer I threw out a rate and he dropped it down five hundred dollars cheaper. And I said, hey man, don't you think you owe me for the six hours I had to spend at this uh, HEB DC? And he was like, oh, oh that's my that's my bet on that. Sorry man, can't go above this. And it's like, what what are we doing here? 
you know, it's, and it's, you know, and that's from the owner operator side. And I know I'm kind of going off, but you know, it, back to the original point, circling it back, the incentive now is at this point of, yeah, we probably need to do something that's going to help drivers out. And I think you'll incentivize shippers and receivers to speed things up because it would force, it's the rising tide that lives all boats. I, I was going to say, wh- yeah. why, why are they taking, you know, so long, six, eight, you know, sometimes 10 hours to, to get you unloaded? Is it just, you know, the inefficiencies within their operation or they're, they're trying to just, you know, is it just taking them that long to count merchandise or are there other reasons that factor in too? Some, sometimes it's definitely the counting of merchandise because that's not every, that's not every single load, but I don't know what takes so long because even like, cause when you go to these places, especially since COVID, you know, you're not, you're not allowed in. Uh, the check-in process is very, very separated. Like, uh, you know, I, like, I, I encourage anybody, like, just go on TikTok and search, like, truck driver waiting, and you'll find guys who will be like, and they'll, it'll just be like a clip of videos, like one hour, two hour, three hour, and they won't even know. And, you know, some of these DCs are ones like the, like Walmart and Amazon, you have to drop the trailer at a door, unhook from it, go to a staged parking area, and then they'll call you. The, the Walmart DC in Bentonville, uh, Arkansas, the headquarters, the belly of the beast. Uh, I went to deliver there once, and this wasn't when I was pulling Walmarts. Like I said, being a Walmart driver, good. Delivering to a Walmart DC, you know, not, not so much. There, there's a sign right on the door in big caps, or and not on the door, on the glass window. It says, we have four hours from when you give us your paperwork to unload you. Do not come back, you know, within that time. Like just off the rip set, like that's the standard of uh, uh, setting uh, the tone. Yeah. They set the tone with a piece of paper printed out with black bold letters. We have four hours from when you give us, give us your paperwork. So it's like, you, what power do you, what power do I have at that point? Like, how do you, how do you no- negotiate that? What, what can I do to get out of there quicker at this point? Like there's nothing anybody can do to reduce that time. It's one of those times where, nope, maybe the government needs to intervene be like, Hey, you want to keep these people waiting? Um, well, it's affecting the turnover in the industry and, you know, it's a, it's a cost on the consumers. So you're actually going to have to start paying uh, drivers for their, for their waiting time. And if you don't, then, you know, we'll either stop pulling out of this DC or something. I think it brings people to the negotiating table at least because the conversation's not happening. The conversation's happening on the Lombard Trucking Show and the Everything in Lo- is Logistics podcast. The conversation needs to start happening between these shippers, receivers, the carriers, and and the government, or else, like I said, eventually the turnover becomes unsustainable. And that I would think that there would be, you know, the the ATA, as we mentioned earlier, or some of these other associations. I would think that that would be front and center for them to uh, be prioritizing because it affects everyone. It affects everyone throughout the entire supply chain. So why let these inefficiencies, you know, which sound almost like power trips more than, you know, just try maybe just overworked individuals. Because at first, you know, I, I hear about these these stories and I thought they were, like you said, more COVID related. Um, you know, a lot of people wearing a ton of hats, like trying to get their job done. You know, it, maybe it's not all their fault. But when you set the tone as your time doesn't matter and my time does, I think that there's a, a larger issue at play. And I would think that some of these associations would be prioritizing that. And I'm curious, is is there any theories as to, you know, why they're not going after, you know, some serious issues that affect everyone versus, you know, some of these other issues that are just non-existent, like you said, you know, the made up driver shortage has been perpetuated for the last decade. Well, yeah. So for the, for, for the ATA, they, they don't care about this at all because this is how they maintain control of, of maintain the majority control of the industry. If they can keep the turnover high, 
and they can keep the 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 drivers uh um and they can keep the drivers essentially uh non-unified the more you know the more they can keep them divided the more they can keep them arguing the more they can keep them just in this meat grinder it's way easier for them to control because the ATA doesn't speak on behalf of drivers if they did then you know we wouldn't have issues like parking we wouldn't have these retentions ATA has been around for 90 years what do they do what what do what do they actually do for drivers if they if as an organization uh, you know, and they're the, they're the ones with the the large. They have the largest amount of lobbying dollars to the government. They've been around for ninety years. Why do we have all these problems? If they've been around for essentially the history of the entire uh, trucking in this country, why do you have these problems? No, they all they care about is control because the ATA mm-hmm. is just an arm of these large companies, and all these companies are you know publicly traded uh, megacorps that also you know have other. They have shareholders who happen to work in our government. And so it's just this vicious circle of between, you know, the government, the ATA and these large companies. They need to make sure that they can do what they can to make things, you know, at the, the most ruthlessly profitable for them at the cost of actual people's jobs. And it almost sounds like you're more incentivized to keep the problem going instead of to actually fix it. Oh, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly. And they, they plan on doing that. And, uh, you know, some people may disagree with me, but there's an organization out there called America Without Drivers. And they're doing this and they keep the problem going. They do not want to fix these problems like parking, pay, retention. They don't want to fix these because there's so much money invested in the tech to remove the tri- drivers out of the vehicle. So that, that's that's the overall end goal is they, that there's so much money involved in technology, billions of dollars to get drivers out of the truck because at that point in time when they're able to remove the driver from the vehicle, you've removed the uh, – they're able to seize control of the operation. So the people who can afford that technology who can drive trucks without drivers will only be – Seven to twelve major companies: Your Knight Swift, Warner Schneider. So only the large companies, all the medium-sized carriers and down, even the guys who own fifty, hundred trucks, they'll never be able to afford it because the technology is so expensive, and it's it's basically the holy grail of what they need. That all the big companies will seize control of the industry, and essentially, what would happen is trucking would go the way of the railroads, where it's only owned by very few companies. And then we're at a point to where the federal government has ownership of the supply chain. People think that sounds tinfoil hatty. People think it's conspiracy. But when you look at the when you look at where some of these people work, you when you look at Elaine Chow, who you use, who is Mitch McConnell's wife being involved with Too Simple. When you look at these people who are on all the um, you know the board of directors for these mm. mega carriers and the people who where the ATA people all came from and who they're all invested with. It's all it's all very much connected into this one wheel, and that's that's what they're doing. They need the problem to keep going, so that way they're they're continually incentivized to get the drivers out of the trucks sooner, because that's what'll happen if we don't get ahead of these issues, if we don't get ahead of the tech, and if we don't get ahead of just making this a better career for people for generations to come. So that's the biggest thing. You're talking about a job here that is the number one job for high school educated males in all 50 states in the country, and you know when you talk about eliminating that. The societal backlash, and I think the, the the knockdown, what it will do to the to the overall economy would be would be detrimental. But it allows the ATA, you know, that's just the casualties of war to these mm-hmm. people, you know, it, and it's all just for them to maintain control. And so, for 
I, I guess you, you kind of hinted to it w- w- with the tech side of things. So autonomous vehicles have been touted for years and years. I mean, I, admittedly, I, I, I've been to conferences and, and events where you see these big autonomous vehicles, the LiDAR cameras that are on the side of them are admitted. I, I'm an archaeological fan, so I LiDAR technology is truly fascinating to me. And to see some of this technology up close in person is is very impressive but I still don't see a world where that truck is driven without a driver inside. Is that is that what you you feel like is is, is happening with the driver position? Is that the, you know these a lot of these big companies would rather just have no drivers and they foresee a future where it's just all autonomous vehicles all the time? They they definitely see it that way. And now the the ones who are trying, you know, there's a lot of gaslighters out there who are trying to say, oh, it'll never have a. And they're doing that with photographers now too when it comes to AI because. <laughs> The people who are really on the firing line first now, accountants, photographers, graphic designers, and they're trying to say, "Oh, we'll always need that. We'll always need them. We're going to need a human to check them." That's you know, that's all you know, smoke and mirrors. And they're doing the same thing with trucking. Oh, it's still going to need a human operator. We can't get people to stay in the seat to drive the truck, and they're going to expect to now probably drive down the wages. And you're going to have a human be in the truck and do nothing. And then be, and be away from home, and they're not even going to drive it at all, and have no autonomy. They've released all autonomy from the truck. The operator's just going to sit there in the sleeper and uh, literally do do nothing, you know. And, or if anything, they're going to stay in the driver's seat with their hands off the wheel and just be able to snap to for an emergency, it, like all of a sudden after you know the truck's been moving for fourteen or fifteen hours or something like that. Even the thought of that is unreasonable. The mm-hmm. the definite main goal is to remove. The driver from the vehicle. They look at it as a, you know, they a driver's salary to these companies is pitched as a, 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 a it's it's a part of their budget sheet. It's an operational cost. They think the salary they they just call the salaries back to that number thing. Mega carriers look at drivers as just a number. They see their salaries as an as a as a uh, you know an operational cost. When really that operational cost is a salary that goes to a human being who buys homes, has kids, buys food, and is a participant in this economy and in this market. And eventually, when you do this with this technology, eventually you're going to run out of people's money to to start take like because you're going to want them to keep consuming. Well, when you've taken the jobs away of photographers, journalists, graphic designers, truckers, like I said, number one job of high school educated males in all 50 states in America, when you eliminate that job, where do they spend their money? Where are they supposed to go? How do you repurpose them? You know, you can't just, you know, and what are you going to do? You're going to tell them to learn to code. Eventually, eventually the coders are going to be out of a job. Eventually the coders are going to be taken over by the AI. So, no, I hate to sound very slippery, slopey and, and doom and gloom, but this is just why I'm so passionate on solving these issues and how, you know, if the American people knew about these issues, and realized how just unsafe and unsatisfactory they were because in other industries and in other jobs, if they couldn't do things like if you couldn't go to the bathroom at your job, you know, if if you weren't allowed to use the bathroom, oh, sorry, you can't use the bathroom. We're actually not letting the accounting team use the bathroom anymore because a couple of the accountants were really dirty. This is something drivers, this is something women drivers deal with on a daily basis. Oh, we don't we don't let drivers use the bathroom because a couple made them dirty. Oh, you, you can't park here because they make it dirty. You know, so just to the point where going to work and coming home from work as a truck driver. So starting, you know, starting and stopping your day and doing regular things throughout your life has become a roadblock. If this is in any other industry, streets would be, you know, people would be revolting. People would be rioting. But like I said, they've driven the floor down with this race to bottom 
with bringing in truck drivers. We're at the point now where state governments are forcing people to go to truck driving school. And when you can do that, when you can keep the talent turning over, when you can keep the talent pool low, you're not, you know, you're not going to have any pushback and you're not going to have people who are going to stand up for the job because they don't really care. What do you mean by the, the state forcing people to become drivers? Is it more like a work release program or, or how does that work? Oh, like, like I said, like I mentioned that earlier about how when I went to CDL school, three people were there sent by the unemployment office. They said, you know, we're going to cut off your unemployment if you don't go to CDL school because the CDL school itself is, you know, tax is taxpayer subsidized. And so they just send, you know, these they just send these guys there for free. But that, that's how they threaten them to get them off unemployment. So they're, in a sense, being forced to become a truck driver. Mm-hmm. They're not being forced to go to school for anything else. But they're being forced to go to school being uh, being a truck driver. That's what I mean by like the state wow. forcing people to do it. Yeah, that that's I, I've never heard that before. I would assume that maybe you would you would have an option to choose from a variety of different trades uh, to to pick which one you would like the most. But if you're being forced into one and only that, that definitely sounds like some lobbying efforts that are going on there. Mm-hmm. The ATA and their agenda and its consequences. Are there any companies? besides Walmart that are are doing a good job of of treating their drivers with respect and to to make it to a, an attractive career that you know allows for that retention of the driver for you know 30 years like like you said before yeah it's the company i used to work for R&R solutions they're great like uh, most of the drivers there have stayed for 5 plus years the only reason they left is they wanted their yeah they wanted to get their own truck and you know, move freight for some friends. They made connections to do it that way, which is good. You, I, you know, you, any employer encourages that. Like I said, you know, R and R was so nice when they found out that I bought a truck. They wanted to help. You know, it's it, that's that's a sign of a good company of when you're gonna is when you're gonna quit. They want to help you get to the next level. They love, mm-hmm. you know, they love that. And so that, them them as is how they operated. You know, what their pay scale was, what their PTO was. You know, what you know what their bonuses were. <laughs> you know, their, their mileage or safety bonuses, just how they treated you with, you know, the absolute, you know, the utmost respect when I was there for orientation, gave me a company car to drive around, paid for the hotel for me to stay at. Like they, you know, uh, when they were still waiting on some paperwork, they, um, I, you know, they wanted me to get paid. So they let me drive one of their day cabs and do local routes. And, you know, so, so they'll, they'll get, you know, they'll keep you rolling, get you moving. But another company I really want to give a huge shout out to, is a company called Central Oregon Truck Lines. They're a, they're a flatbed company, and they have employees not paid by the company who post on TikTok quite often about what their paychecks are, and they go into detail about what they're paid, what they're paid per mile, how they get raises, their tarp pay. They are a flatbed company. Um, they give you the option of wanting to drive a ten-speed manual, so they're not forcing you into trucks maybe you don't want to be in. So they they you know they want guys to be in trucks they want. They like to you know they give them. They give them like the most autonomy they can, which is the biggest thing. It's like giving the driver the autonomy. But then on the, but on the same way, they're you know what they have for benefits on PTO and what you know. However close, if you if you live in a certain area, you could probably get home every week. You know, I there's a I'm in a Facebook group where somebody was talking about how they had a load get canceled that was supposed to take them home, and Central Oregon paid for their flight home. You know, to to be home for Memorial Day weekend. Think like getting a rental, like paying for their rental cars if they had a breakdown, like insane stuff. The company essentially bends itself over backwards for their drivers. Hmm. And this and this is coming from their drivers. And I had a, one of their drivers on my show who went into detail about how that's 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 why he's there. Like 
he came, he wanted to buy his own truck too and kind of do his own thing. And he just came to the decision of why would I? What, like when he went to when he to, you know when he put his paycheck versus what he'd get as owning his own truck, and then the benefits of how often he can go home, the you know everything like that. When he weighed the options, he's like. I'm better off. Like my quality of life is better here at this specific company. So Central Oregon Truck Lines, I, I have to give them a shout out. And I'm sure there's many others. And I know that there's others. I always like talking to people uh, on my show who have good companies to talk about because it, it's, it's you know, I don't, that information is hard to find. When it comes to finding a good company to work for, it's either, you know, it's either through word of mouth mm. or meeting people. And, you know, you're not going to find them online because if you search best trucking jobs, the ones that come up are the ones that just pay the most amount of money in SEO ads. Yeah, they, they've hacked the SEO system in order to to, to make that happen and, yeah. and make for their, I guess, their listing to appear higher. I know all too well about those those different tactics. Um, but separately, I, I will say that um, another trucking company based in, in Dallas, Texas, or yeah, it's, it is Dallas, Texas, BCB Transport, Full disclosure, a client of mine, but they they are very rare in that they have a five star review on Google and they create a ton of great content um, for their drivers. They're always you know preaching a, you know a culture of safety. Um, so there are some out there, but I, I've always just wondered you know why they're what kind of benefits are being structured at some of the smaller carriers versus the larger carriers and how do those compete? But it sounds like the larger carriers are kind of, or the, the smaller carriers are almost with their benefits and the things that they actually care about, you know, there, there's a lot of lessons that could be learned there, you know, by, from the bigger companies mm-hmm. or and, on and, behalf of. And it's, and it, it gets really tough because it, it, with, with finding that good respectable carrier, because then we get into the argument of 1099 versus W2. And some people think that you can pay possibly pay less in taxes off of 1099, but there are a lot of small carriers out there who are kind of, you know, fly by night, they have older, you know, older modeled equipment and they, you know, they just kind of need guys and trucks and yeah, they'll, they'll treat them right and run them whenever they want, but there's still no benefits there. There's no mm-hmm. retirement. There's no 401k. There's no, um, you know, there's no pension or, or that, that, you know, there's no, you know, there's no PTO really, you know, so they'll pay these guys. Cause I see it all the time, especially it's popular in Texas. Uh, you know, there'll be guys who have, you know, eight trucks, they're pulling containers out of Galveston or what have you, and they'll pay you 70 something cents per mile or something. But, you know, there's no PTO. There's no, like, there's, there's still no incentives to it. it. It's, I wouldn't have a reason to go do that. So that a lot of people will sell. A lot of people will maliciously recruit off of saying, we'll pay percentage or we'll pay you 1099 at X amount of cents per mile. And it's like, but you're still running yourself into, it's not sustainable as a career. Like it's not, that's not where you want to be career wise because most people eventually have families. Most people want houses. And when you're a 1099 guy, it's really hard to get a house. So it's like that, the way the structure is set up for where guys, where people can go work or how they work is, is really tough. And so with all of, I guess that we've covered a lot of topics, you know, really, you know, hitting into a lot of the bigger problems that exist and permeate throughout the the trucking industry. And you hinted to it earlier, but you, you talk about a lot of these issues on your show, the, the Lumbar Trucking Show. And so Give us a sense of, uh, you know, you're obviously very educated and, and passionate on these topics. Is that primarily the reason why you wanted to start up your own show? Yeah, I'd say it's it's definitely a part of it. it, it that's where it, that's where it eventually led itself to. Because the reason why I wanted to start making content was to tell my story. 
because I was learning about trucking from other people's stories. At first, when I started driving, I was like, I don't want to put myself out there. You know, I don't, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself. You know, you know how, you know, the internet can be ruthless. I didn't want to fall <laughs> victim of any, you know, I didn't want to a hundred people calling me a dumbass or I did it wrong or you're stupid. But then eventually I was like, well, you know what, if I could share my corner of things that can help because that's the thing I saw other problems people were having. I was like, well, let me put my story out there and, and start just telling about, you know, talking about what my day to day is. And then as that, you know, as I kept talking about it, I kept learning and then I kept seeing the issues and I was like, well, hope now, wait a minute. I, I feel as though I kind of felt obligated, like, Hey, we need to talk about this stuff because I don't think this is right. And I don't think we're in a, you know, in a sustainable, I don't think we're in something that's sustainable. And then I got my own truck and learned even more just about things going on in the market. Like you just, it just absolutely exploded. Like, you know, you know, burst, bust the doors wide open on learning so much. And I just met so many more people that that's where it is now. It's like, Hey, I want to start having these conversations with as many people as I can and um, get, you know, get this content out there. And along the way I can rebuild my brand alongside of it, because I I come from the, I I come from a good place of trying to, to unify rather than try to diversify and, and split the issues. And there's, there's things I think people can come together on in this industry is, Hey, we could probably fix parking. Um, Truckers probably deserve a little bit of a raise. And hey, also they're doing a job that can kill you. Like, so we're at this point to where, you know, tr- you know, the job itself isn't the healthiest job. It requires living on the road. Um, it requires you having to do things like, you know, uh, maintain, you know, maintain your, your healthy eating. You're sitting for long periods of time, which isn't good for you. All of that are factors into this recruiting and retention because when you are, you know, when you are unhealthy, when you are not taking care of yourself, you are not as coherent and not as likely to self-advocate for all the issues around you. And for all, you know, for by any sense of this, when you are in a position to where you are, you know, unhealthy, weak and docile, you're not going to think you do deserve these things. So you just have passive aggressive, you know, or projections outward. So they don't care. They think is, oh, I'm going to wait at the ship or receiver for a while. I guess that's life. I guess I deserve this. And that's where it goes. And so that's another part of the reason why I twisted content is because I've been going through a health a health journey and, and a health and fitness journey and be trying to become the best possible version of myself in that during that pathway. Uh, I've just learned that personally, I, I know my worth. Mm-hmm. And so in being over the road and staying physically fit and doing things like training to run full marathons, um, in that in in during this journey, I've realized that I'm worth more. You know, I've realized that I deserve more. I'm not just a truck driver. I'm Lombard, you know, like that, that's who I am and what, what I bring to the table. Like when I'm out here delivering your freight, like I'm the face of, you know, I'm the face for, for Warren transport when I'm delivering certain the freight, but I'm also the face for myself and my own brand. And that, that applies to every single driver. Like they need to realize that, Hey, fit, fit right now or not. Hey, you are actually worth more. You're worth a hundred percent more. So when it comes to uh, truck parking, when it comes to you getting more pay, yes, these drivers deserve it. So I come at this from the foundation of, hey, if we start taking control of our health, personal excellence, this is for drivers, and this is really for anybody, your personal excellence as a person is the number one rebellion in all this. Because if everybody could start to come together on their health and fitness, taking care of themselves, becoming elite versions of themselves, because when they do that, they're going to want to know more. As I, it, like, it happens in this health journey because as your physical health improves, so does your mental health. And all I want to do, you know, besides, you know, be healthy and work out is I just want to keep learning. 
learning about what brokers to do, learning about what the customer service department does at Warren, learning about what every role does so I become better. So that way, when, when push comes to shove, oh, no, I know what you guys are talking about. I know what you do. I'm worth more. I'm not just a truck driver. Mm-hmm. And when I and so and that's why I'm making the content I do from the position I do because I want other drivers to know, dude, you're you're worth you're worth it. You guys are worth it. You're better than how the government's treating you. You're better than how the the shippers and receivers are treating you. You're better than how these mega carriers are treating with you. You, you know you all you know a lot of guys. You go on TikTok, they'll say, "I'm the lifeblood of this country. I'm a driver. I do this hard job. I do this." Okay. Do the hard things as well to keep yourself, you know, elite and mentally and physically fit and then see, you know, how they how they treat you. Then see like you, you, when you become a force to be reckoned with, they're not going to keep, you know, they're not going to push you over. Like I said, they like it. And this is a societal thing. They want you weak. They want you, you know, tired. They want you sick. They want you dependent. And they're doing that with the labor industry of the trucking market. They're keeping them weak because they're at the point they'll just quit. You know, they th- like they're just quitting, and the more they keep quitting, keeping it going, the better. So, the number one way to start improving today, you know, some of these things, start doing the hard things, getting fit, and taking care of yourself, and that's kind of where I aim my, you know, I, I stand on the platform of that with my content, and then with that voicing and talking about the issues at hand, like parking, like pay, you know, like these big carriers and the ATA's agenda. And it's just, it gives me a solid grounding to, you know, really speak on this stuff from. And I I love that you brought up the fitness aspect of it, because I I remember very early on, you know, during COVID when, you know, I I had heard from this epidemiologist that was on, you know, Joe Rogan program and uh, I was taking notes because he was talking about how, you know, had how COVID had impacted China and how it impacted smokers more than anything. And that, you know, with the U.S. and he was specifically asked, well, do you think that that COVID is going to impact, you know, the U.S. in the same way? And he said, it's going to hit us worse because of the obesity epidemic that's gone on in this country. That's almost not almost it's definitely celebrated now. And he was giving so much, you know, his advice was to make sure you get enough sun and to work out and stay fit. And hopefully you will be okay. And I remember listening to that podcast like in March of 2020, right when everything was, you know, the shit was hitting the fan. And I, I told him I, I was already pretty fit, but I, it was a much more of a conscious effort to try to control what I can control. And those, since then, it's just been sort of, you know, industry after, I guess, institution after institution is just so, the trust level is so low nowadays that I am so thankful that I was able to listen to different opinions early on during that crisis because I I, I felt like it really saved my mental health, it saved our family's mental health, and, and just the concept of ownership of your own health and journey and how that can lead to a more positive positive outlook on on life because there's so much unhappiness now that it just permeates throughout the entire country on social media and I wonder if I, I do wonder if if that has a strong um I guess effect the lack of working out the lack of going outside the lack of taking care of yourself if that is by design you know by the institutions at large you know not to put on a tinfoil hat theory, but I, I do firmly believe that, you know, the, 
what you just described of what's happening to truck drivers is also happening to at a large scale, um, the, the population of the US where you are just put into this bucket of, of they want you to be dependent on the state instead of being that self reliant sort of, you know, the the concept of what yeah, I guess sort of makes, uh, you know, an American an American is is kind of, I guess, where I'm trying to go is you need some self-ownership. You need to be able to take accountability and taking care of your health first and foremost sets you up with that strong foundation to take care of every other stressor in life that is going to be eventually thrown at you. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's funny you say that about whoever that epidemiologist uh, was, because I'm sure him saying that in an interview probably garnered negative attention from mainstream narrative. Oh, it was taken down like, from YouTube, the whole yeah. nine. And I thought this was such a nuanced conversation. Why would you, you know, badmouth that? It was clearly by design. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, it says a lot about, you know, how people view that. That's why, that's why, like, and I, I take that phrase from Andy Frisella, who has said personal excellence is the number one rebellion because being fit at this point is now a, a stance of, of rebellion against that because the, there's a narrative being pushed that you don't have to be when really that's untrue. And it, it trickles well, it's celebrated right. too. Yeah. It's celebrated oh, yeah. being, being obese. And that's, yeah. I'm like, you're going to die 20 years earlier because of this. Why are mm-hmm. you listening to this? Yeah, I'm not saying go out there and berate people for be you know being obese. Like I said, I was sure. you know I was 275 pounds at one point, and yeah, I wouldn't like it if you know I wouldn't. I don't want to be absolutely bullied, but there's also like I also don't want to be uh, lied to. Like I, like if a doctor ever told me that hey you're you're on the right path, you're you're good to go, you could sustain this you know for the next hundred years if you want to live for another hundred. You're like no, at that point it's not. But that's where it's where it's headed. And, and in regards to the trucking thing, if if health and fitness. And this is how you know the mega carriers don't care about health and fitness, because if they did care, they would create an environment. The employee environment for drivers would be encompassed around it. Like they would be encouraged, like all they'll say, and, and, and they do this all the time because CSA scores talk about driver fitness is something on CSA scores. And so they give the rhetoric of, oh, you should exercise for 30 minutes a day and, and sleep eight hours a night. And it's like, and, and they tell you what you should do, but it's not about, yeah, it's like, I, well, I could tell you what to do too. I, you know, I could tell you to do things and this is how you stay healthy, but you need to, you know, you need to create the environment where that's the norm. So these companies, they do nothing in regards to, to health and fitness, you know, that like went, just went just down to the, to the parking level. Like the fact that this, this job requires you to sometimes park in strange parts of town or Walmart parking lots or something like that. The environment for the truck driver doesn't even encourage, you know, this sort of uh, this, you know, this sort of healthy lifestyle. The amenities that are around for truckers never su- doesn't support this lifestyle. The food that's at the truck stops. So at the so at mm-hmm. the largest scale, so at the largest scale from the, these top retail truck stops on down, they sell you unhealthy food. The trucking companies don't care. They don't, you know, they don't encourage you to grocery shop. They don't pay for you to have an air fryer in your truck. They're not trying to tell you, hey, this is what a diet is. You know, they don't have nutritionists working for their companies. They don't invest in any of this. So, and if they, so if they did care about the health and wellness of their drivers, they would do something about it. We have companies that I have a, I was just talking to a girl the other day. She said that the health insurance from her company pays for a year subscription of Peloton. Find me a trucking company that that does that. Hmm. You know, find me a trucking company that uh, has you know uh, gives you uh, HSA or discounts to go to chiropractors or for yeah free yoga uh, streaming 
or something like that. It, it's not, like, that's the thing. It needs to be taking care of yourself and, and the health and fitness. It needs to be the crux of any employer because let's face it, we're, you're at your employer more than you're with your own family. And so your employer needs to have it. Some Your employer is an influence on your life now. It's not like you just clock in, clock out. Maybe it used to be that way in the 80s. But guess what? Work comes home with everybody. People are very into their careers. They're career-driven at this point. So, And these, these companies know that a, a healthier and more fit employee, a well-taken-care-of and healthy employee, is going to be more productive, more alert, better at what they do, more passionate, perform better. And the same thing applies to truckers. If you want to keep them, you know, eventually it becomes unsustainable for the driver. They fail at DOT physical, you know, where, whatever pathway they go. These drivers alone, even if they make it their whole career, they probably won't make it to retirement. They mm. could like average, you know, the average age of retirement in the U.S. is 64. The average life expectancy of a truck driver is 61. So even if you, no matter what, whether you quit the trucking industry or you stay in or whatever, the odds are you're not going to, you're not even going to make it. So you worked all your life, you know, for these people who kind of took advantage of you and, you know, and, you know, we're just supposed to thumbs up that it's okay. You know, these people are just, you know, casualties of it. Like I, and I hate to sound doom and gloom. I trucking as a whole, as a career has repurposed me in so many ways. In fact, you know, if you talk to me over three years ago, I wouldn't have this level of, of passion. I wouldn't be this fired up because I, you know, I wouldn't care that much. I would just can't be caring about, you know, getting off work. I work twice as much as I've ever worked like in my life, uh, some weeks, uh, and I'm doing more, producing content, training for marathons, helping other drivers with their fitness on the first format. I'm doing so much more with with less amount of time. Trucking has done that for me. It's you know it's such a career that's motivated me in a certain way. But I know that there's problems we just need to fix because I want to. I'm trying to leave the world a better place than you know when I got it. That's what I'm trying to do. Like I came into something. I want the next generation of truckers to succeed, thrive, and do well. And there's things along the way that we need to fix uh, or or else they're not going to be able to have it. So with you creating content, yeah, I think you just celebrated your, your 69th episode, obligatory nice comment in there. And so you, you have the you have the privilege of being able to talk to several different people within the industry, you know, leaders, truckers, um, you know, when I say leaders, I mean, leaders that, you know, within the organization inside the company, and also drivers as well. Um, other folks from, you know, that surround the industry. So if you were to give advice to other carriers out there who want to recruit better drivers, who want to retain them once they actually get them through the door. What kind of things have you seen from other companies or maybe even some of these mega carriers um, that that should be implemented? Is it a, is it a fitness program? Is it um, full benefits from the day that you start? Is it, um, you know, I guess, I don't, I don't know what they could do about truck parking because that's such a, you know, a unique situation for for every city and state and, lo- and location um but what are some of those things that that some of these smaller carriers could maybe take advantage of and start offering their drivers and maybe some of the the, the mega carriers are like what, what would be that that pathway to to righting some of these wrongs yeah i think it, may, it, it might have to change they may have to change how they how they route their trucks um they may have to change some operational things some scheduling things i think create emphasizing work-life balance is huge. So look, and I know that there's tough, 
truckers out there. Look, I've stayed, I've stayed out for seven, eight weeks at a clip before. And Hey, I love being over the road. And when I, and I, I just am trying to correct myself and save myself from the critics who are like, well, if you don't like it, get a local job or something, but implement a work-life balance for these over the road guys, create a schedule that is healthy and sustainable for guys who are going over the road. But even for the local jobs, Create a system. You're the carrier. The carrier does have the power to tell their customers to actually make a claim, stand up for their drivers and say, hey, this is how we're going to route our trucks. These are going to be the hours. So create a schedule that offers a work-life balance, similar to how a lot of places are going work from home and how a lot of places are doing hybrids and a lot of places emphasize or they're doing four-day work week type stuff. There's other industries who are evolving to the work-life balance Mm -hmm. of the talent market out there. Trucking companies can do the same. They don't need to be stuck in this stuck in the past of trying of of doing that and be like, well, we can't change it. It's how it's always been. Come up with a schedule of how you're going to route your trucks that would provide a driver, you know, based off of I guess data extrapolated of how often drivers want to go home uh, and for how long and during which days, because obviously drivers want to be home around weekends because that's when all their family and friends probably aren't working. So it's like figure out a schedule at that macro level of, hey, this is how we're going to run. Offer the option for guys who want to live on the road, sure, but figure that out. You know, So figure out a scheduling. You know, we have all this da- access to unlimited data. I was going to say, that's where maybe AI can come yeah, in and, like, and maybe yeah. help extrapolate some of that data and help these companies, you know, make it, it feels like it just needs to, to, to be a larger priority. If you're going, like you said, if you're going to place these large company-wide discussions, industry-wide discussions around, you know, work from home, four-day work weeks, you know, what, what does the modern work schedule look like? These shouldn't be happening in, in silos where the, the, the drivers are in one silo and and everyone, everyone else is in a completely different silo. That those same perks, those same benefits, should be offered, you know, to all of your employees. And it's it's really baffling as to why that wouldn't already be the case. I would I I would think that you know, from even like an HR, just a management standpoint, it would just make so much more sense to just have one pay benefits package and be able to offer that to all of your employees, whether that whether or not they're a driver or not. Yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't couldn't be more spot on. And then next from there, I mean, offer a competitive living wage to these people. Like make like you want these people to work there for X amount. Like the turnover has a cost, no matter how we want to view it. And I've learned from speaking with uh, Gord McGill on this that the turnover for some of these mega carriers has been ingrained in their into their budget sheets. Like they count on the turnover. They've adjusted their entire business model to include the turnover. Like that's how much they don't care about it. They just, they know it's a thing. So they've adjusted their whole business model and how they price all things to include the turnover. Imagine if they didn't, imagine if they just actually paid a living competitive wage, you know, to, to people with things like PTO, you know, with, you know, with, you know, bonus incentives and not, you know, and not referral bonus incentives because, you know, some of these bonuses, because it's crazy, you know, some of these even the local carriers, they were offering ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar bonuses, but these bonuses were paid out over two years, and uh, they like so they did like they're predatory. You know, like, these bonuses were almost predatory to get people to sign on because hmm. I can't name any job that you can start at where you get a twenty thousand dollar bonus. But then again, it's like you, you know some people get promotions where they get a bonus like that. But you know just. Be upfront with the with the pay. So on top of just making you know a better work you know work life balance, it's just and it has to do with going in, looking at the data, 
figuring out, okay, this is how we should schedule our OTR guys. This is how we schedule the regional guys, et cetera. And then from there is when you move to pay, like start paying a livable wage. Look, we, but pre-deregulation, and, I, and I'm not here to have the union argument or not, because I don't think we can go backwards, you know, and I come from a pro-union sentiment. I, I don't really want to get down that road. But the thing is, before deregulation, drivers, for the most part, were paid a salary equivalent to six figures in, you know, six, 1960s and 70s term, like uh, inf- based on inflation. Like what drivers were making in the 60s and 70s was equivalent to six figures today. That was the standard. So raise the standard of that pay. So if they were able to afford it in the 70s, I could tell you right now that Werner Schneider, these mega Goliath corporations, they can afford it now. Like the, the large companies, if they can afford it then, they can afford it now. And because, ever, because ever since deregulation, I don't know, things aren't becoming cheaper with the advancement of technology and, you know, driving down as the wages gone, the wages have gone down in the past, you know, several years in trucking. Anything been getting cheaper this past year? No, I don't think so. I think everything's gone up for everybody. So, you know, the pay is definitely a good one. And then when you adjust their scheduling, yeah, I think implementing a culture of health and wellness, uh, and this might piss off, you know, some of my progressive friends, but get rid of your VP of diversity and inclusion and make a VP of health and wellness, um, because that's what matters more. Uh, uh, You know, your VP of diversity and inclusion, yeah, that's all fun and dandy, but that's going to, you're going to get the diversity and inclusion by hiring good people. Hmm. Uh, so that, that's a different argument. Replace that position with the VP of health and wellness. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm not saying go down and send somebody, you know, have somebody bang on their truck and be like, hey, did you do your pushups today? Mm-hmm. But, hey, come up with workout programs for people. Let them know, hey, like I'm, the truckers need to hear the hard truth. Hey, this job is killing you. Sitting is the new smoking. And, you know, that that needs to be very, very emphasized, you know, upon, at CDL school on training. Hey. This job's actually killing you. It's bad for your blood. You know, you, here are the stats. They don't go over these stats enough. And so I think implementing, like the culture of the business needs to be surrounded by it. Like uh, you want real people to get real results on their health and fitness. You've got you've got to tell them the truth. Well, speaking of health and fitness, that that's part of your career journey as well. It's part of your your, your personal journey. What are some ways that, that drivers can't like you and, and, and others can stay fit while out on the road? Well, I guess, you know, yeah, I do work as an advisor on, on the first form app and I, I, I didn't wear this t-shirt intentionally. I just put it on cause I found it, but I, yeah, I work as an advisor to help guys on a health and fitness app, which tracks their macros, your macros being your calories, protein, carbs, and fats. And it, that varies based on activity level, height, weight. Uh, so I can't calculate macros for people, but the, the app does use technology and I help coach people on that app, which also has access to workouts, live streams, tracks your steps and stuff like that. So I encourage anybody who wants like a help or like, you know, any sort of coaching that, you know, definitely feel free to come find me. I'd love to help you out, but all drivers really need to do what they need to do to counteract what they're doing is yes. So they definitely need to watch what they're eating. You shouldn't be, you know, at least monitor your calories, but you definitely need to be getting the right amount of protein, one gram of protein per pound of goal body weight. Um, and that starts by eating whole meals. So you got to start cooking your own food. I use an air fryer and microwave. But the, the number one thing people can start doing now is stop drinking full sugar sodas and going for at least one to two 45-minute walks per day and drinking a gallon of water. Anybody who's facing, you know, who is very obese, anybody who's having a hard time, maybe pre-diabetic, if they start incorporating one to two 45-minute walks, and just going to diet soda, their entire life will start changing. From there, 
it skyrockets. People don't need to do anything crazy. Um, that, but the thing is, once guys start going for those walks and they start seeing the results, they're going to want more. And they're going to want better for themselves. They're going to want to go. They're going to want to start running. They're going to want to start bringing out the Bowflex weights at the truck stop. They're going to like it, it Burgoyne's into a whole bigger thing. Like once you start making that progress, you want to do more. You want, you want more for yourself because you deserve it. And you start feeling like you're worth it again. But that's what they do. They need to start. You just need to start. You know, instead of scrolling, you know, you could scroll while you walk. So there, we've talked about, you know, all, all the issues that are going on within the industry. We've talked about a couple of the good movements that, that are happening, including the, you know, the, the the fitness sort of revolution, I think, that's going on with a lot of different drivers. Um, Mark Manera, another, you know, friend of the show and friend of yours as well. He he's uh, he owns Supply Chain Fitness, which is trying to, you know, combat a lot of those, those preconceived notions as well as to, you know, the importance of, of your health and, and how that impacts the rest of your life and the, the, you know, your family, friends, work, all that, all that stuff. But are there any issues in trucking that, you know, are kind of, you know, below the surface right now that you think will become a bigger issue in the years to come? I think I, I briefly kind of, I've uh, alluded to it along the lines, but definitely parking is, uh, I think the, going to become the the biggest one especially as certain major metropolitan areas start to grow like what once were medium-sized metropolitan areas austin texas being one uh you know i live in central texas and this is where i'm i'm seeing it i actually just spoke with a local news uh kxan about a, a truck parking going on because austin's starting to see it as an issue um even other places you know growing metros like uh you know raleigh north carolina charlotte Toledo, Ohio. I mean, Florida's, I think, got it some of the worst. I did a truck parking story with Fox 35 a couple months ago, and um, Fox 35, you know, spoke to, you know, Florida DOT about issues going on in central Florida as well as uh, down in south Florida. And the, you know, the amount of parking that they're going to need just based off the growth of the Orlando area and, you know, the amount of people moving to Florida. South Florida, yeah. Yeah, when, when people move there, your consumption is going to go up. You're going to need, you know, the trucks come with it. And I really think truck parking is uh, such an issue that um, people aren't ready for. And I know that there's some legislation floating around, you know, uh, Congress about uh, allocating money for uh, money to states from the DOT for truck parking. And I know that the sec- current Secretary of Transportation has uh, definitely echo the concern for it. So maybe it's not like it's so much under the radar, but the thing is, it's, is it's an issue that's, they knew this was going to be an issue in the nineties, you know, off of studies done in 1994 or 1996, they've known this was going to be an issue for a long period of time. It's coming to roost now because what we're seeing is now the fatalities are happening. Cars are hitting trucks on, on off ramps that are parked there. The truck parking adds to the to the turnover. And a lot of this could be alleviated, actually. A lot of the truck parking issues can be alleviated if the ELD mandate was was repealed. Because the, the, ELD, the, the implementation of the ELD, now, all of science and research shows that when you add stress to the workplace, it affects workplace safety, no matter what. When, when, when something has been added, you know, like, like, you know, added stress to your job doesn't make things more safe. You know, so adding the ELD you know, mandate to it and requiring ELDs for people is an added stress level, which has created more tired drivers, more aggravated drivers, and drivers making riskier decisions. The FMCSA personally and intentionally added stress to the industry, making the industry less safe. And the fact that that narrative 
isn't seen by people is frightening. Like our own government implemented something which data now says has made the industry less safe and more people have died because of it. And we're just going to keep letting it fly. And so, you know, I, I'd say, you know, truck parking is an issue. It is that underlying issue I'm talking about, but it can be solved in more ways than one by not, you know, so it's yes, not just can, more spaces. It's, yeah. it's more just a, it, what is it? Once again, cha- change the workplace environment and the scheduling for these drivers and how they can drive. If they weren't be ridden to this electronic log and they were running a certain schedule to where finding parking wasn't that much of an issue, depending on how they were routed, as in, hey, they can sleep at shippers and receivers or they can sleep at or they're being routed towards their terminals more. Like, so it's just not a matter of spaces. Hey, let's remove some of the, you know, surveillance technology like the ELD mandate. So that way, when they have a half an hour left on their clock and they find themselves uh, in having to go through Austin. They don't have to worry, you know, they don't have to worry about that 30 minutes running out and having to have a DOT violation. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways we can attack the parking issue, but at the, you know, it's, it's the one issue that not only is adding to the turnover, it's also, once again, the consumer, the other highway users out there are at risk because of, you know, the lack of truck parking. But um, other other underlying issues, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure there are. I can't uh, I can't rail <laughs> off at the top of my head because pay and park because that's the thing. It's a spider web. You know, pay right. and parking are like the two, you know, two nucleuses or whatever, and then there's other stuff that go, goes out from there. I, there. I think I know that there's a lot of fraud going on right now, and that I I like I said, you know, we can get into the Eastern European mafias who operate, uh, you know, their Chicago operations. Um, there's a lot going on with, uh, you know, I recently spoke with the president of Real Women in Trucking, uh, which you have spoken to as well. Desiree and Wood. Desiree Wood. Yeah. And she helps with an organization that has helped uh, drivers who've been abandoned because of these uh, ghost log problems. And there are a lot of these Eastern European outfits who run motor carriers uh, with their own ELD technology that they're able to kind of hack into. They, and hmm. they're able to falsify logs to keep these trucks running. And and I get you know there's probably some libertarians in the crowd who cheer cheer for that and and even though even though obviously nobody would ever no you know people don't want to drive 20 hours a day that's not the that's not the point but you know they falsify these logs and what's happened is they've sent drivers out when these drivers are sleeping or staying in hotels somebody comes and steals the truck or what have you and takes it from under them and they and they don't pay them so I mean there there is a lot of other underlying issues like some of these Eastern European syndicates who are running uh, very, you know, running these motor carriers that are operating, you know, outside of the, the rules and regulations. Double brokering too. Yeah, and the, the fraud of double brokering that's going on in all these different countries like Ukraine. And, and, and so the, the, it's, that's definitely even, that's on a macro point. You know, I'm, I'm speaking for, for driver issues for the most part, but industry wide, I mean, the fraud and crime between what's going on with double brokering it's just another cost being rolled onto consumers. We're like the fact that it's not the fact that is like we're talking in the news about Target, Bud Light, and you know rainbow T-shirts, and not the fact that the American people are getting ripped off by Eastern European crime syndicates taking control of our own supply chain. Like, what do you think is more important, Target selling a rainbow T-shirt or in Bud Light? Or the fact that our supply chain is being compromised by Chinese technology companies and Eastern European crime syndicates. What's the better headline for 
Well, those, those those topics are too complex for for I think the the uh, or, or it's perceived as too complex. They would rather just keep us. And when I say they, I mean like the you know intelligence agencies, big corporations, the government, things like that. They would rather keep us in fighting with each other rather than trying to tackle a big problem that they are not incentivized to solve, which kind of feels like a big theme of this show is that there, there are many problems that exist in this industry and uh, very few incentives to actually solve them. Um, unless you're actually running a good moral compass of a company that wants to treat people with respect and wants to, you know, stick around for a while. That, that to me is, you know, the, the latter is, is, is more of the American dream versus the former. Yeah, no, it is, it, it is pretty wild. I, and I do like how you refer to them as, as they, because I mean, that's, that's the truth they want and they're doing, it's these, everything going on in the trucking industry is mirrored to what's going on in, you know, with our politics, the, the ATA and the mega carriers want to keep drivers divided. They don't want them to agree because drivers can't even agree when it comes to this overtime for truckers act, drivers are like, well, well, I'm not paid by the hour. I'm not paid by like, they don't see the bigger picture. Like they, they've gotten truckers so divided Drivers can't even agree to give themselves a pay raise. Like that's that's where they're at. And our media and the, the, our politics is doing the same thing. They want to keep us. They know that the American people, you know, we've sold all our manufacturing overseas. We've sold our purpose. We're now this information and service, uh, this information and service economy to where they're able to control us via the culture wars. So people in their own lives, they, they kind of they're not building things for themselves. They're not building things for their communities anymore. So they have to lay a stake in identity politics because this is how they know, well, if I support this ideology, then I'm actually helping the world. I'm actually helping my community. If I stand up for this, then I'm defending you know, I'm defending these these people all the while they're staying divided while the people at the very top maintain control of anything. And in the meantime, also what's going on is, yeah, our, our supply chain is in the midst of, you know, being compromised because even in the when we go even further into the AI step of things, you know, we just had a pipeline get hacked recently. Like, are we going to keep the public blind to the fact that eventually when you take the drivers out, we're going to think that China or Russia isn't going to figure out the means to send a, send the, you know, the next 9-11 isn't going to, you won't need pilots. You know, you, when you've got autonomous, you know, trucks and doing whatever, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to need it. And when you can control the, the supply chain, you know, where, where are we running the cells at that risk? But yeah, no, the, the meat, there's definitely a, a, you know, a, a syndicate in this country that wants pe- to keep people divided. They're doing it in the trucking industry. That's why I feel like if you can, if I can, if we can fight for these issues and we keep talking to them in this, in, in the trucking industry, like it's just, it's one crack in the seams. It's, it's, you know, because the, the transportation industry is, is a micro version of everything we're talking about with the media. And if we could solve the problems here, maybe, you know, maybe that positivity and stuff can spread to all the other stuff we're talking about society and the media. Now, now for you, now I, I was doing some research going through your websites um, and watched a few of your videos. And what's I think is, su- is super interesting about, you know, just the, the freight industry in general is that you either, they either get their tentacles in you from an early age and you never leave, or it's a, a family affair that gets their tentacles in you and they, they keep you there. And I think you're, you're kind of a blend of the two. Is, is that correct? T- tell us how you got started in trucking. Yeah, so I, I'm third generation in trucking. My grandfather was an owner operator for one of the big van lines um, out of Ohio and Michigan when the seat in the truck was a wooden bench and a trip to the West Coast was measured in weeks, oh, wow. not days or hours. There were no interstates, there were no truck stops. It was just a, a crazy time. 
I don't know a whole lot about my grandfather's operation. He died when I was still pretty young. Um, my father actually started driving a milk truck when he was 14, oh, wow. obviously with no license. Uh, and that's all he did his whole life. He, he drove truck and he retired and died driving a truck. Um, you know what? I, I think a lot of what drives what I do today, though, is I watched my dad struggle really his whole life. He wanted to own trucks because he loved working on trucks, mm. but he had a ninth grade education and no business experience. And I just watched a pattern where he would go take a driving job that he usually hated with a union and, but it paid well. So he'd make enough money and he'd save up and he'd buy a truck and he'd work on it. And then he'd run it until he just ran out of money mm. and he'd go back and get another union job again. And um, I just, I just watched that and thought there's got to be a better way. Uh, and decided that I wasn't going to get into trucking. I thought I wanted to fly helicopters. So I went to the army and decided I really didn't want to spend 10 years in the army either. So, uh, I got out and thought, while I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life, why don't I buy a truck? Because, you know, everybody around me has trucks. At one point, my father, four brothers, two brother-in-laws, an uncle, all own trucks. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it just seemed like, why not do this? So I, I bought a truck. I've done a lot of things in the trucking industry. Uh, that would have been 1986. I bought my first truck. So I was 22. Um, the only thing, or not the only thing, one of the things I haven't done, I've never been a company driver. Hmm. I, I started as an owner operator. I just bought a truck and went to work. And um, at one point I had 11 trucks that took oh, wow. me about three years and it was way too fast. I made every mistake you could possibly make. And uh, at the end, I was about sixty or seventy thousand dollars in debt with taxes and maintenance bills, and um, you know, I had several attorneys say this is what bankruptcy's for, and I said, nah, you know, I made the mess. I should probably try to clean it up. So um, I sold nine of the eleven trucks, took the two that were most profitable, and really started to learn how to run a truck profitably. Hmm. You know, really started to get into the accounting side of things and tracking things by numbers and watching fuel mileage. And, you know, at the time, fuel was probably 80 cents a gallon and nobody cared about fuel economy. But it just seemed to me like if there was a way to save, I should probably learn it and uh, got really involved in that side of things. And ultimately, that's what led me to where I am today. Now, you mentioned, you know, two of your uh, 11 trucks were only profitable. What made the two profitable when the, the rest weren't? Really, at the time, it was my lack of experience in the market. Mm -hmm. So the two that were profitable were actually leased uh, to, it was RPS at the time, uh, which is FedEx Ground today. So they were dedicated. It was easy to control the expenses. I didn't have driver turnover. Uh, I was able to control my costs better. And, and the other trucks, I had gotten my own authority and a broker's license. And it just didn't understand the freight markets. Mm -hmm. And it, it's one of the reasons why I try to help people understand the markets today. If you're going to be out there running with your own authority, it, it's critical to understand those things. And I just didn't. And, and you know, it seemed like it just add another truck, keep driving more miles. This has got to work. And, and it didn't. I, I was just, I was losing more money all the time. And I realized that 
the first step in being successful in business is you've got to control your cost. That that's such a good it, it, insightful story. And so, do, do you still have those trucks to this day, or did you eventually sell them it, off to to start Let's Truck, which we'll, we'll get into in just a second? Yeah. So, in uh, I had those trucks all that time. Did several different things. Ultimately, ended up sticking with the contract at FedEx and adding some trucks there. And then in 2007, when I got a chance to do my own radio show on on uh, would have been XM at the time, um, I thought I can do a radio show and run the trucks and that'll be fine. And then I started a software company and we started creating software for owner operators. And by about 2012, um, I was traveling all over the country. I really wasn't taking care of the trucks. And you know what? They, they kind of took care of itself, but I just didn't feel like that was a good way to run a business. So uh, one of the other contractors at FedEx made me an offer for the whole contract trucks and everything, and it was pretty darn good offer. So I sold in 2012. And so that evolved. How did you go from, you know, running some FedEx trucks to, to getting offered a, a radio hosting job, especially with a, a company yeah. that big? <laughs> yeah. So we go all the way back to about 1990. Um one of the first years I had my tax return done, and in my head, I thought I should have owed about four or 5000 but I didn't understand taxes. So when the bill came in at 14000 and I didn't have that money, um, I ended up on a payment plan like a lot of owner-operators do, and I started looking at it thinking, I'm just going to get behind every year. I've got to get a handle on this. So I actually started learning taxes. I, I was kind of self-taught, and figured out that my bill shouldn't have been 14,000. It was more like five or six and filed amended returns and started telling my friends. And they said, well, will you look at my tax return? And I did. And the next thing I knew I had an accounting company. Um, So at one point I was doing about uh, 4,000 owner operators for accounting and taxes. Yeah. So I I wrote accounting software, which we, we actually uh, sell today for owner operators. So, now that I had this other business, I needed to figure out how I was going to get customers. You know, I had friends, but if you're going to run it as a business, then you got to grow it. So uh, I didn't have any money. So I started writing articles about taxes and just faxing them out to all of the uh, trucking magazines. And one of them picked it up and said, we can't pay you, but if you write a column, we'll give you a, a full page ad every month. So I started writing the column and, uh, Actually, my first time on the radio was uh, midnight trucking. I got to go on at uh, like 3.30 in the morning for 10 minutes. That was fun. (laughs) Uh, And then um, Dave Nemo actually called me one day and said, I read your column and I'd love you to come on the air and talk about it. And that turned into a weekly thing. And at one point, I was doing three guest spots every week. I was doing a guest spot on Midnight Trucking, on Dave Nemo, and on Mark Willis. Um, And finally, I went to XM, and I said, look, I might be doing more hours than some of your hosts. Maybe you should just give me a show, and they did. (laughs) Oh, wow. You shot your your shot, and you won. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I asked, and they said, okay. That's awesome. So, okay, so... You 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 had the couple of trucks. You sold those off. You get into to radio broadcasting. You're also doing software development. Are you, now are you coding this yourself, or do you, you have? You a know, team I didn't or? do any of the real coding in the beginning, but I, I 
you know, I found a database program where you could kind of build some things with it. And I built the software and I, mean, I was actually selling it. I mean, it, I had some customers out there and I thought, and this would have been mid nineties, probably late nineties. And I really started looking at the internet and thinking software is going to all run on the internet someday. And I have no idea what I'm doing. And again, I still didn't have a whole lot of money. So I went out and found a, uh, a young coder who was broke and needed a job. And I offered him part of the business and we made him a, a partner and he's still one of our partners today. Oh, so what a great story. I, yeah. I did a kind of the design and layout of a lot of the software and ultimately I don't even do any of that anymore. He's so much better at it than I am. So we have a team now that does all that. And so you, you, you develop, is that where, um, let's truck comes in? Is, is that the, the app business, the, the accounting business, or does, does let's truck come in after that? So we formed let's truck then. So mm -hmm. right around 2007, when we started doing the radio show, started to, to really develop the software, that's when we formed let's truck, brought our partner in and, uh, we've just kind of grown from there. You know, our, our, I guess our mission statement is helping drivers and owner operators live their best life. And I think that that's where um, I, I was looking at your, your site. And so there's, there's fuel gauges, there's profit gauges. And so all of it kind of fits into it. Is, is it all one app or are they different functions for, for, you know, I guess different motives? Yeah. So fuel gauges is its own app and that one's free. We've been giving away fuel gauges for over a decade. So wow. that one is to track fuel mileage. Hmm. So they can track every tank. It will show them a 30 day average, a 60 day, a 90, a lifetime. It'll show them cost per mile on fuel, uh, a lot of statistics. And we now have over a hundred thousand trucks using that app wow. and we're coming up on six million fuel tickets in the system. Wow. That's great. That's all. That's, yeah. that's so, that's so I'm, I'm like blown away right now because you've done all these amazing <laughs> things and we just started talking but, about yeah. let's truck. <laughs> <laughs> the, then the, the crazy transformation really happened around 2014 mm. Uh, we had always been business, accounting, fuel mileage, taxes, consulting. And some of our drivers started saying, look, we, we really trust you. You've helped us with our money and our business. And um, we need help with health. You know, drivers are really sick and there doesn't seem to be a lot of good advice. And I said, but I don't do health. And they said, but, you know, and I had always talked about my history and my past on the radio show. I, my first business was a gym. Uh, when I was 19, I opened a gym. Uh, I coached wrestling, high school wrestling and club wrestling for a lot of years. So they said, well, you're kind of into fitness and you understand it. Anything would help. And I said, well, I really don't want to try to give advice on something that I just don't think I'm, you know, capable of giving. Hmm. So one of our employees said, you know, why don't I get it started? She started a podcast and, you know, Let's just see what happens. So I said, all right, I'll get involved after I read 100 of the top new health books that are out right now. And I'll give myself a year and then we'll see. So I finished the 100 books in about eight months and went back to school and became a, a nutritional therapy practitioner. And we started down the health path. And now it's about 80% of our business. Wow. It really just took over everything. 
And and so that I mean you're 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 obviously providing you know financial advice on one side of things, but now on on the flip side, it's really the, your community coming to you and saying we need this, and you made it happen, and now it's 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 grown to where it is today. What was I guess how I guess my first question is you know when drivers decide that they want to start being healthy, what does that process look like for them? Because I imagine it's so challenging on the road. You know, it, it was in the beginning. We've actually made it really easy now. In the beginning, so we teach them about nutrition. Um, the interesting thing is most of these guys have been told forever that you're going to have to be hungry all the time and you're going to have to work out and that's the only way to lose weight. And we found out that just wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually tell people right now, I can get you to your natural body weight with zero activity. Hmm. It's not required at all. Now we encourage people to be active because it's healthy, but exercise is not good for weight loss. It just isn't and turns most people off. And think about the industry we're in. Some of these guys are 350, 400 pounds. We've worked with people that are bigger than that. The last thing that guy wants to do is work out. Hmm. He's not capable of it. So we just took a a really, really different approach. Um, We work with a a lot of the newer science like carnivore and keto, and um, we've actually made it fairly simple on the road. But imagine this, imagine a conversation with truck drivers where you're teaching them how to ferment vegetables and make yogurt and can their own meals at home. Oh, wow. So, so they're doing that at home in yes. preps for their road trip. So it's not yes. about, you know, I, I, I've i heard, you know, some other folks in, in health that they'll say, you know, these are the healthiest things to eat at a gas station. There, there are no healthy things to eat at a gas station. Mm. Let's just start there. <laughs> not even the hot dog. <laughs> now, you know, the hot dog may be the healthiest thing there, but we want to go a little, you know, we, we actually teach them how to find local farms that are doing really regenerative grass-fed pastured meats and chicken and pork and you know we work with uh, some of the top regenerative farms in the country Joel Salatin's like a a regular guest on our show so and we actually teach them how to get the best quality meat they can and pressure can it at home they can take it with them and it doesn't need refrigeration wow and so that that was going to be my next question is what what does I guess the truck outfit kind of look like to keep you know, that, that food ready, that, readily available. That's their biggest challenge The you know, they can't do a lot of shopping on the road. That's just not practical with their schedule and the size of the vehicle. So they really need to do as much prep at home as possible. And, and we've shown guys where one weekend you could can and ferment enough food for an entire month. Oh, wow. And, and that's all shelf stable now fermented or canned it doesn't need refrigeration so you know they can just take that food with them on the truck and they can take you know a couple weeks worth at a time and i imagine too i i follow a lot of um like one of my favorite shows is doomsday preppers and so i imagine that a lot of those same philosophies matter it it, that's i've been called a prepper and because i i do that kind of stuff but it just it's so practical you know i love to cook i Mm -hmm. i I, we almost never eat out. I just, I don't like the quality of eating mm-hmm. out. So I do a lot of canning at home just for convenience. Oh, that's super interesting. Okay. What are your, your favorite prepper tips? Pressure can your meat and your meals. Number one, you, you think about it. What, what's the biggest problem? We're going to be hungry, right? Mm-hmm. 
and there's survival going on and the world's going to change. And I, imagine just being able to open up your jar of your favorite meal already cooked. And then how do you get more of it? You, uh, hunt, <laughs> you <gotta> hunt, fish. <laughs> you got to hunt and fish. And now, seriously, with the, a reasonable amount of space at home, though, it doesn't take a lot. I've shown people how over time you could you could can enough food to last you a year. Wow. And that's usually my goal. Try to get a year's worth. And so that's where you gotta you gotta think about next. I'm, I'm all I'm all thinking about you know all the different doomsday prepper shows I've I seen. Know. I was like, well, you gotta yeah. have a way to protect it. You gotta have your fuel supply. Yeah, of course, <laughs> right? I know there's a lot to it. We actually we have episodes on my show where we talk about that stuff. Oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. I, I got to dive deeper now into the show. Think think about it for a second. So you know, a good water filter like a Life Straw, yeah. the emergency clothes, you know, thermal blankets, all of that stuff that you would kind of prep at home with, we tell people, you better have that in your truck. Why wouldn't you? Hmm. That's a good and, point. And cash. You know, it, it, it got so easy to drive around with no cash because everybody accepts credit cards. But what about when the banking system goes down? It's already happened. That's very true. And, and if you have no access to cash and you're a thousand miles away from home, what are you going to do? So we, we do kind of that prepping in the truck. And so are they able to to prep at all in the truck or you're, you're mostly just prepping at home and taking it with you along with, you know, miscellaneous supplies? It's like in a bug out bag. Mostly at home and then kind of stocking the truck with all that stuff like a get home bag or a bug out bag. Or we do have a couple husband and wife teams that spend so much time on the road that they've just started to prep on the road. Oh, wow. Yeah, they've just kind of, you know, supplied themselves with the stuff in the truck and they'll they'll stop and maybe get a hotel for the weekend or an Airbnb and do their prep. And so when you're canning, is it, you know, are you using like an Instapod or, um, you know, I, I guess like a pressurized, another type of pressurized cooker? Yeah, so it's, it's called an All-American, actually. It's a pressure canner. Hmm. So there are pressure cookers and then there are pressure canners. Oh, and a pressure canner can pressure cook, but a pressure cooker can't pressure can. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> well, I'm just going to start writing down all of these things. So if you see my hand moving off to the side, there you go. That's what yeah. I'm writing down because I, I, everybody laughed at me when I had a, I, I was obsessed with the the Doomsday Prepper show. I started, I, I got a bug out bag. I started, I have a life straw in it. I have knives, fuel, yep. like all that water shoes. Um, yep. I even, I went to a trade show one time. They have those little capsules that you that'll sustain you for about 12 hours. Oh yeah, so some of yeah. Those too. Yeah. <laughs> they thought I was crazy, and then COVID happened. I said, no, I'm not so crazy anymore am i well you know it, it it's surprising how acceptable it became after covid mm -hmm. when we saw lockdowns and we saw no access to services and we started to hear about food shortages and i think a lot of people you know kind of woke up and said look it could happen here and then and you have also the couple that with the the show the the last of us which just further <laughs> cemented all of my prep <laughs> I was like, well, see, this is this but, is what happens. <laughs> but didn't it feel good when you did prep a little? It did. Doesn't it, it, it just feel good? I and you know, as as you're talking, like I have a um a post-it note on my desk right now <laughs> of things I need to add to see, my bug go. out bag. There you go. Drop me an email if you ever have any questions. <laughs> oh, I will be, and you're probably gonna regret that. <laughs> 
All right, let, let, let's get back to um, the, the, the Let's Truck um, website too, because I, I did notice on there, you have a full e-commerce store as well with a lot of these, the, these healthier style goods and shakes and things like that. Talk to us a little bit about that, that initiative. So, you know, I really started to realize that each product was unique and I, I'm just a big believer in finding the best solution for anything. If there's a problem and we need a solution, well, why not find the best solution? And that's kind of what I do. I'm known for research and testing. And um, there was one day I went on the air. Actually, I did a, a, a webinar, so I was on camera like this. And I had on five wearables. I had I had two watches. Uh, no, I had six. I had two watches on each arm, wearables, like the health wearables. Mm -hmm. I had an aura ring. And I had a headband kind of wearable. I, that's what I do. I test. I, I really try to find the best solutions for things. And then it was getting really confusing for me to come on the air and say, oh, you know, I did all this test and I found out this is the absolute best sauna blanket on the market. And then people would go end up at the wrong website because two products kind of look similar. And they'd call me back and say, wait a minute, you said it was going to do this. And I... So we finally decided when we find a product or we find a solution, we're just going to put it in our store. Hmm. And then there won't be any mistake. If you buy it from our store, you're getting exactly what I've tested and talked about. And so do you ship the, these products yourself? Yes. Like, oh, wow. Yep. So you're a whole like e-commerce yeah. operation as well. Yeah, our warehouse is about uh, 200 yards down the hill from the house here. Oh, wow. So you have yeah. a whole system. Do you have like robotics or anything like that? Probably no robotics. <laughs> no robotics. We do have several dogs at the warehouse. Though, <laughs> that, that those, those help with morale much more <laughs> than robotics, right. I think. <laughs> That's right. The robotics are just kind of creepy to me. It's uh, it's. I think it's a challenge because um, yeah. I actually just got done with with a, a robotics interview, and they oh, really? were talking about because um, one of the uh, Mike Lombard, who you know, uh, oh, yeah. both of us are f uh, familiar with, you know, Twitter fame, uh, has his own show as well. He's been a guest on on, on this show previously. Um, he had mentioned um, that the drivers just they, they spend so much time waiting at a warehouse, and they spend all of their hours there, and that's how a lot of their hours get eaten up. And it was interesting to hear from that particular robotics company, um, Nimble, which they were, um, they're trying to alleviate some of that process. Now they're right. trying to alleviate it with opera, uh, you know, streamlining the operations inside the warehouse. Right. Um, but it's still, I, I, it's still, a, I think a touchy subject for, for a lot of drivers and for, you know, um, especially a lot of warehouse blue collar workers where yeah. there's, there is that psychological component of, is this robot going to take my job or is it going to help me do my job so it's 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 kind of uh still hotly debated i think yeah you know and then before we could even get our heads around that ai showed up and now the white collar workers have the same fear yes they do i i, I would argue that they probably shouldn't because um, it's, <laughs> it's helped me a ton you know it does me too and i've talked a lot about it already and and uh, some of my listeners are tired of it already, but I, I just think it's such <laughs> an important topic. Like, how could you not be paying attention to this? And the, one of the first quotes I saw that really made it click with me, it said, you're not going to be replaced by AI. You're going to be replaced by a person using AI better mm. than you do. And think about, you know, you probably do a lot of the same kind of work I do every day, writing and kind of organizing data and, and text and writing copy. And 
AI is so powerful. I mean, I, I, it, it does more work than three full-time assistants if I had them. So, yeah. I, you know, I think that it, it is, it's not that AI is going to be doing all the work, but there's going to be a handful of people who are going to be really good at AI and they're going to replace a lot of people. And, and that's where I, I, I struggle with it because I know that for my own, I, I used to, you know, listen to videos and, and pause, type it out, pause, type out the transcript, pause, type, <laughs> right. like it was took hours to do. Yes. And, and I, I, some of the tools now that they can help me speed up that podcast process like that, where the transcripts are done and the show notes are done. And I have five different podcast titles to choose from. Most of them stink. Um, I, but I know that's funny, isn't it? You could ask for 50 titles and you still can't find one you like in there. But I, I I will say that I think it helps me come up with my own Correct. much faster. So I, I see I, those and I'm like, yep. that sucks. I'm going to write my right. own. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not yeah. all the way there yet. But I, I do, I mean, especially from like data analysts, um, you know, analytics, things like that. Like some of these tools are going to really help out, the, you know, the, some of the smaller team like me, like you. Oh, yeah. Um, and and I I do worry about the output that it will that the I guess the ripple effects that will it will have because I, I there's a freelance team that I I would work with sparingly over the last few years and I asked them to to quote me on some new um, social media clips videos and right. they quoted me at three thousand dollars and I almost fell out of my chair I said oh I am not <laughs> that is a lot of money that I'm going to be paying every single month yeah. but then yeah. there's an AI tool that does it for free in in fifteen minutes. It's insane. The transcription accuracy is just, I've been trying to use transcription for about 20 years and it's just awful. <laughs> you know, I go but way back to when you had to spend hours training the program for your voice and then it still wasn't very accurate. And if you tried to use it on a podcast or an interview, the other person, it would never even come close. Now, I can't believe how accurate transcription is now. It's even to the point where one of my, I, I use otter.ai and they will recognize my, so in other transcription tools that I've used, you upload the file and it transcribes it and you got to go in and you got to clean it up. Right. But with Otter, they recognize my voice now. They recognize um, repeat I, guests. So they automatically smart label them. And I, you know, I don't really have crazy? to a finger. I know. I know. Right, we're, we're, we're geeking out a little bit on, <laughs> on a lot of this AI stuff. We geeked out on the doomsday preppers, on, on, on AI. What, what about so, the other aspect, the, the, the healthy tribe as, aspect of, of the company? How did that sort of spin off um, from Let's Truck? Or was that ever an aspect of Let's Truck? Or were they always independent? It, it's, all, it's integrated. It, it's mm -hmm. a part of everything we do. The reason we ended up with our own sites um, you know, the last couple of years, there's been the talk of censorship on social media. That's been going on for a lot longer than people know. And the most censored group for a long time was anybody that talked about alternative health. Hmm. So when I would talk about keto diets or carnivore diets, we were getting deleted and censored like 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, this has been going on a long, long time. We fought YouTube over this. We fought Facebook over it. And finally, I just got tired of it. And I said, look, I, I, I'm tired of putting all this work into a post, and then it gets deleted and censored. I said, we're just going to go create our own sites. Hmm. And we did. So that was the point of 
Um, originally, we had Healthy Tribe and Trucking Tribe separate, and now we're in the process of merging those. And so what does a it, Healthy Tribe is an, an app that someone can download and it's it, like a community? It, it's a community. Yeah, so it's a, it's a community. We have courses in there. We've got chat rooms. You know, we've got different topics people can post. So it, it's really our own social network. Uh, where we can say and do whatever we want without being canceled and deleted. And do you ever worry about maybe like the hosting provider? Because because that's something that I, I worry about, like AWS. Like I would never host any of my my yeah, shows right. or my my sites <laughs> with them because of that 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 factor. You could just say the wrong thing and get your entire platform removed. We do think about it, and so on the social sites, we went with a company called Mighty Networks. Hmm. Um, I was with. Oh, I can't even remember the name of them. I'll think of it in a second. We started our first social site back in 07, right when we started the radio show. And we were on a platform back then. I can't think of the name of it now. You know, I might. I'm still around. In fact, Mighty Networks, the CEO of Mighty Network, came from the other platform company. Hmm. Um, I just can't think of the name right now. So we, we ran that for years. And just became so popular that we just we were really losing a lot of traction on our site and and we thought "Ah, let's just go to facebook that's where everybody is and we grew a health group on facebook to about thirty thousand, and then they just started censoring it heavily so that was when we moved off and so we we worry a little bit about it i i i know the background of the company really well i know the background of the ceo They've never, ever tried to control anybody's content, not that it couldn't change. Um, so when we, when we got canceled on Sirius, um, I took one day off. We went back to podcasting a day later, and we decided then that we were only going to use platforms until we could build our own. Hmm. And we are very, very close now. We won't use anybody's phone lines. We won't use anybody's platform. Uh, when we're done with our broadcast app, we have our own listener app. When we're done with our broadcast app, you would have to shut down the internet to cancel me. That's awesome. I, I yeah. love that approach because I'm, I'm you know, I, I host websites for our, you know, my, my clients in the trucking industry. So I'm always trying to think about how can I, I best protect them just in case something yeah. happens. I don't want them to be completely shut off from, you know, their, their digital home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, that was kind of like Facebook. We had this group of 30,000 people and we couldn't communicate directly with them. Why was now, it what that a they horrible shut you system. down? Um, that they would just claim medical misinformation constantly. It really got bad. I mean, we had already left before COVID hit, but we were still running the group on uh, Facebook. But we had started ours to get it going. And when COVID hit, anything I tried to post about the vaccine got censored and deleted. And that's where I think, you know, a platform like Mighty Networks, which I, I've, I've looked at before and did a little test run. I've used it. You know, somebody else ha- yeah. had a Mighty Network and it's a really intuitive system, it is. much it is. better than a lot of like the, the course, I guess, platforms, you know, that, that exist right now that I think a lot of trucking companies are, are utilizing. But Mighty Networks is, is one that was really impressive. It's very flexible. You, you can be, and, and now, like everybody else, they've integrated AI into the platform and it's changing it a lot. 
How so? Um, a lot more, um, it's hard to describe even, a lot more engagement. Hmm. It, it, there's AI that helps everybody kind of get their thoughts together when they're making a post. So okay. I think people feel a little more confident posting. Um, there's some pretty cool tools that are coming that I, I think. So we're, we're kind of, you know, wedded to mighty networks right now. But when we finish our broadcast app, we may look at writing our own platform for this even. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is the probably the only way to really just guarantee that yeah. all of your platforms stay up. And then even then, it, you're, you're kind of dependent on, you know, the, the platforms that you host with, because now those companies are making those decisions as well. Uh, Ho- luckily, there's, there's other companies that will protect you, but... Well, and that's what we've done. We, we've got multiple redundant servers around the world. Oh, wow. I mean, it's the only way to, to protect your, your data and your, your business anymore. And then you're also protecting the, the, the data and the, the business for a lot of folks out there right. who are trying to use your platform to run right. their business and communicate and <laughs> right. live a healthier life. <laughs> right. All right, Kevin, what, what about your overall, I guess, sort of digital strategy? You know, you, you mentioned the podcast, you mentioned the Mighty Networks app. Are you still, you know, are you utilizing, I, I've seen you host, you know, Twitter spaces, things like that. Um, where are you kind of focusing your efforts? Where, where is the, I think, the, the, the biggest opportunity for you and in, in your network to grow? So we just want to grow our own app. Um, we're actually looking at this broadcast platform when we're done with it. That may become another business model for us to really what we're building doesn't exist right now. There's tons of podcast platforms. You're probably familiar with all of them, but the majority of podcasts are interview style, usually recorded usually a couple hours a week, and then it's edited and and posted. Well, ours, we do 15 to 20 hours a week. So editing is just out of the question. I mean, it's just way too much. Um, We're live. You can listen to our show while we're doing it. Hmm. And then everything's recorded and, and available on the app. And we have live callers. So it's really kind of a hybrid live radio show podcast and there i was shocked there's no software out there to do this wow there's not one platform where you can do everything we're trying to do with the live callers and the live streaming so we had to hack together a lot of pieces and now the programmers are just busy recreating each one of those pieces into our own and then we may market it as a platform and then that could be your own sort of, you know, I guess, Mighty Networks 2.0. Right. Or the, the I guess, the, right. the, the Kevin Networks. So, yeah, so Twitter Spaces is really interesting for me because it's a different format. Mm-hmm. My, my show has been, call me, ask me a question, I'll answer your question, I'll move on to the next caller. And, and it's hard to get listeners out of that mindset. Where on Spaces, what I'm really trying to do is just have more open conversation. Hmm. Like it's... It, don't just come and ask me questions. We do that all day now. Let, let's have discussions. Let's talk about things as a group. And it, it works. That's a better format for that. And we've even been able to hack it so that our Twitter spaces is actually broadcast live on our show app. Smart. That's what, that, yeah. that's what I was going to ask. Is there some kind of, uh, I guess, repurposing almost? Repurposing is probably a bad word for it, but I guess dual cast is maybe yeah. a better phrase. 
Yeah, and that's really what we were able to do. So if you want to be part of the space, obviously you need to be on Twitter and doing that. But all of our listeners that have our app can listen to those spaces live or go back and listen to the recording from the app. They don't even have to have a Twitter account. And so as you're, I, I imagine with... You know, how often you're having these conversations, how often you're, you're, you're talking to drivers, what are some of the big issues that they're facing today that you're hearing? You know, the big issues haven't changed at all. Hmm. Most of the issues we talk about all the time are not the issues that really matter to an owner operator. Hmm. And let me say this, most of my focus still, uh, if it's not health, then it's going to be business and it's going to be an owner operator I'm dealing with. Other than health, I really don't have anything to offer a company driver. A lot of them come to us for health, but when it's business and that's our focus, the things that put owner operators out of business have not changed in 30 years and we never talk about them. It's not ELDs. It's not hours of service. It's not the rates. It's not the brokers. It's not broker transparency. All of those things exist. But what puts people out of business as an owner operator, same thing that puts every small business out, lack of capital and planning. Hmm. I mean, it, it all comes down to the numbers and, and understanding how to run a business like a business. And most small businesses in our country are usually people with a skill that they're good at, and then they turn it into a business, but then they forget you have to be good at business because that's what this is now. So you can be the best truck driver in the world and you're going to fail as an owner operator. It's, it's very likely. I, I tell people all the time, as much as I hate this, I can take somebody outside of the industry with zero experience and I have far better luck making them successful as an owner operator than a guy who's been driving for 20 years. Why is that? They listen. They, they don't have the preconceived notions that, you know, the, the mindset in this industry is you get paid by the mile, you better drive really fast. It's a horrible mindset. It doesn't work when you're the one buying the fuel and the tires and the repairs and the insurance and all of those things have a cost. And, and we need to set up a business that keeps those costs as low as possible. The, you know, almost every practice of the owner operators is working against them. We talk about how they use the load boards and I've done courses on this. We actually have a couple phrases. The, the two things they do on the load boards that work against them, we call it chasing the rate and one and done. And here's what they do. They log onto a load board. They're in Portland and they want to get home to Dallas. So they do a search, Portland to Dallas. I work with both of the largest load boards companies. I know what the next click is over 90% of the time. The next click is sort that by rate. If there are rates there and they start calling or reaching out to the person with the highest rate. And that's what we call chasing the rate. Mm. So if they do that today in Portland and they get home to Dallas and then in a couple of days they want to leave Dallas and go somewhere, what are the odds when they do that search and then sort by rate that that same broker's coming up to the top, almost zero. Hmm. So now they're working with another broker on the next load and the next load and the next load and the next load. And this became apparent to me when I was doing taxes and I would have a guy with one truck and he would have over a hundred 1099s for the wow. year. 
So it tells me he worked with over a hundred brokers. Well, the first thing we try to teach them, you're sorting by rate, but the best rates never even make it to that board. Mm. The best rates get moved with their carriers that they have a relationship with. The stuff that goes to the board is the stuff that doesn't pay all that well, and they have trouble moving. That's why they put it on a board. So if all you're doing is logging into the load board every day and chasing the rate, you're not getting the best rates, and you're never building relationships. And it's just a horrible way to run a business. And then we turn around as an industry, and we try to blame it on the brokers and say it's their fault that the rates aren't good and there's no transparency. And we don't need transparency. We're negotiating a rate for today. Hmm. I either like this rate or I don't. I either accept it or I don't. And if I accept it, then I shouldn't complain that it was too low. Where is We just don't talk about the things that really matter, the numbers, the cost control, the relationships. We we seem to spend all the time blaming our problems as owner operators on everybody else in the industry. And it almost sounds like it's, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, sort of the the CDL mills and their, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the training schools, driver training schools and things like that. But how much training happens after the driver gets their CDL. Get, formal is, is training? It, formal training, any Zero. kind of training? Zero. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> it's pathetic. It really is. There, so none of these big companies are helping with you know, the business side of things or helping them like you are, or is it really like it, companies like so, yours that are the ones leading the charge? And I don't know of many like mine. In fact, mm-hmm. I really don't know of any others. Um, there are a couple out there, but not much. It, the The training that I have looked at from these big carriers, especially with lease purchase programs, the training's awful. Hmm. They'd be better off not training. Here's what they do, honestly. Here's one issue. I came across this training video, and it was training owner-operators on this one concept. And I almost lost my mind. I thought, what the hell are they thinking? Hmm. The concept was only buy enough fuel to finish the load you're on and then wait until you have another load to buy fuel again and don't leave fuel in your truck over the weekend. And I thought to myself, why in the world would anybody ever train this? That makes no sense. It takes up more time. It costs more. I teach a whole course on how to buy fuel at the lowest price. And and you'll never get the lowest price by this strategy. You'll get the opposite. And you're spending a lot of time. And I thought, why would they teach this? And then it dawned on me. You know what one of the biggest complaints are in these lease purchase programs? What is it? The driver works all week and he doesn't even get a check. Hmm. Or it's very, very small. And it's because these things don't pay very well. But the these carriers started teaching these guys not to buy too much fuel because that's when they weren't getting their check. Because hmm. they, had, they had advanced it all on fuel. But that only saves you for one week. Because next week I still have to buy the fuel, (laughs) (laughs) but now I'm buying it in a way that's costing me more. Hmm. So I started figuring out the little bit of training that they were doing was probably making things worse for these guys. And so what, what is the, I guess, what is the solution for a lot of these guys? Is it obviously, you know, your, your, your program helps, but I would imagine that that's how a lot of them are, are starting and then getting out of the industry very quickly, only never to return. Yeah. Yeah, it's why we have as much turnover as we do, not in just drivers, but we turn over tons of owner-operators. These lease purchase programs, they might as well put a revolving door on that truck. They'll probably lease that thing to five or six people over time, 
because very few people ever succeed at these. So if you if you were interested in becoming a driver, what what would you suggest is like the best route to take to to make sure that you're a profitable company, but you're also maybe working for a, a company that values you or, you know, going to the right CDL school. It feels like a lot of things to navigate very quickly. You know, it does. I, I'm not sure that most of that is all that important. Hmm. You're, you're going to go to a CDL school because you have to just about just pick one. All we need to do is get through the training and get our license. Now, I, I would love to see better training, mm-hmm. but we're not going to see it. The schools that are out there are all about the same. Hmm. So you just pick one and, and get through it. One of the things we've tried to do because the, I originally tried working with carriers to create better training programs. And again, I'm only talking owner-operators. Mm-hmm. I, I really don't do a lot with drivers, unless it was a health thing. Mm-hmm. So the carriers just, they were just really difficult to work with. What we've done over the years is we've created small owner-operator companies that we can refer people out to. If you want to become an owner-operator, go drive for these guys. You're going oh, to get that. to know the owner. They're going to show you how to own a truck and how to do it profitably. And at some point, they may even help you get into a truck. And that's really, other than that, it's just trying to reach more and more people and educate them is what we try to do. Now, I love that referral line of business because, I mean, there there are people who are, are making it, but I, right. I, I would imagine that a lot of them are so focused on making the business work versus spreading that message, which is where, you know, a, a company like yours comes into play. Let me give you the, the two extremes of what we're dealing with here. I, I had a guy call me on the, on the air one day and he said, I, I, am, I hear you talk about these lease purchase programs. He said, I got into one. He said, I'm struggling. I, I can't figure out what's wrong. And I said, well, do you have any accounting? And he said, no, I, I, you know, he didn't even know what we were talking about really. And I said, look, here's what I'm gonna do. I want you to send me all of your settlements and all of your receipts from this year, we were like seven months into the year. And I said, I'm going to put it into our accounting system and then we're gonna get you back on the air next week and we're gonna go through the numbers and figure out what we should do. That, that's what I do and that's, that's the process. We have to look at the numbers first. I was shocked. When, when I got done with the numbers, this guy was making 13 cents a mile net. That was it. And I, I, when we got him on the air, I said, I don't even know how you're eating much less surviving like this. And he said, well, I, I'm, I'm okay, I guess. And I said, well, congratulations, because you must be managing your personal money really well. Yes. And I said, so here's the thing. You are surviving on 13 cents a mile. I said, we could get you driving jobs all day long at 60 cents a mile. I said, that's what we're going to do. You're going to go get a driving job, and you're going to keep living on 13 cents a mile. And we're going to take the other 47 cents a mile and we're going to start saving it to buy you a truck. We're going to buy the right truck and we're going to spec it right. We're going to send you to the right carrier. And we did all that. And this process happened about over about a three year period. And then the guy started calling me back. He now has his own authority, his own trailers, his own customers. He is doing fantastic. Love that. It, it, yeah. It, and that that's the potential that's out there. I, I that, That's such a great service that, that you're providing for this. Making me a little emotional just thinking about it because you <laughs> gave this pathway to this person who 
wouldn't have succeeded probably without your insight yeah. and without your help. He, he so probably would have left the industry. Hmm. He, he was so frustrated. He, he figured if I'm working this hard and I own the truck and I'm taking all this risk or he's leasing the truck, I, I should be making more. And I said, you're right. And I said, in this program, there's no way. I said, hmm. I've, I've looked over the numbers at best. We might get you to 40 or 50 cents a mile. And that's just pathetic for all the risk you're taking and all the money you've put up. I said, we, we want to get you to the point where you're making a dollar plus a mile. Take home. And he is now. That's wonderful. That, yeah. that is such a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you know, as we kind of like round out the interview, I, I do have, it feels weird to kind of like segue into this next topic because it's, it's more like rapid fire questions, um, yeah. things like that. So I guess there's no real, I guess, graceful way to do this. Oh, that's okay. Um, well, wait, one question I would have to ask is, if I could give you a magic wand to fix trucking, what would you fix and why? Wow. You know, I am a pretty dyed-in-the-wool free market capitalist. I don't like a lot of rules. I don't like a lot of regulations. I like a lot of competition. Uh, honestly, I know a lot of people think the system is really, really broken. I, I don't think it is. Hmm. I, I, I think if we could, the one thing that really worries me right now is the AB5 type laws, hmm. the fight against independent contractors. If I can see a problem in the industry, that's the only one I'm really worried about. All the other stuff we can deal with. You know, speed limiters, I, I wouldn't be wild about them. ELDs, I wasn't wild about that. Uh, I'm not even worried wild about hours of service at all. Um, I, it seems to me like every time somebody wants to talk about how to improve trucking, they're, they're, the government has to be involved somehow. They always want some sort of new regulation or some new rule. I, I'm the opposite. Let's get rid of a whole bunch of them and and let's figure out how we educate people better as an industry and we'll all get better that way and, and the other said, the other big project we're working on uh and i've been working on this for a couple of years on and off and and we do a show called broker connect i think one of the best ways we could fix our transportation industry is much better partnership and cooperation between small brokers and small carriers those are the two groups that move the vast majority of the freight in this country, and they're kind of a mess. Well said. And they're constantly fighting with each other. I, and I, 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 Here's what I don't get. I do a whole piece on – I didn't make this up, but I can't remember where I heard this. But I, I've re repeated this about a million times. The secret to success in business. Are you ready? Any business. Any <laughs> business. Here's Here's what it is. You, as a business owner, you figure out how to provide more value to your customer than anybody else can. That's it. That is the secret to every business on the planet. Now, it's not easy, but that's what you should be focused on all day long. How do I provide more value to my customer? The next time you do an interview and you have an owner-operator on, ask him whose customer is. Hmm. You'll get the deer in the headlight look. They don't even think about customers. Hmm. Think about the discussions you've had with small carriers and owner-operators. How many times does the word customer even come up? Right. Almost never. It's, it's, it's always about the drivers. It, it is. And then, hmm. then I tell people, if that's the way you succeed, by providing more value to your customer than anybody else can, we now need to identify your customer. And they will still look at me like they're not sure. 
And they'll say, here's a clue. Whose check did you deposit? So in the model of a broker in the mix, whose check are they depositing? It's the broker's. So that's their customer. And then I look at them and say, why would you walk around talking about your customer like this? They're scumbags. They're, they're controlling the rate. They could care less about me. They're just taking everything they can get. No, that's your customer. You, you need to stop talking about them like that and try figuring out how you provide value to them. And then develop those deeper relationships so you're not chasing the freight on the load boards. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that that all makes a, a ton of sense. Now, now I know we got you know a, a few minutes left here, so I just wanted to ask you, you know, just a couple little rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, but what is your favorite supply chain factoid? Can be about trucking, anything. Supply chain factoid: that the average truck on the road gets six point six miles to the gallon. And we now have trucks breaking 11. Wow. And that's just shameful that it's such a small group that are achieving those kind of numbers. But we've proven it's possible. And, and how is it possible? Uh, modifying the trucks, different gearings, different mm -hmm. transmission setups, different tires. Uh, I've identified over 80 things that affect fuel economy. Wow. Now, we can't change all of them. But a lot of them we can. Some of them are out of, you know, wind, temperature. Um, but, but we knowing those things is how we get to those 10, 11, 12 mile to the gallon trucks that we're now creating. Wow, that, that's a great fact. And you, right off the, the top of your head, I, I don't send these out, you know, these questions out ahead of time, people. So <laughs> he's coming up with that right off the top, which is great. All right. And, and last question, um, what's your, your favorite SaaS product that's not your own? Uh, a site called mint.com. Oh, the money manager mint. Yes. That's Love a good that one. one. Love that one. Free. It, it's been free forever, too. And that's, I didn't even think that they were still around. I, I oh, remember yeah. using them back in the day, but I, I started using Rocket Money, you know, recently. And so right. that, that's who I, I think it's, they're, they're fairly similar. Um, I think they're both owned by Intuit, some companies, <laughs> I believe so. And that's TurboTax, Quicken, QuickBooks, Mint, I think, and, and it, Rocket Mortgage. So that's, yeah, that's my next step. As a business owner, my next step is to, to plug rocket money into all the accounting apps. Which well, is you know, well, you know what's happening now. Um, I'm actually working with a new platform exactly like Mint, except they're brand new and it's all run by AI. Hmm. But I also imagine that, <laughs> that, that Mint will have AI all over their site pretty soon too. And it just makes things so much simpler to be able to see like all of the little, you know, the Apple transactions that aren't labeled, but they show up on your bill and you have no idea what they go to. So you have to physically go into the Apple app to find out what they're charging you for. So it's a, it, you know it makes what things I, a lot easier. You know what I thought was the single best feature some of these money apps put in? The Control ability to cancel your subscriptions yes. with one click. Isn't yes. that an awesome feature? <laughs> It is. It's very handy. I, or the, the negotiate, it will negotiate this bill for you, which is great. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I am so bad at signing up for every subscription on the internet. Yes. And I, when I, every time I sign up on them, I'm going to cancel it before the yep. end of the day. I just want to see how it works. <laughs>
and then it charges you and you don't know. Oh, I know. And then it goes on for months and months. And then somebody from accounting will send me something. Are you using this? And I'll go, I don't know what that is. And I'll be like, well, you signed up for it. Right. (laughs) Then you have to do your own due diligence and digging. Right. Yeah. She is the CEO of Trucker Tools, and we're going to be talking about a different kind of CRM today, a carrier relationship management platform. So Carrie, welcome into the show. Thank you so much, Blaith. I, of course, was eager to get uh, a message from you. So very honored to be here. Absolutely. Now, we, we first met at FreightWaves F3 event last yep. year, and we were sitting across the table from the Freightvana guys of Don and Lars, and we were talking a lot about like chess and traveling. Yes. And both you and Lars convinced me, because I had a, a New York trip coming up soon, You both of you convinced me, do not stay in Times Square. And that was such great advice, because Thank we ended up goodness. staying... <laughs> We well, we stayed in another part of New York, so we stayed in Koreatown, which ended up being really wonderful and like great food and just a great vibe environment. Uh, but I'm so glad we we took your advice and stayed in another part of town. That's great. Did you go to Times Square at all while you were there? A little, um, yeah. more or less, like you know, passing through. I think you kind of have to see it, you know, on like yep. the first or second night that you're there. But yep. everywhere else was was you know the museums and the sightseeing. We didn't do a lot of touristy stuff, um, which I was thankful for. Um, we did a lot of great. like smaller shops and exploring and things like that. Great, great. So now with you and and your story, because you come from, you know, a big city in Boston, Um, I believe you said that you grew up in the Midwest area, or you're you're currently there in the Midwest area based in Chicago. But I'm curious as to how what first got you into freight? What got you interested in the industry? Yeah, so honestly, I think it goes, my interest in transportation goes way back growing up. So I am from Boston. And my mom was really involved in local government when I was growing up. And she just always talked to us about planning, infrastructure, how things work, how things move, which kind of got me just fascinated with the concept of place and how do you develop cities? How do you develop connectivity? I love maps. Got one behind me right here. So I think from a young age, I've always been interested in that. And um, fast forward several years um, following college, I spent a couple of years as a, as a consultant, which was great, but knew pretty quickly I wanted to be in a business driving impact, making decisions with some real skin in the game. And uh, around that time, Uber was really blowing up. And I thought, what cooler experience than being part of scaling a business that is probably the most transformative. Um, certainly technology, I think, in, in how cities operate, move, connect, how people move and connect. Um, at least in my lifetime. So I had the good fortune to join the Uber team back in 2016. And I spent a couple of years there. I was never on the freight side myself. I worked on the ride sharing and Uber Eats parts of the business, ride sharing in Washington, DC, which was one of the US kind of hubs. And then I spent some time abroad, primarily in Mexico City, working on Uber Eats for Latin America. And uh, I left right after we went public. And a lot of my colleagues, friends had either gone to work for Uber Freight in that time period, it was a mysterious, interesting, exciting business, or we're leaving Uber to start their own companies. And a ton of people saw a lot of opportunity in the freight space for reasons you know we could talk about all day long that are definitely still uh, opportunities. And it got me thinking, what a, what a cool, interesting space to be in. What more important than supporting how everything is moved? Um, 
so was interested in freight and uh, following Uber, I, I got my MBA and that's where I met kind of the convergence of freight and some other things happened to bring me to Trucker Tools. I met uh, the current owners of Trucker Tools, Alpine Investors, while I was doing my MBA. They have a really interesting operating model where they hire operators um, right out of school to come in and work with founders to transition management as they're looking for a full exit. And that's how I joined the business. Um, they just acquired Trucker Tools, given my background, my interest in logistics transportation, uh, my experiences before Trucker Tools, it was just perfect match, perfect convergence. So that's how I got here. That's I, I love that part that you mentioned about you know Uber Eats because I, I was listening to your interview on Truck and Hustle. You were talking about how living in you, you moved abroad to like I think Indonesia and then also yeah. Mexico City I think for a while. What was different about I guess the markets abroad versus like the Uber Eats market in the U.S.? Great question. So abroad, Uber Eats is. Um, I think a more efficient business. It's been a while since I've you know worked in in the business, and I Uber Eats really took off at the beginning of COVID, and I think mm-hmm. it's now kind of fifty fifty of Uber's revenue with ride sharing, which is amazing. Wow. Um, but the thing about Uber Eats in Mexico or Indonesia, which are the two international markets I worked in, is um, you're able to be really efficient with deliveries because so much of the what they call supply driver supply courier supply is on two wheels, whether it's a bicycle or primarily motorbike. Um, which commands different unit economics when it comes to compensating drivers. And you're just able to be a lot more nimble. Those cities are massively congested in ways that if you've only ever spent time in the U S I don't think you can even comprehend, like it puts Chicago traffic, LA traffic to shame. Um, So having kind of more nimble delivery folks combined with um, that horrible congestion that actually makes delivery a much more kind of appealing option sometimes, depending on where you live, I think make the, the mar- the biz- the markets really appealing and those sort of emerging markets were definitely pioneers ahead of the US in everything delivery so not just food delivery but um there are plenty of competitors in Latin America and in Asian Asia that have pioneered the super app model where it's not just food delivery you can get cash delivered you can get books delivered you can get groceries delivered you can get someone to come walk your dog give you a manicure give you a massage so just a lot more appetite for um that on-demand economy than i think what we've seen so far at least again this is all pre-pandemic in the u.s that's super interesting because I, I noticed when I was in New York, all of the different modes of transportation that they yeah. to deal with the congestion. Everybody that was delivering something was on one of those electric bikes, like the yep. e-bikes. There were bigger trucks that had to offload into like the smaller sort of, uh, you know, the I, I guess almost like the UPS, like Amazon freight style trucks. And they would unload those even more into like a smaller like cargo bike type of truck. Yep. So that it's amazing that some of that maybe is moving over to the States where it, it makes a ton of sense. Now, as you transitioned into the role with Alpine, what, what did I guess what drew Alpine to to notice Trucker Tools as as a good option for for them to buy out? Yeah, so two things. One, the freight space. It is a you know I don't need to tell you how massive this market is. So they wanted in. They saw a ton of potential there. Um, they saw that hasn't fully digitized yet. So they're buying vertical SaaS businesses. Massive opportunity. Um, and then specifically to trucker tools, we have a really interesting model that I don't think is replicated by anyone in the space and that we've got this virtuous cycle of started as a mobile app for carriers. We've 
um, really amassed a really large part of the carrier market, especially small fleets, owner operators, the hardest folks to track down on our mobile app because it's been in the market since 2010. Our founders were totally visionary when it came to um, realizing that drivers would be moving to kind of this mobile lifestyle, build a mobile app for life on the road. From there, able to start tracking loads with brokerages and created this um, virtuous cycle where the more drivers you get on the app, easier it's going to be to track their loads. The more brokers you have tracking loads, the more drivers are going to get on the app and then added in our digital freight matching platform as well to take advantage of all that data information um, and that mobile first experience. So we've got a, we've got a pretty unique business model um, that not many folks in the industry can replicate. And I think our number one asset is that massive carrier network that's highly engaged on our mobile platform. Um, so that's what, that's what Alpine was really excited about. And it was super interesting about the the Trucker Tools origin story is that it was started like what two thousand nine around the same time yeah. as the App Store was launched. Social exactly. media platforms are launching. Why? You know, I guess during I'm still like struggling to get folks to realize the value of having a website. But like 10, 20 years ago, you guys are already on the app store. Why yeah. Why do you think the app store was so important? Is it because of you know the, the mobile driver lifestyle? Yeah, definitely. Mobile driver lifestyle. Um, if you think, I think one of the, one of the first features in trucker tools that was, that took off and continued to grow um, carrier interest, which was really just kind of a word of mouth um, play was truck stop reviews. So aggregating reviews on what is available at different truck stops, what do different truck stops offer, what do they not offer? Um, and if you think about it, the only way to kind of capture that information is basically to crowdsource it among the very, very fragmented carrier base. Um, so I think our founders, Prasad Morali, saw data like that. There needs to be some sort of crowdsource effort to aggregate it combined with um, the mobile first lifestyle of especially owner operators who many of them, you know, live in their truck for days, weeks at a time um, made a lot of sense. And so I, I would imagine that maybe in the, the early days, it was maybe easier to convince truck drivers to download an app because it feels, especially on social media, it feels like yeah. truckers are very like tech averse. They're, it's, or, um, they're slow to trust a company in order yeah. to you know download an app or to install new technology on their truck, things like that. How is, I guess, Trucker Tools balancing that? Was yeah. it easier before and now it's maybe a little bit more challenging or has it kind of been the same? So we're growing our monthly active users kind of at an accelerating rate, actually. So I wouldn't say it's getting more difficult. I think one of our major advantages, again, is that we started so early. So we've been able to build that trust that has to be earned from the carrier and driver community. Can't just tell them, download this app. It's not going to you know, track you when you don't want to get tracked. It's not going to collect any data that you don't want collected. Uh, that, that really needs to be earned over time. So starting 13 or so years ago, um, we've been able to just prove ourselves out in the market. So that's been a major advantage. So there's a ton of brand trust, a ton of brand loyalty, um, especially in those early days, providing those free tools for life on the road. We've got 17 tools for life on the road, ranging from truck stop reviews, like I mentioned, way station locator, truck specific, specific routing, parking and way scales, kind of everything you might need as an owner operator to live your daily life, we've got in the app. So that just continues to drive not just kind of that initial download, but continued engagement. Um, over time, though, certainly over, you know, since the ELD mandate passed in 2018, 
we've, we've been open to other forms of engaging with our carriers. We're seeing certainly plenty of brokers want to track via ELD right now because it's, you know, one-time setup, set it and forget it. And it's often more consistent than mobile tracking. It's not the same with carriers. It can be more of a challenge to get them to convince um, or get them bought into ELD tracking when it's often actually better for them. There's no safety concern because they don't have to deal with the phone. They, you know, again, set it and forget it. Tracking's not going away. It's definitely becoming a ubiquitous requirement, especially in a market like this. So we've um, we've really focused on building out our ELD network as well to build, you know, an alternative for carriers to track with and to engage with us with, which has gone really well. Um, and I think that's also just kind of a trust play. You know, when the mandate came out in 2018, trust was probably here. Now it's like just up here and every little bit makes a difference. Um, and our goal is to really just meet carriers where they are, however they are. So I talked about the mobile app, talked about ELDs. We just released a, another tracking, I guess I'll call it modality, um, in our text to track and WhatsApp to track functionality, which is for those drivers who do not want to download a mobile app, who may not have an ELD or do not want to integrate their ELD, brokers can automate sending a one-time SMS or WhatsApp message to them to click on, share their location, um, and go back to driving. So we've really, you know, our, our goal is to meet the carrier where they are. Mobile app, we're dedicated to continue to prove out value, which continues to drive our adoption rate, but we are absolutely open to other ways to engage carriers. And it, it, you had said one thing during one of these interviews that I was listening to that that I really um, resonated with is that a lot of the tools that are in trucker tools are giving the ability to the carrier, especially the the small owner operators and the small fleets. I think something like eighty percent of your carriers on your platform have five trucks or less. You um, listen to all those interviews. Great job! I'm so impressed. <laughs> but uh, one thing I really liked what you said is that you're giving tools to the smaller carriers that the big ones already have. And I think, you know, everything we've seen over, you know, the yellow situation over the last few weeks, even months, um, giving access to these similar tools and these similar, similar like selling advantages for these smaller carriers seems like a really important play. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, again, that is kind of the founding vision of trucker tools was to democratize and improve opportunity, improve life and the lifestyle of the owner operator out there. So that is super core to our mission to this day. And you know, we're constantly looking at our app thinking, what else can we be providing that is going to allow the owner operator to be more competitive, to have better intelligence, to make better decisions? Um, just a couple examples. We integrated with FreightWave Sonar last year. We give away um, track rate data and sonar data to small carriers for free. So huge shout out to our friends at FreightWaves for that partnership, um, which helps our owner operators make better decisions about which lanes to bid on, where they should go, what rates they should be um, pursuing. Um and we've got a couple other things in the works right now in, in the vein of partnerships that we're hoping to launch within the mobile app that are just going to give owner operators more ac- and small fleets more access to um, whether it's capital, whether it's um, credit, just to help them kind of open up their opportunity set. And I think one more important tool you said, too, is that the digital bookings are the future for small carriers and contractors. You said yeah. that about a year ago. That was on BCB Live. I'm keeping my interviews straight. Oh, my gosh. Done so Where did you find all this? <laughs> it's like the, all on YouTube. YouTube is like, I, I love using it or, or using other interviews to, yeah. to sort of give me that baseline and, you know, see where, see what the, I guess, the predictions were, the thought process were, you know, a time period yeah. ago and see if we're anywhere closer to 
said that because that, that you did say that about a year yeah. ago that digital bookings are the future for small carriers and contractors yeah. and you want to try to get rid of the the one load wonders yeah. um, by helping carriers and brokers develop those relationships so, so do you think that we're you know closer to that reality of the digital broker being the future or you know are there still some ways to go so i think we are closer to the to digital bookings being a core asset a core capability of any brokerage. I I think digital brokers and traditional brokerages are just kind of converging into one and the same. And it's really all about being a tech-enabled broker. If you go to the Uber flight floor or you go to the convoy floor, it's going to look a lot like the Echo floor or the Coyote floor. So I, I don't really even... Honestly, I think probably the biggest difference there is like on technology budgets and the kind of... Um, Probably not even though. I mean, these companies have massive tech budgets, which is awesome. They build great technology. So anyway, all to say, um, I I do think that prediction is trending in the right direction. Great job, Carrie. Um, and that we've seen, at least from the data that we track at Trucker Tools, a massive increase in the number of digital interactions, digital bookings um, that carriers are making and completing on our platform over the year. I think that's driven by a couple of things. One, um, carriers are chasing freight everywhere. It's, you know, the market is still down. So carriers need to be nimble. And the fastest way to try to book a load is to make a digital offer or even better book loads um, completely digitally with the book it now or an automated negotiation, which is another feature that we have. Um, I also think just kind of there are these secular tailwinds of mobile adoption of, you know, gen or the baby boomers are kind of aging out of being drivers. We've got millennials and even Gen Z now aging in, they're folks who grew up on a cell phone. They're always going to be looking to um, make mobile decisions or use you know mobile first, if not web first. So I think, you know, that's absolutely happening, but I don't, I don't see digital brokerages disintermediating traditional brokerages. I just see the adoption of technology continuing to be kind of the number one success determinant of a traditional brokerage. If they're able to build a great tech stack, keep it really up to date and create a really powerful network through that technology, they're going to be great. It, it almost feels like table stakes now for, yeah. for a lot of brokerages that you have to have some of these capabilities. Otherwise you're going to spend all day on the damn phone. Oh yeah. I, you just, you can't, there's no way to exist, especially again, in a market like this. I know a lot of customers and, and folks in the industry, brokerages I've talked to while the market's been down, stress. They just can't be investing in technology now, which I get like you got to run a business and you got to run it lean while rates are what they are right now. But I, I do think to your point, exactly. There is so much that you can automate. And if you start thinking about how can technology spend, not replace head headcount spend, but actually increase the productivity of headcount and reduce the pace at which you need to add headcount into the future. Um, it can make a lot of sense to invest right now. 100%. Because I, I think that for, you know, a, a lot of these businesses, they're they're looking to find ways to gain that little bit of an edge. Mm -hmm. And if you can offer a suite of tools, which obviously, you know, you, you, Trucker Tools is giving that to the carriers, but on the broker side of things, what does that, I guess, experience look like for them? They're, are they using the mobile app? Are they using yeah. a, a desktop version? What does that experience look like for them? So our belief is CMS integration first. Um, we want to be operating wherever the core workflow of the broker is. So we've got integrations with dozens and dozens of TMSs ranging from kind of the Cadillacs, super large, 
um, in-house, certainly custom-built TMSs, really, really big uh, brokerages, all the way down to kind of the long tail of TMSs. Um, some of the you know highly high volume, um, smaller uh, TMS models. So our uh, our kind of core product suite, you can think about, we've got our load tracking product for brokerages and our digital freight matching, digital booking product for brokerages. All of them are integrated fully in these TMSs so that when a broker on the floor, a carrier sales rep, what have you, is, is working on a load, they can simply automatically initiate tracking with the driver phone number, which they should already have in the TMS. Um, they receive offers directly into the TMS so that they can review them in real time. Um, they can set you know information about counter offers or automatic accepts, rejects based on offer information that comes in to speed up the time from bid to book. So it all, the, the broker experience is 95% of it is happening within a TMS. We do have web portals for digital freight matching and our low tracking um, platforms, should that ever be of interest or of use uh, for brokerages. But our, our belief, just again, based on what our customers tell us, is they do not want hundreds of tabs open on several screens like every broker has. They just want the team focused on a single workflow. So that's where we plug in. Yeah, you don't want like 27 monitors. I, I know like some brokers, like that yeah. their offices have at least two monitors. Sometimes it's four. Uh, oh, yeah. It could be, it gets crazy. It's nuts. And then you always got the TVs on all over the place, just tracking everything that's going on in the world. It's a, it's, it's a fun atmosphere. And it's one of those, like, how do you guys focus? Like, as a, a marketer who stayed on, on the outside of the broker floor, I'm like, I don't know how any of you people get anything done on the broker floor. Oh, yeah. And everyone's, you know, on the phone and talking to each other. It's nuts. But it's fun. <laughs> yeah. It's it's fun to, like, walk into, like, as I'm going to get my coffee, like, oh, yes, yeah. it's exciting. And then I go back to my quiet little, like, writing hole in order exactly. to actually, like, get some stuff done. Now, I for... You know, I, I guess the the broker mindset. What does I guess the the move to digital freight is it a good one? Is it a more efficient one? Is it you know it, when we say a digital brokerage, are we more referring to like AI and automation, or is it like kind of a combination of like people skills, automation, and AI? I think it's the latter. There, it's a combination of all the above. Um, Again, I think every brokerage is going to be tech enabled if they aren't already right now, and the winners are going to be. Who a combination of two things, who's building and um, buying, licensing the best, most efficient technology stacks to empower their people to do more um, and be more efficient, booking more loads per day is kind of a core metric there, combined with the team who is most adept at building and sustaining relationships with shippers and carriers. Like this is, you know, you can't just flip a switch and overnight, um, everything has gone digital. There's always, I'm firmly believe there's always going to be a human element to freight. Um, and that digital tools like ours, AI, you know, enabled tools are serve to make the people who are making the freight move more efficient and more productive, cut out more of the noise so they can spend more of their time on kind of value generating activities, whether that's landing a new shipper client or, you know, helping a carrier through a particularly challenging exception management situation rather than, you know, building loads manually in a TMS, making phone calls to track drivers, um, emailing back and forth to negotiate on a load. And it almost sounds like that's where like the carrier relationship management part comes into play for a lot of these brokerages. Is, is that a safe assumption that that's where they can kind of pool their carrier base and keep like the good ones on one list and then on another list is kind of the secondary? Is that kind of how it works? Exactly. So, our carrier network, like I mentioned, we've got 315,000 MCs on our network. 
plenty of brokerages we work with have carrier networks into the low six figures. Mm. Kind of your average brokerage, I would argue, has several dozen thousand carriers in their network. That is a lot of carriers. And if you think about how brokerages have run for the last you know, several decades, it's been a lot of tribal knowledge, pen and paper, Excel spreadsheets that may or may not be shared with everyone. May, you know, There's version control issues. Everything's manually stored. So our vision for a carrier relationship management system was to digitize all of that information and turn it into a data advantage so that brokers, as opposed to searching for information on which carrier is the best carrier to use for lane, or I'm kind of one-off strange load. I can't remember who it was that so-and-so called last time. They have all that information digitally at their fingertips in a way that is getting proactively pushed to them um, and allowing them to engage with those carriers, ideally through digital first channels, but also, you know, we've got email addresses and phone numbers in in there um, so that they can just get the right load to the right carrier faster. Now, on the other like CRM side of things, like the internal like trucker tools CRM, yep. how are you, I guess, approaching you know different carriers and and different brokerages to join the trucker tools platform? Because it, it seems like you guys you know, are really like all over the place, like podcast interviews, speeches. Like I, I feel like I see you at every trade show. Like, uh, what does that? What does like the CRM or the the marketing high level yeah. plan look like for trucker tools? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. We've definitely focused the last year on, on really getting out into the market. So good to hear someone has taken note. I really appreciate it. I feel um, like I've seen you everywhere. <laughs> well, we have an awesome team. I would be remiss not to say that first. Our um, VP of Marketing, Alex Altvader, our VP of Sales, Adlon Adams, our COO, Rohit Bezwada, just phenomenal rock stars. We've got amazing product managers, Jessamine and Jarrett. So just kind of top to bottom, our team is awesome. Um which makes my job, consequently, very easy. I'd say the um, we have been super focused on the broker 3PL market. We do work with shippers. Um, you know, we're a great solution for them in, in many cases. But I think when you think about some of the other visibility players in the space, there is a bit a bit of um, lack of focus and overextension and something we've been deliberate about. Maybe it's because we're private equity backed, which has kind of forced us to be deliberate and thoughtful about who we go after and why um, we have just been focused on solving broker three PL problems. Um, and like I mentioned a couple, you know, 10 minutes ago with the virtuous cycle, as we onboard more brokerages onto our platform, or sorry, we kickstarted things with the mobile app for carriers, aggregated a ton of carrier supply, makes it very easy. Brokers are always looking to build connections with carriers. That is kind of their number one asset as well. It makes it very easy for us to onboard brokers onto our low tracking or digital freight matching platform. Um, getting more, you know, loads on our platform, becoming a more ubiquitous, you know, player in the space, drives even more carriers to want to join um, because they're more likely to be asked to track through Trucker Tools, and we want to make our tracking with us the easiest, most seamless carrier experience possible. They're looking for freight right now, so they want to get on Trucker Tools Loads Marketplace so they can see what's available, make some offers, maybe engage with a brokerage that they haven't worked with before. So they're going to download the app or go onto our web portal. So the the go to market motion is definitely kind of one of this flywheel. Um, but we do, we get out in the market a ton. We want to be talking to customers. I talk to dozens of customers every week, um, dozens of prospects myself to get feedback on, you know, this is what we're thinking about building from a product perspective. Can I get some feedback from you? Hey, what are your biggest problems right now when it comes to visibility and how can that inform what we're building? So it's, you know, it's not 
our technology is very, very impressive, but I think the way we go about going to market is not, I'd say rocket science and that um, we are just in the business of solving broker problems and giving carriers opportunities to make their lives easier. So, um, you know, you'll see us at trade shows all over the place. We're going to Banyan in September, McLeod in September, TIA in October. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're always out in the market. Um, we've got, you know, our sales team going to meet with prospects constantly in person. And um, again, huge shout out to our marketing team for just upping our presence on, on online. I think uh, freight seems to live on LinkedIn is one thing I've noticed in my time in the industry. So we're definitely growing our presence there. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where it, the freight community is really strong on LinkedIn, and it's starting to grow on on Twitter, which is yeah. kind of or X, uh, whatever the the platform's yeah. name is. I, I I'm still going to call it Twitter. I think I know. I wonder, if, are we just always going to call it Twitter? I think we're always going to call it Twitter. Uh, yeah, I'm like it just doesn't flow off the you can't town. Say, oh, yeah, X. Yeah. Well, I did see um, uh, Freightwave CEO uh, Craig Fuller said last night he's kind of coining the term Freight X um, as like the freight community on Twitter, and he said. I you know, if you have any friends in freight, invite them on Twitter. So that that's my that's my my spiel to for, for uh, on freight or on Craig's side of things. I yeah, um, love Craig's uh, Twitter. Uh, so maybe <laughs> I, I I'm not I'm very much a kind of lurker on Twitter where I'm always on there, but I'm never I'm haven't participated in freight acts yet. But maybe. Uh, <laughs> This is my sign to get involved. Yes, absolutely. Now, I, I was going to uh, go into a few different like rapid fire questions where I like to ask, you know, folks who come on the show, like, what is your favorite social media platform? It kind of sounds maybe like LinkedIn or is there, you know, a surprise? <laughs> I think it's LinkedIn, which is really sad. Um, not but yeah, sad. <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not big on um, Instagram or Facebook and I, I lurk on Twitter. But I think especially since joining the freight industry specifically, my LinkedIn usage is probably just taken off. So I'd, I'd have to go LinkedIn dramatically. Right. Yeah. What about, what is your favorite SaaS tool that's not your own, favorite SaaS tool that you can't live without? Oh, I think it's got to be Slack. Um, close second for Notion. I don't know if folks know Notion out there, but it's our, we use that for knowledge management at Trucker Tools and it's amazing. So uh, one of those two. Yeah, Cosi. Well, I use a similar tool called ClickUp, but I w- yep. I don't know where I would be without some kind of like project management tool. It it yep. has to be something that I use every day, like a Bible. Yep. Okay, so I know that you announced a Loacher partnership. Uh, any cool other partnerships that that you have going on w- w- with Trucker Tools or, or coming down the pipeline? Yeah. So, like I mentioned. Um, we're partnered with Freightwave Sonar, and we're always looking to deepen that relationship. Um, they're a phenomenal partner of ours, and just the Sonar tool could not be more informative for brokers and carriers alike. So um, we're continuing to deepen that relationship on our mobile app for carriers um, and also for brokerages. Um, you know, we're always adding new TMS platforms to uh, to the Trucker Tools ecosystem. So, like I mentioned, Banyan, um, we're heading to their conference in September. They're really making moves in the FTL space right now. Um, they're an exciting one that we've got going. Um, I think another big one that's a little different than a traditional partnership, but um, I mentioned very briefly, we are now on WhatsApp, and given the nearshoring um, trend, so much freight moving. From Mexico into the U.S., uh, we we saw a real need to build communication channels between brokers and carriers that um, 
you know, happened where Mexican carriers tend to communicate, which is WhatsApp. So uh, we're now live with WhatsApp. You can get WhatsApp um, uh, anytime you've got a plus five, two phone number on trucker tools, we're always going to default to communicating with that driver to have them download the app, send status updates, our kind of one-time uh, text to track. It's all going to happen through WhatsApp, which is awesome. That's super cool. I mean, I, I'm just completely fascinated by the nearshoring phenomenon that yeah. that's been going on. I it, even just like the concept of, you know, some of the the infrastructure that has to be established in like South America and road construction, and you know, yeah. it's, it's just I I think that that is probably the most fascinating part of the globe right now. So I'm glad yeah. that you you brought that that part up where you're incorporating the technology into systems that already exist within exactly. those regions of the world. Okay, so you've been a full time CEO for Trucker Tools since early 2020 or no, early 2022, I think. Exactly. Um, So you've been on the job for close to two years now. What do you think has been the biggest challenge that you've learned from since that time? Um, that's a great question. Saying the freight market, I don't think counts because everyone's (laughs) dealing with that, but it is you know, the timing of when I joined the business was funny and that, you know, I joined in, I joined as our COO in late 21. It's like, everyone's, you know, just investing in technology and everything is great. And then kind of, as soon as I stepped into the CEO role, things took a turn. Um, we've absolutely grown very, very healthily through it. Um, I think it thanks to our kind of product diversification, but, uh, that has definitely been challenging, um, to, I think a unique challenge of our industry is because it is so cyclical and markets boom and bust frequently and hard. Um, you need to be nimble and have solutions to problems that different customers feel in different markets. You know, talking to brokers in a down market is very different than talking to brokers in an up market. So I think that's probably been the biggest challenge I've faced is how do we, you know, pivot the way we're talking about the business to make sure that we're talking to the current needs of our broker customers. And what that's looked like for us right now is really focusing on the load tracking side on, um, you know, additional modalities in addition to mobile tracking. So our yielding network, we've, we've really grown quickly. Our text to track, we're excited about. Um, and then on the digital freight matching side, moving from less um, from a kind of a carrier sourcing perspective to more of a digital bookings automation perspective. Yeah, it it almost sounds like you guys are, you know, with how much you talk to your customers, I'm sure you're already like well ahead of the game when it comes to product development and the product roadmap and and things coming down the pipeline. Now, a couple final questions. Um, Anything that we can be on the lookout for from like a release perspective or like product roadmap that you would want to share or, you know, new announcements, anything like that? Yeah. So on the product front, we're really excited um, over you know the next six or so weeks, we're launching our carrier validation concept, which fraud has also been, I can't believe we haven't talked about fraud. This is I know, I, I just, <laughs> in an interview without talking about fraud, which feels kind of nice. Um, but it's obviously been a huge, huge topic in the space. And there's so many interesting businesses out there doing their part to combat it. Um, and what we're doing is de- introducing our um, carrier validation Uh, concept, which is going to every couple of months force every single carrier who has signed up with Trucker Tools, over 315,000 of them, to revalidate their identity um, by answering a series of questions that are kind of akin, the trucking version of what's your mother's maiden name. So what loads or uh, what lanes have you run over the last two months? Which broker did you work with last week? So that we're really, you know, what type of equipment do you run um, so that we can build a lot of confidence um, into our broker's uh, that 
the carriers who are interacting digitally with um, on trucker tools are who they claim to be. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Everything is Logistics, a podcast for the thinkers in freight, telling the stories behind how your favorite stuff and people get from point A to B. Subscribe to the show, sign up for our newsletter, and follow our socials over at everythingislogistics.com. And in addition to the podcast, I also wanted to let y'all know about another company I operate, and that's Digital Dispatch, where we help you build a better website. Now, a lot of the times we hand this task of building a new website or refreshing a current one off to a coworker's child, a neighbor down the street, or a stranger around the world, where you probably spend more time explaining the freight industry than it takes to actually build the dang website. Well, that doesn't happen at Digital Dispatch. We've been building online since 2009, but we're also early adopters of AI, automation, and other website tactics that help your company to be a central place to pull in all of your social media posts, recruit new employees, and give potential customers a glimpse into how you operate your business. Our new website builds start as low as $1,500, along with ongoing website management, maintenance, and updates starting at $90 a month, plus some bonus freight marketing and sales content similar to what you hear on the podcast. You can watch a quick explainer video over on digitaldispatch.io. Just check out the pricing page once you arrive, and you can see how we can build your digital ecosystem on a strong foundation. Until then, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll see you all real soon and go Jags.